Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. This is Poker Fraud Alert Radio now, no longer the Druff and Friends show. I'm just going to call it Poker Fraud Alert Radio because that's the only epi- that's the only episode we have here every week. We used to have other things going on sometimes, but I don't know. I just feel stupid to have a name of the show besides Poker Fraud Alert Radio. So it's just Poker Fraud Alert Radio. The song I opened with was... The Longest Time, but not by Billy Joel, even though it sounded a lot like Billy Joel. If you listen to the lyrics, it definitely was not the longest time show, the longest time song that you knew from Billy Joel. This is by a comedy musician named Remy, R-E-M-Y, and he works for Reason TV. Reason TV is part of Reason.com, which is part of Reason Magazine. It's a libertarian right website, and... These songs are kind of in that vein. This one was making fun of TSA at the airport. It's actually a lot funnier if you watch the video, too. But uh, he made 72 of these song parodies since 2011, and they're very, very well done. Most people don't know who this guy is, Remy, R-E-M-Y. But I watched all 72 of these yesterday, and they were great. I was laughing out loud. Even if you're not libertarian or libertarian right or right wing or whatever, you, you could still laugh at these. Like, this guy, he's not... Like your typical right-winger, he doesn't like Trump, and uh, he doesn't like a number of things that the right is for, such as building the wall. Uh, But he's more right than left, for sure. He's like libertarian right. But the political points made are very uh, gentle and lighthearted, 
and you have to laugh at it. Like even the videos I didn't agree with, the point he was raising I thought were very funny. So his name's Remy. If you want to find him on YouTube, just type Remy space reason and you'll find his full library of 72 songs. All about you know, between one and a half and four minutes each. You can get through them pretty quickly. That was one of them. That's actually one of my favorite ones. So today is December 20th, 2019. This is the last show we're going to have before Christmas. We are going to have a show next week. We're not going to have a missed show because of the holidays. We had a missed show last week, but not because of any holiday. I came down with a sore throat a week ago, and I thought I was on the way to getting a cold, but I really wasn't. I don't know if vitamin C really stops you from getting a cold. I've heard mixed things about it. I've tried to look into it, and I've seen some websites claim it's an old wives' tale and it doesn't help. I've seen some say that, yes, it definitely helps. I've seen some say that you need a very, very high dose to make a difference, and I've seen some say that, yes, it does help. So I have been doing it with kind of mixed results, but I will say that about half the time when I feel cold symptoms coming on and I take about 500 milligrams of vitamin C, maybe 750, then about half the time the cold kind of peters out and doesn't fully develop, and the other half of the time it does. So I definitely felt symptoms coming on. I I felt congestion. I was sneezing. I was blowing my nose, and I had a sore throat. None of these very severe, but they were all here a week ago. And I did that. The problem was it took a little time for the sore throat to fully go away. It was never bad, but it was never fully gone. And when I've tried to do radio in the past with a sore throat, I find that at the end of the show, it has gotten worse. It's been aggravated. As you might guess would happen when you do a show that's four to eight hours long and you just talk, talk, talk with very, very little break in between. I talk more when I do this show straight than pretty much anyone else does, if you think about it. Think of... Can you think of anybody, even others on radio shows, who talk for like four to eight hours with almost no break all the way through? Because even talk show hosts have commercial breaks. I don't. I really just talk all the way through for four to eight hours, and it's actually very tough on your throat. So if your throat's not perfect when you start, it's going to feel much less than perfect when it's over. And I decided I'm not going to do that to myself again. So that's why we missed a week. We are back. Uh, I don't have a cold. I'm healthy now. And we will have a show next week on the 27th, Friday the 27th. And we probably will have a show also the following week. So it looks like we're not going to miss any shows. And that's good because it's bad enough when I miss them from things like a sore throat. We have 16 topics this week to cover because we missed a week. And whenever we miss a week, there's a lot of stuff we would have covered last week that we have to cover this week. In fact, I could have covered more than 16 topics, but I had to draw the line somewhere. So I got to get through them all. Can't take too long on any particular topic. But what I can take is a moment to tell you that we have a free roll tonight thanks to, who might it be? Who who gives us a lot of money to have our free rolls? Well, in 2018 and 19, that would be one Eric Benzamokin. And I appreciate that very much. $100 from him. And by the way, we're going to have a a big free roll from him earlier, or early in the year of 2020. But he gave 100 at the last minute tonight. I appreciate that because I have to admit we were not flush with money this week donated for the free roll. Prior to Eric's donation of the $100, which was uh, very generous and I always appreciate coming from him, the amount of money we had pledged for this free roll was 0.0. So that would have been a bit embarrassing. But he saved the day. I didn't even mention it either. I just mentioned TBA. (laughs) 
I'm like, well, let me see if I can scrounge some up. And then it scrounged itself without me saying anything. So I'll give you the usual little intro, then we will get going, and I have a surprise for everybody. We have a prank call tonight that I have not described because I want it to be a surprise of what the prank call is going to be. At least I, I think I'll put it in the agenda once it's actually been done, but I since this is live and I don't want anyone uh, interfering with it in any way, I'm just going to make it, and then I'll explain it afterwards, okay? That'll be our first thing we do. The free roll is on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, by the way. It started at 9.15, or actually not 9.20. It started only three minutes ago. And you have 22 minutes more to get in with a full stack in late registration. And it's $100 this week, $50 for first, $25 for second, $15 for third, and $10 for fourth. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. You need to go to to understand the rules to win the free money. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. Exactly as it sounds. All lowercase, no dashes, no slashes, no periods. Well, except there's the dot com. That has a period, I guess. I guess there was a slash before free roll, so ignore what I just said. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. If you want to call the show, as always, our phone number seven seven five fraud fifty five seven seven five three seven two eight three five five is the number. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is located on Mount Charleston, which is about 40 minutes away from Las Vegas by car. It's a real mountain with real snow, with real skiing on it. Not very good skiing, mind you, but skiing. And we have a cabin there. We have a phone that sits in the cabin and forwards to me wherever I go. It's an old 70s rotary phone. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. You can also text the show at any time on the main phone number, 775 372 8355. Then we have a thing you can use to listen to the show on your phone. You don't need a smartphone. You don't need a data plan. You don't need a computer or the internet. You don't need anything more than a zero bar signal that can complete a phone call. Won't even cost you one byte of data. And it will never, ever, ever, ever buffer. 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736 is the call to listen line. And we also have an alternate call to listen line, 641-741-1095. If you forget either of these numbers, go to the radio tab and you will see all the numbers associated with the show, the radio tab near the top of PokerFraudAlert.com, and they will all be listed there. If you want to listen to the show live, you can do it with that line. You can use the radio page, which you find through the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com. There's various links to listen live for iPhones, for Androids, for other devices, or it may just play by itself, like it probably will on your computer. But if it doesn't, here's a little tip, by the way. If it doesn't play on your computer browser, then just click the iPhone link, and it'll play. Even if you don't have an iPhone, you have like a PC, click the iPhone link, it'll play. I should I should put that on the page instead of having to tell you guys here. But that's a little trick to get it to play, if it won't play. You can also use the TuneIn app that has two entries for Poker Fraud Alert Radio. One of them is the live show. One of them is the archives. So the live show, you'll just try them both. One of them will be the live show. You can listen on that app. You can also use Amazon Alexa. You can say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and it will play the live show or the streaming reruns, whatever's going at the moment. And if you... 
say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. You add the word podcast at the end, it'll play the last episode in the archives. If I just activated your device, I'm not sorry. I laugh at you for having the device so close to where you play the show. When we're not live, the call to listen line, all the different live listening methods will play reruns. Random reruns that are plucked from our library of almost eight years of the show. Can you believe it? It will play it in full and start another and start another till about an hour or two before we come back on the air. And then I turn off the rerun just to prevent confusion. Because if I ran them all the way up till when we start the live show, people will go, wait, is this right now? Or is this a few years ago? It confuses people. So I turn it off a few hours beforehand. But other than that, it's just running, 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 running. And we'll just keep running until we come back on live. In fact, if I were to die, it would probably run for a while after I'm in the ground. Not forever, because then I wouldn't pay the server bills and the whole thing would go down, but it would run for a while. But here's the agenda we're going to talk about tonight, and then we will get going. The lead regular story has to do with the California Indian casinos. And I'm sad that I missed last week, because no one was talking about this last week. But uh, we were on the forefront of covering this. In fact, we've been covering this whole thing dating back to last year. Right, I think earlier this year, not last year, but whatever. We've, we've been covering this for a while, the California games situation at the Indian casinos and the player banking situation. You may say, what the hell am I talking about? Well, you'll understand when we get to that segment. It has to do with the Indian casinos in California trying to attack commerce and other card rooms in California and basically trying to destroy the California games section and perhaps destroy some of these card rooms. But who is in the right in this entire dispute? Many people are saying the Indian casinos are awful and mean and nasty. Well, they are, but who's in the right here? It may not be as simple as you think. Peter Jepson, also known as Zup, who was uh, once thought to be a great online poker player. It turns out he wasn't as great as people thought because a lot of his winnings came from cheating. He was sneaking Trojan horse programs onto people's laptops and could see all of their cards. When you can see everyone's cards, it's pretty easy to win, especially if you're doing it over a six-year span, which he was. He was convicted of this. And I will tell you what happened to him and how much money was involved and a little bit about the scheme. Here's a topic that doesn't directly have to do with poker or gambling, but affects all of you. Some of you have probably been concerned about the government surveillance programs and you might even be concerned with the data breaches on Facebook and other places. And I understand you're concerned about those, but you probably haven't thought much about the fact that unregulated non-government companies are stalking your every move through your cell phone and it's legal. When I say your every move, I mean your every move. They know everywhere you go. And if they want to, they could make a complete map of your life of what you do with every moment of every day when your cell phone is on. I will explain the whole thing and I will give you some tips in order to throw them off and make it more difficult to track your life like this. I'll also tell you why you don't want your life tracked. Someone asked, well, what if I just don't care? And that's actually a good question. I think the person was trying to be snarky with me, but their, their response to my posting of the article from the New York Times explaining all this was, well, okay, what if I don't give a shit this is happening? And I thought, you know what? That's a good question. So I'm going to tell you why you should care. I, I actually got this question almost 20 years ago. Actually, it was more than 20 years ago. I had a girlfriend 
who uh, asked me that question too when I was telling her to make some changes in her life to help out uh, making her privacy better. And she thought I was crazy. A few months later, she thought I was not crazy. I'll explain that story too. No one you know, by the way, not any, none of you have met her or ever talked to her. Ignition skims money from their cash out sometimes. It's usually not them, it's their processors, but you do an ignition cash out, a Bovada cash out, and you don't always get the amount you're expecting. It comes a little bit short. And there's a reason they get away with that. There's a reason why most people don't complain about it. And it doesn't happen every time, but it happened to me. I will tell you about how I was victimized by an ignition payment processor, or perhaps ignition itself, and how I was stolen from. A relatively small amount of money, but my cash out came short, and it was intentional. Joe Biden, who I think is going to be the Democratic nominee for president, I hope he is because I have a bet on him, but uh, a bet on him just for the primary, by the way. I have five to one, which are great odds. I I got it back in October, but even then it was great odds. I, I should have put more down than I did. But I have enough to where I would like to see him win the primary. Anyway, I think he's going to win the primary, independent of that. He has expressed support for online poker, similar to how Andrew Yang has recently. But what does that mean? What if Joe Biden becomes president? Does that mean online poker is going to be federally legal? I'll explain what that means and what it does not mean. Another Bovada ignition story. They brought back a lot of cash games that were deleted without announcement back in May. They just reappeared also without announcement in November, only to vanish again without announcement a few days later. (laughs) What the hell's going on? What the hell's going on at Bovada and Ignition? I will tell you when we get to that segment. The World Series of Poker has announced the dates for the 2020 World Series. They have not announced the full schedule yet. They have revealed... I believe 14 events or 14, 15 events have been revealed. Maybe it's somewhere between 12 and 15. I can't tell you the exact number. I'll, we'll, when we get to it, I'll, I'll count them. But it's somewhere between 12 and 15 events. There's probably going to be around 90 events. So this is not by any means a full schedule, but I do have dates for the higher profile events for the most part. And I will give you those dates and I'll tell you what you should do at this point if you play, if you plan to go to the World Series of Poker in 2020. It is going to be at the Rio, by the way, in case you're wondering that. Michigan has officially legalized online poker, online casino games, and sports betting all in one fell swoop. You can't do any of this yet, but it'll be coming soon. I will tell you how much of an impact that'll have on the legalized online poker landscape. Sometimes I find myself in the middle of a major news story, and sometimes I find myself in the middle of a very minor news story, but still nevertheless one involving celebrities or one-time celebrities, and I always find that kind of interesting when Poker Fraud Alert has a part in the whole thing. Poker Fraud Alert has had a part in a number of stories you may have seen in the news over the years that have nothing to do with poker or gambling. Poker Fraud Alert was the number one result for searches about Charlie Sheen having HIV. That was found on Poker Fraud Alert pretty much before it was found anywhere on the web. And it was the number one result for quite some time. Even after he announced it for about a day, we were the number one result. We also uh, had some involvement in the whole Katie Hill situation. You know, the congresswoman from Santa Clarita and Simi Valley who 
resigned over having that three-way relationship and also having sex with two of her staffers. We had a small part in that, in that we were among the first to, actually the very first, not among the first, the very first outlet to name the woman who was in the three-way relationship with her and her husband. We weren't the first to post any pictures. That was done by uh, Red State and the Daily Mail, but we did name her, and she actually made contact with us. We have now become part of yet another story. There's, there's other stories we've been part of, too. I just don't remember them off the top of my head. But there's another story that we're part of, and that is we cover, we were the only outlet to cover a celebrity, albeit minor celebrity, gossip, gossip story that Scott Schwartz – remember Scott Schwartz, the kid who got his tongue stuck on the flagpole in A Christmas Story? That he was alleging that a Playboy, a Playboy playmate named Audra Lynn had cheated him out of $500, then finally wrote a check to him for that 500 only to stop the check when he tried to deposit it. So he attempted to publicize this. It went nowhere. And the only place it is on the web, to my knowledge, is Poker Fraud Alert. Well, it sat that way for quite some time, but I recently got contact from the Playboy Playmate. I will tell you what happened in my conversations with her and what more she added to the story. I don't know. It just feels good to be part of these things. It feels good to matter. It feels good to be part of the public conversation. A major bust of a Canadian sports betting ring has occurred in the province of Ontario, and it involves the Hells Angels and the Mafia. So I'll tell you about that interesting story. Very large sports betting ring, over $100 bucks. The Global Poker Awards, remember that? Remember they had some controversy involving nominating people who actually didn't deserve the nomination, such as Best Vlogger for someone who wasn't vlogging, or Best Streamer for someone who wasn't streaming. Remember those lovely awards? Well, they're back, but they're going to make a tweak to prevent the same thing from happening. I'll explain what that is. I have an update on Lake Tahoe Video Poker. If you want to earn Caesars Diamond or Seven Stars, and you're in California or Nevada or anywhere in the western U.S., and you don't want to travel across the country to find good video poker, good meaning good pay tables where you're less likely to lose. I mean, you're always going to lose on average. None of these are positive expectation, but the least negative expectation games were in Lake Tahoe at Harris, and then it was said they were removed. I have an update that it actually is still a good option, and there's still some good games there. I'll tell you where they are and how to find them. And also when to play them, so you get the most out of the points you earn. Diamond members of Caesars will be losing free access to the spas at Las Vegas Caesars properties in 2020. I'll tell you about that. The Hard Rock Atlantic City, which took the place of the Trump Taj Mahal, is disappointed so far with how they're doing. I'll tell you if that's surprising or not. Finally, you may like smoking marijuana. But do you like eating marijuana? You may say, yeah, I've done edibles before. And I say, no, I don't mean edibles. I mean, would you actually like to have a marijuana dinner? Would you like to have a dinner infused with cannabis? You could have, and you probably can again if you want, in Las Vegas, and Los Angeles for that matter. 
But the Las Vegas area's first cannabis-infused meal was served on December 13th. I'll tell you about that weird meal as our final topic. Let's try to reach our friend Trader Ruski. I hate Sky Updates. It changes every time. It's frustrating. Every show. Something screws up. Oh, hello, Trader Ruski. What's happening, Jeff? Well, I'm glad I was able to reach you on Skype. That's a triumph here every week. Hey, what's happening, Jeff? Can you hear me? Yep. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, I'm good. You're good. All right. You said the same thing twice. I got nervous. All right. Yeah, so, take a minute to click in or something. All right, but, all right. Uh, well, we're good. All right, so let's go to our main topic, and that is about the situation going on at the California card rooms and the attack that's taking place on the California games. Now, this requires some explanation for a lot of you, since a lot of you are not from California. A lot of you have never gambled in California. A lot of you have, but still don't understand these games. Trader Ruski, I know you've gambled plenty in California. Do you know what the California games are? And I'm not asking you to explain it, but just are you aware of what they are and how they work? I am. Okay. That's Somewhat how they work, but yeah, yeah. I know what they are. Okay, so let me explain to everybody else who may not know. So California has two different types of casinos. They have Indian casinos, which can mostly operate like a regular Las Vegas-style casino, meaning they can have blackjack, they can have video poker, they can have slot machines. Uh, they can't have certain things. They can't have sports betting. They can't have any dice games, strangely enough. So if you want, they actually have like a simulated craps game sometimes using cards, but they cannot have... Uh, any kind of dice game, by, for whatever reason, that's just in the regulations. But they they can do real casino-style blackjack without any modifications and without any commission or anything like that, just just like you do in Vegas. And real slot machines, real video poker. And if you've been to something like Harris Rincon or one of the other major California casinos that are run by Indians, you'll, you'll it'll look like a small Vegas-type casino. But there are other casinos that are not Indian And they have a lot more restrictions on them. And these are better known as card rooms. Because, number one, they can't have any machines. No video poker, no slot machines, nothing. Not allowed to have them. Number two, they can have table games, but they cannot have table games... uh, They cannot have the same type of table games that you find in Vegas or even at the Indian casinos. They have to have these weird variations of table games... And furthermore, these games cannot be house-banked. Now, what do I mean by house-banked? Well, house-banked means you're playing against the house. So if you win the hand, you win and the house loses. And if you lose the hand, you lose and the house wins, just like in Vegas. Well, they can't have that. They are not allowed by California state law to benefit from the player losing. All they can do is collect a commission on each hand. Then you say, well, okay, if the player loses, then who gets it? Well, that's where the player banking model comes in. So the way that this was allowed to even have these games at all is that it was said that players can bank. So one of the players at the table, instead of acting as a player, can instead act as a banker where everybody at the table is playing against them. So if a player at the table wins, the banker pays them, and if the player at the table loses then the banker wins their money. You might ask, well, wouldn't it be great to always be the banker because the banker has the odds in his favor because aren't casino games always favoring the house? Answer, yes. The banker is positive expectation. 
you may say, well, why not just show up and always be the banker? Well, there's a few reasons. Number one, there's a lot of variance because people can sometimes be making long shot bets on things and you may have to pay out many times the initial bet. So you have to be able to cover that. Also, people may want to play big and they may want to bet the highest the table limits allow, in which case if that person goes on a winning streak and get clobbered. So there's a lot of ways that variance can bite you in the ass in this, even though it's positive expectation to be the banker, meaning you need a pretty deep bankroll to be the banker or it would be pretty reckless to do so. But many people don't want that variance and many people simply just don't have enough money to do it. So then how do you run these games? If a lot of players don't have the money to be banker, then how can they have these player-banked games? Let's say possibly nobody wants to or can bank. Well, this was solved by allowing what's known as a corporation to be involved. The corporation is a third-party company that agrees to bank the games when players don't want to or can't bank. So the corporation is – they hire people to sit there with the corporation's money and bank the games. And that's what these people's jobs are. They show up. They sit down. They bank the games. It's not with their own money. It's with the corporation's money. They're paid an hourly rate working for the corporation. And they bank whenever players don't want to bank or can't bank. And this way the game is always running no matter what, regardless of how many players really want to bank. Now, this may all sound like a good idea to you. I mean, it'd be better if they didn't have all these silly restrictions. The, the casinos, the card rooms, that is, the, the commerce, they're not voluntarily doing it this way. This is what's required of them if they want to run these games. And these are basically all games at commerce or other similar card rooms in California except for poker. Poker doesn't work this way. Poker is just poker. Okay, But any non-poker game is going to be run this way at these California card rooms if they're going to be offering games like that. And these games are lucrative. How does the house make money? Well, I mentioned before, they take a commission each hand. So the player has a pretty raw deal there because they have to both pay a commission each hand and they're also playing a negative expectation, a negative expectation game where even if there was no commission, they would lose in the long run. So it's pretty tough to win as a player even in the short run. But nevertheless, these games are fairly popular and because the house is collecting – uh, like a dollar per hand in uh, – I think that's about what they pay, maybe more. I don't know. I haven't kept up with it. But at least a dollar per hand they're paying in uh, like a commission or a fee, whatever you want to call it, per hand to the house. Then the house makes steady money on this. They don't have to worry about variance. And just every hand that's played, they have guaranteed money they make. So they like having these tables. And – this seems like a good idea on the surface, aside from the fact that it's kind of a stupid regulation in the first place. In my opinion, they should just be able to run Vegas-style casino games. It's stupid to have to do this whole nonsense just to change it around. I mean, gambling's gambling. You know, people are people are at these tables to gamble. So why should it matter if they're playing these weird variations of blackjack with a player banking that's really not player banking because it's the corporation doing it, and then there's a commission taken? All all it's done is the odds are worse for the player, and it hurts the player. But this has been this way for, for many decades. This is nothing new. And there's a reason we're talking about it here on this show, and we've talked about it once before. So here is the first problem, aside from the odds just being crappy for the player. But putting that aside, the first problem is the corporation. Let's think about the corporation here. And the corporation is not just one corporation. There's a number of corporations that do this and compete for the businesses, compete to get the business at these casinos. 
So basically what's happened is that each of these card rooms has contracted with one particular corporation to bank these games. And they go through a negotiation session, and there's a lot of allegations, and I shall say it's allegations. I don't know if it's true, but let me say that I've heard a lot of things, that there are some shady things behind the scenes, such as the corporation agreeing to give some kickback to the card room, such as some of these corporations being shell companies that are actually owned by the card room secretly. Again, I'm not going to present proof. I don't have proof. I haven't researched this, but these are whispers I've heard. So the the corporations, uh, it, it's a very weird and kind of shifty market in the first place. But nevertheless, each card room will contract with one corporation to provide banking for all the games. But another term that is often added is that the corporation always gets to bank. Because the corporation, they're there to bank. They're not just there to pay an employee to sit there twiddling their thumbs, which sometimes they do anyway when the table's empty. But if the game is going, they want to bank the whole time. They don't want to give up banking to the players who might choose to do so. So some card rooms, including Commerce, have agreed not to let players bank, which is a perversion of the entire concept in the first place. The whole point... The whole point of this is that these were supposed to be player-banked games, and these corporations were only allowed because the players wouldn't always want to bank or couldn't bank. But it wasn't that the players just weren't allowed to. These would not have been allowed in the first place if that were the situation. There's no point to have a, a, a law prohibiting the house from benefiting from when the player loses if a third-party company benefits the same way. And they act as the house. Why does it matter directly who's benefiting, especially if the third-party company and the casino have a relationship of some sort where there's kickbacks or there's bribery or where they're just simply a shell company of the casino in the first place? So as you can see, if these corporations are going to exist, then players should be allowed to bank. Well, they do have to allow players to bank. If players say, hey, I want to bank, they have to say yes then how do they stop it? Well, I'm going to play you a YouTube video from, I think, late 2017. It's a pretty old video by now. I'm going to play you a YouTube video from about two years ago of, uh, actually more than two and a half years ago, of a guy who was a banker for a short time at Commerce until he got a rude surprise. If you have been bond from the Commerce Casino for trying to player bang games Baccarat, Blackjack, Ultimate Texas Hold'em, Pygal, please contact me immediately at commerceplayerbankers at gmail.com. I was banned from player banking very recently. I have been contacted by more than a dozen people who have also been banned from the Commerce Casino for attempting to player bang games such as Blackjack, Baccarat, Pie Gal, Ultimate Texas Hold'em, Three Card Poker, Crazy Poker. Anyone familiar with player banking knows that the Commerce Casino cannot ban customers who player bank. We are protected by the Department of Justice. 
I am filing a class action lawsuit against the Commerce Casino for their habit of banning, kicking out, barring people, players who attempt to player bank their games. This is illegal and it will be stopped. I was making good money. They know that. They know that player bankers have an advantage, that they have an advantage of between 5% and 10% house edge when they play your bank, and they want to monopolize that. This is illegal. Again, contact me at commerceplayerbankers at gmail.com. Again, commerceplayerbankers at gmail.com. And tell me what happened to you, what game you were banking, and I will be in touch with my lawyers. Thank you. You may wonder who that guy is. I don't know. It's an Asian guy. He completely covered his face in the video. I'm not sure why he's hiding. Because obviously, Commerce knows they banned him. Maybe they never had his exact identity. I don't know. But he claims he got banned from Commerce. And this video was made in early 2017. So actually, it's getting close to three years old. But I don't think this lawsuit went anywhere. I couldn't find any record of it. Uh, it probably never got going. He did say one thing that was inaccurate. Uh, it's not protected by the Department of Justice that has nothing to do with this. Uh, here's how this is going on. You may wonder, well, how can Commerce and, and other casinos, how can they just violate the law like this and get away with it? Well, there's a few reasons. Number one, the California Gaming Control Commission is very, very weak. It's not player-focused. It's not like the Nevada one. Uh or the New Jersey Commission. Those commissions, if you want a gaming agent to come down at any point of the day or night, they will. You can call them if you have an issue, if you have a complaint, they will come down and they will try to get the complaint solved. And they will rule against the casinos sometimes and they'll even hold hearings if, if the gaming control agent can't get the whole thing solved. You can always ask for a gaming agent in Nevada or New Jersey. In fact, in New Jersey, last I saw... They were actually on-premises, which they're not in Nevada, but in New Jersey, they were actually on-premises. California is the opposite. The California Gambling Control Commission, they're very weak. They don't care. They have their regulations that are only weakly enforced, and really the enforcement mainly has to do with running the games that each casino is supposed to run and not other games, and that they pay all their fees that they've agreed to pay, their licensing fees and so on and so forth. Uh, that's all they care about. They don't care about players getting screwed and things like that, especially the Indian casinos. They don't have the power to do anything about it because uh, their compacts with the tribes allow the tribes to adjudicate those issues, which is terrible. But that's, that's a whole different matter. So how do they get away with this at Commerce, though, and other similar card rooms if these are not Indian casinos? Well... The law only says that they have to allow players to bank if they want to. So they do, except there's a loophole. The loophole says that they can ban anyone at any time for any reason that is not federally protected. Maybe that's what he means by Department of Justice, but he doesn't understand if he says that because federally protected means discriminatory. So they can't ban you for being black or for being gay or for being female or for being old. Anything that's a federally protected category. They couldn't ban you for being a cheap Jew, for example. They, they can't ban you for, for anything that has to do with what you are, your ethnicity, your religion, your, uh, your sexual preference, your gender, your age, things like that, except if your age is too young, they can ban you. But aside from that, 
But that's the only protection you have. Other than that, they can ban you for any reason, similar to how Nevada casinos can also do the same thing. And they don't have to give you a reason. They can just say, we don't like you. Goodbye. And there will be nothing you can do about it. So these card rooms like Commerce figured out, well, hey, if somebody's player banking the games, we can't stop them from doing that while they're in the casino. But what if they're not in the casino? Ha ha ha! What if we just ban them? Well, then they can't play or bank because they can't set foot in the casino to do so. Perfect. So people such as this Asian gentleman who made this video, uh, they can no longer set foot in the commerce or any other similar card room that stops player banking. Now, I will say not all of them stop player banking. Some of them will allow players to bank and not interfere with it. But some of them won't. Commerce is not the only one that does this. In fact, a lot of the large ones behave the same way Commerce does. So I don't want to just single out Commerce here. Commerce is the biggest card room in the world. Commerce does have a very large number of these games. That's why people focus on them. But it happens elsewhere in California, not just Commerce. And is this technically legal? Well, it's definitely violating the spirit of the law. The whole spirit of the law was to not only have player banking, but to where player banking is allowed for anyone who wants to do it. And the card room simply cannot say no. So all they can do is ban you. So if they're banning you for exercising your right to player bank, to me, that seems like a real violation of what the law is intended to do. Even if there's not a specific law, thou shalt not ban someone who tries to player bank. Still, it, it seems pretty close to a violation of the law. And if it's not, then it should be. And it's definitely unethical to do this. If you're running player-banked games, then you should allow people to player-bank. And you shouldn't be so stingy and so greedy as to make these deals with these corporations, these sweetheart deals, to where one of the terms of the deal to make the corporation happy is that they get to bank 100% of the time and if there's any interference in that, people get banned. Very, very bad. I only found this out about uh, a year or so ago when I did this segment on the radio. I saw this video, which was already a year and a half old by that point, the one I just played you. And I was like, wow, I never knew that. Because I'd always kind of thought, hey, you know, I kind of want to play your bank. I'll do that sometime. I just never got around to doing it. And then I saw that video. I'm like, oh, good. I'm glad I never tried to play your bank because I'd be banned. And I had no idea. So that's really, really bad. So, of course, we covered this exact same thing at the end of last year. So why are we doing this again? It's because there's a new development involving this, and it's not about this guy's lawsuit. It's about something different. There's an attempt by Indian casinos to attack the California games of these card rooms involving player banking. And I believe it was inspired, I can't know for sure because I wasn't in the boardroom of these uh, meetings that Indian casinos had, but I have a feeling it was inspired by situations like the one you just heard about. They realized that the whole player banking thing is a farce. And they realized that perhaps they could attack commerce and other card rooms and try to destroy the California games using the fact that the player banking has become a farce. Now, Indian casinos have a lot of power in California. There's a lot of money that gets generated at these casinos, which gives them a lot of lobbying power. And there may even be some bribery involved, who knows. But whatever it is, 
sometimes they can influence things. And they really, really hate the card rooms because the card rooms are competition. Because let's say there were no card rooms. Let's say there was no Commerce, no Bike, no Bay 101. None of these California card rooms existed. Well, if someone from California wanted to gamble but didn't want to go all the way to Vegas or to Reno, what would they do? Hmm, what would they do? Oh, they'd go to a local Indian casino. So now, since they have these card rooms, which have been around for a long time, but since they have these card rooms, people can just go to one of those. And yeah, they can't play video poker, they can't play slots, they can't play real blackjack, but they can play poker, and they can play these weird modified table games. The odds suck, but they can do it. And that does take away business from the Indian casinos. The Indian casinos are very greedy, and they want the very biggest piece of the pie. You, you notice something going on here? We, we have two entities here that are very greedy and unethical and are competing and want to screw each other. So the Indian casinos said, ha-ha, how have we overlooked it for all these years? These player banking games are a farce. The, these are, there's no players banking at most of these things. At Commerce, there's no player bankers at all. If there's any that try, they get banned. Well, let's try to change the law and screw Commerce and screw other rooms like Commerce. So there was a hearing. I don't know the results of it, but there was a hearing two days ago on December 18th, 2019, where there is a new rule change which would require the player banking to be very, very different than it is today. Now, right now, the card rooms can get away with players never banking by simply banning anyone who tries. This new law would change it to where not only would player banking start happening and be allowed, but it would be mandatory. What do I mean by mandatory? Well, mandatory in that players will no longer have the option to turn down banking. So not only can't casinos ban people anymore for banking, if players want to play at all, they have to bank some of the time. And if they refuse, they are required to be ejected from the game, according to these new proposed rules that there was a hearing about two days ago. Here was the proposed rule change that... uh, there was a hearing about two days ago. A game that features a player dealer position shall provide in its rules the following. The player dealer position may only be occupied by a person seated at the table and shall continuously and systematically rotate to another person after every two consecutive rounds of play. The game rules shall specify the means by which the player dealer position is selected at the opening of the new game and upon rotation of the player dealer position to the next person. Any person who refuses to accept the player-dealer position, when it is their turn, shall be excluded from play of that game. If no one accepts the player-dealer position from the person who last occupied it, the game shall stop, and no further play shall be allowed or commenced unless and until another person accepts the player-dealer position. So it's basically saying there's a button that moves around the table for a player-dealer, and that's considered a round once it, once it gets all the way around. And... Uh, It can go around twice with the same player dealer. And once it goes around twice, then two rounds are considered to have passed. And that player dealer must stop being the player dealer. And it must go to somebody else on the table. 
And there have to be two people at the table, by the way, to play, of course. There has to be a, a dealer and a banker, or a player and a banker. So so it's either going to go back and forth or rotate between all the people there, but it has to move every two rounds no matter what. And if it does not move, then the game has to stop. So player A banks for two rounds, then two rounds pass, and they say, okay, player B, it's your turn. If player B goes, duh, I don't want to. It's, it's, it's scary. It's, it's too much variance. Okay, player B, get the hell out of the game. Player C, you're up. Okay, I'll do it. So then player C can stay in the game. But then let's say player C, after a few hands, goes, oh man, this is too scary. I'm, I, I can't, I can't bank. It's too much variance. It's, it's, it's more money than I want to gamble. Okay, I'm out of here. And he leaves. Well, if there's nobody left, the game's over. And until somebody comes back and deals, it doesn't just go back to player A at that point. If, if, it's got to be someone has to fully deal it through. Otherwise, player A cannot have the bank back. So what do you think will happen? What do you think will happen if this rule gets put in place? Again, there was a hearing about it. This is a proposed rule by Indian casinos that they convinced the California Gaming Control Commission to consider and have a hearing about it on December 18th. So what will happen if this becomes the rule, which is really the polar opposite of what's going on right now? Right now, a lot of these rooms don't allow player banking at all. Now, it will be absolutely mandatory, where you either have to player bank or kick, get kicked out of the game, and if there's not everybody willing to player bank at the table, they're kicked out, and then eventually the game will stop. So these are two extremes of this concept. One which is forcing players to bank even if they don't want to, and one which allows the casino to not let anyone bank even if they do want to. So what happens if this rule change takes place? Well, there's a good chance that the California games at all these casinos will simply cease to exist. And really, this isn't a scare tactic. This isn't really something that's something that you would have to say, oh, it's it's paranoia, it's conspiracy theory. No, the truth is a lot of people don't want a player bank. It's going to be hard to have a game continuously going where everyone at the table is willing to player bank. It'll be even hard to maintain a heads-up game where people are going to switch back and forth with player banking. I really could see this killing every single California game, aside from poker, where this doesn't apply. I could see the entire California game section closing down at all of these rooms, like commerce, like the bike, like everything else. So, you might say that the Indian casinos are bad, mean, and no good to do this. In fact, you may fear that commerce may shut down. The bike may shut down. Poker in California may disappear as you know it, if this were to become the new rule. I'm here to tell you that's not going to happen. Now, maybe this will kill some small card rooms that are just getting by and are barely keeping the lights on because of these California games they're running. But for large operations such as Commerce and the Bike, and even ones like Hustler that are more medium-sized, they're not going anywhere because they make plenty of money on poker to keep the doors open. So if they have to shut down those sections, they have to shut them down. They'll make less money, but they'll stay open. You may say, well, yeah, but they're going to raise the rate to compensate. No, that's not how it works. These rooms are not giving you a gift by charging the rake they are, which, by the way, is pretty high. They're not charging low rig. They're charging pretty high rig. But they're not giving you a gift by charging the rake that they are. They are charging the highest rake they feel they can right now 
to where it will not hurt the games and overall cause them to make less money. They fear if they make the rake any higher than it is, that even though they'll collect more per hand, that the games will start to die and that overall they will make less. So, so that's how they adjust the rake. If they felt they could raise the rake and make more money, they would. So they wouldn't just raise the rake because this happened. They, they would already have raised the rake by now, which they have several times. But I'm saying that this is not going to cause them to raise the rake. This is going to cause them to make not as much profit as they did before. So it might sound like I'm on the Indian casino side on this, but I'm not. But I'm also not on commerce's side. I think both sides in this situation suck big time. The Indian casinos are not doing this because they feel bad for the people like this Asian guy who got banned from player banking. They're not doing it for any moral reason. They're doing it because they want to attack the competition. They want the competition gone. They're selfish and greedy. They want you to not have an option to play anything but poker at these card rooms. And if they could shut down poker too, they would. But they can't. But they found what they think might be a way to shut down these California games. That's the reason the Indians are doing it, and no other reason. It's it's just blind greed and anti-competitive practices. However, Commerce and the other card rooms have themselves to blame because they created the situation in the first place by perverting the entire concept of player-banked games. If they simply let people player-bank when they wanted to, then the Indian casinos would have much less of a leg to stand on when insisting that this law is necessary. Because it is true, these games are really not player-banked for the most part, even if players want to bank. And that is a big problem, and that's totally against the spirit of what this whole thing was made for in the first place. So the Indian casinos have a point there, and Commerce did this to themselves. They didn't have to ban people who wanted to player-bank. They were still made plenty of money, and they got too greedy. And they were being anti-competitive. They basically didn't want to compete with the players. So they banned them because they wanted to make more money. And now that chicken is coming home to roost. Now they've made themselves vulnerable. This reminds me a bit of the story of the dog in the bone. It's a story that captivated me when I was five years old, and it's still something I cite today when I see situations like this. In this story, a dog who's holding a bone that he really loves approaches a lake that is so uh, still, it's like a mirror. So the dog looks down into the lake and sees another dog who looks just like him, holding the same bone. Of course, it's his reflection, but he doesn't understand that. He thinks there's another dog with another bone. Well, the dog thinks, well, I like this bone so much. Imagine if I had two. I don't want that dog having the bone. I want two bones. F that dog. I'm taking his bone too. So the dog growled at the dog in the lake, and the dog in the lake growled right back at the exact same time. And he tried everything he could to scare the dog. And anything he did, the dog did right back. Because, of course, it was him. Finally, he thought to himself, the only way I'm going to get that dog to drop the bone is if I make a really loud bark and scare him. So the dog opened his mouth to make a big, loud bark. The bone fell out into the water. And he looked down and saw the other dog also had no bone and realized he'd been looking at his reflection the entire time. So in an attempt... To greedily get two bones, when one was just fine, he ended up with nothing. Well, that will be commerce. Commerce was the dog with the bone. Commerce had a bone that was good and was beneficial and that they were enjoying. 
And the player bankers, it was pretty much like the reflection in the, in the, in the lake. And commerce, by barking at the player bankers and banning them, looks like they may have dropped the bone in the water and now they're going to lose it entirely. I shouldn't say they're going to. This may flop. This may go nowhere. But it also might. In fact, the decision may have already been made. There was a hearing two days ago, and I have not heard the results of it yet because not enough time has passed and they haven't made this public yet. Maybe they haven't made a decision yet. Remember, it's just a hearing. So do not feel sorry for commerce if they lose these games. You can be mad at the Indian casinos because they are not doing this for any kind of noble purpose, but do not feel bad for commerce and realize that they had as much of a part in this as the Indian casinos do. Both sides are greedy. Both sides were awful here. And in a way, it's a little bit satisfying to watch this happen, especially because I know my poker games that I play there will still be going, so I don't have to worry about any negative effect upon me. And if they end up making fewer profits because of this greed that came back to bite them in the ass, well... I only can laugh. Even if the Indian casinos are doing this for bad reasons. Yeah, go on, Trader Ruski. So I think, Druff, because I think way back, they used to have the corporation, but they were just kind of there as a backup, and somebody could come up and deal if they wanted to. I'm I, pretty sure. Th- yeah, back, they did. It, 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 yes, at one point it was, but at some point it changed. I, I don't know when. I, in fact, right. I, I was only made aware of this from that video. And then I thought, well, you know, may, who knows if this guy's telling the whole story? Maybe he was a jerk, or maybe he did something out of line, and he's making up the story. That's why he got banned. You know, we hear a lot of BS banning stories, but then there's been so many different stories all over the web from so many different people, including many who are credible, about commerce banning people and other card rooms in California banning people for trying to play or bank. Not all of them, but I've heard enough stories to where I'm convinced this is going on. No, for sure, and it is just so obvious how, what they're doing, and it's just—it's unbelievable how they get away with it, and just banning people because they want to, because they want to be the dealers, ridiculous. And I just don't know how they can pass the law because if you end up having to take like five times the risk, yeah, it's going to kill the game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, maybe there'll be a few tables, but there'll be more poker tables. Oh, I, th- I think they're just going to shut it all down. If that, if, if they'll, they'll try to appeal it, they'll try to fight it. So it may not be right away, but it's, yeah, it's, if this really becomes the law, then it's not even going to be worth running a section because there's going to be so few games going with this type of rule. Now, it is possible that maybe some hybrid of this will come out. The real rule change that needs to take place. Let me write it for you guys. You listen in California Gaming Control Commission. This is the rule change you need. The rule change you need is that. Any player who wishes to bank may bank and may not be banned for that reason. And if you are banning people only for player banking without a real justifiable reason you can prove as to why you're banning them, that isn't for that, then you will face a steep fine and or potential loss of your license. That needs to be the new rule. Not a required player banking, not the... Ability to ban anyone who player banks, but where anyone who wants to player bank can for as long as they want with no consequence whatsoever and no bans under threat of fines and license forfeiture. That would be a great change in the law. That's what's needed. The Indian casinos know it. Commerce knows it, but neither wants it. Both of them want their greedy solution to get the most possible rather than what's right. They want the most possible for themselves. But that would be the proper solution, an exact middle ground between the two, not 
unavailable player banking and not mandatory player banking. Voluntary player banking with no consequence. That's what was intended. That's what should be. And any other decision is a bad one. Not much more to say. I'll let you guys know when we get further information on this. But there's there's a lot of confusion about this. I'm seeing so many people sharing this one LA Times article on, on Facebook groups and on 2 Plus 2. And I've, I'm seeing a lot of discussion. I have people texting me this article. And the article doesn't mention, by the way, the banning that's been going on at Commerce and elsewhere of, of players' bankers. So this article is, is kind of pro-cardroom, anti-casinos. But as you've heard, there's much more to the story, and both sides suck here. And that's why you should listen to Poker Fraud Alert for the truth, for the unbiased truth in these situations. Because often you don't get the full story from other places, but you always do here. And if I ever analyze something incorrectly, I'm willing to come back and issue those corrections and admit I was wrong. I only only want the accurate truth to come out on the show. And I, I kiss ass to no one, and I'm not afraid to ever state what's really going on. And I don't like what's going on at the California card rooms with this, even though I have never played a California game in my life and don't plan to. So it doesn't really personally affect me, except the fact that I probably would bank if I could. Like I'd just been kind of thinking about doing it and then I found that video. And I'm like, oh crap, never mind. <laughs> uh, if this were to really destroy commerce or the bike, yeah, I... I would be upset about it because those are the places to play limit hold'em at decent stakes. And without those, that would kind of suck. So, yeah, that would kind of make me upset. But it's not going to destroy them, so I don't care. And whatever they lose from this, they deserve. But kind of at the same time, I don't really want to see the Indian casinos gaining from this either. Like, I don't even know who to root for. I really think both sides suck here. I would love to see a common sense law like what I just suggested to put be put in place, but I don't think it's going to happen. And I don't want to really see the Indian casinos win. They don't deserve it. And I don't want to see the card rooms win. They don't deserve it. Both are acting crappy. And it is pretty amazing to see, like, how long this has been going on. Isn't there supposed to be, like, a gambling enforcement or whatever the governing body is? I mean, imagine them trying to explain this in court, what they've been doing. Oh, I know. It's insane. That's that's why, like, I... That's why I say this is such a weak commission, because any commission with the slightest bit of integrity and common sense would say, hey, this is BS. Quit banning people. First of all, Indians, no, get the hell out of here. You're trying to destroy the games. We see what you're trying to do. Get out. We're not passing your crappy version. But number two, commerce, you guys are screwing up. You guys are greedy. You guys are banning people trying to bank. That's not intended. You do that shit again, you're in trouble. That's what they should be saying. And this isn't rocket science. It's not not like it takes a, a genius to figure this out. I'd love to pat myself on the back and think I'm the only guy in the world who could figure this out, but I'm not. All of you could figure this out. And and even with the corporation, it's like having an unlicensed business. I mean, either they own them and that's illegal, or it's like a third-party business, and that's, that's illegal. I mean, yeah, it should be. I, 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 the corporations are allowed. It's like, I understand why they're allowed there. See, the, here, here's how it evolved, for those of you wondering. Here's how it evolved. They didn't want the house dealing the games where the house has the uh, incentive to win because this way the house could mark cards or, or, or put in decks that are uh, not real decks that don't have 52 cards or have uh, certain cards more than others that benefit the casino. There's a lot of shady things the casino could do to screw the player. And California's like, look, we, we don't want to have to deal with all this crap. We're going to take away that incentive from casinos to make players lose. 
and similar to poker, make it to where the card rooms just, they don't care who wins and loses, they just take a commission each hand. So that part's fine. But then, of course, there was a good question of, well, how these games go if most people don't want to bank? Okay, well, yeah, I guess you can hire a corporation to do it. Okay, fine. And then it, it fell apart from there because of these backroom deals between the corporation and the card rooms to where a lot of rooms just don't let anyone bank at all. And this was never, never what was intended. In fact, what was intended is that, hey, this actually gives the players the rare chance to be the house, which is kind of cool. But no, they don't have that chance in most places anymore, which is not kind of cool. It kind of sucks. It's funny. I'm surprised I haven't done it in all these years. I always kind of like thought of like, hey, I should do this, and I just never get around to trying. And just as I was thinking about trying like around last year, I happened to find that video. I go, oh, never mind. That's what happened. But like, I'm totally a person who, who would do this and does have the bankroll to withstand it. it. It would suck if I banked a game and someone was betting big and killed me. Like, here's an example of what would suck if I were banking. Uh, a few times ago when I went to Commerce, I played 6120 and there was a big fish in the game. And this big fish was getting very low on chips. He was down to like 400 bucks at 6120. I don't know how much more he had behind, but that's what he had on the table, which is like nothing in that game. He saved his seat and then stood up, took his $400, and we thought maybe he's going to get more chips or something. He comes back with $12,000, and he ran up the 400 into 12 k at one of those games. So you can imagine how everybody at the 6120 felt about this. <laughs> A nice infusion of cash wow. into that game. Now, he didn't... Yeah, he didn't love in that. Yeah, now, he, did, he, did, he actually... The funny thing is he actually didn't do, do bad from that point. He just ran pretty well, so even though he was awful, he, he didn't lose. But we were still happy to see it, that he came back with that money. It would suck to be the banker in that one. The corporation, they, they bank all the games, so it doesn't hurt them much. That just kind of averages out. But, like, if I were to do it, I'd just be at one particular table, and it would just suck if some fish sits down and beats me at a 12,000. But, hey, that, you know, that happens in poker. That happens in poker where some fish just beats you. So it's not that much different. A little more variance, but... And, and you adjust that. You, like, you, you figure out what i'm not sure i think there's different limits at different tables and yeah i would i would try to bank at ones that i think are high enough to be worth my time but not so high that it would be really brutal if somebody gets really lucky on me but i'd be a, a good candidate to do this and if i felt it was a little too high maybe i could go in with a partner who takes down some of the variance from me but i can't i would be banned i would love to see this law change then i i think i would give it a try only thing is a little bit boring like, I can play a long session of poker at Commerce, and I'm not bored. I'm, I'm never bored when I, when I play poker at Commerce. There, there's other negative emotions I'll have there. The people are sometimes crappy and in bad moods. The dealers are sometimes not nice. Uh, the place kind of has a stressful vibe. Uh, if I'm losing, I'm not happy. But I'm not bored. I'm never bored there. Even though there are like many hours, I'm not bored. But I think I would be bored just sitting at the table. But I, I think some of the boredom would be alleviated by the fact that I'm – Risking real money. So how boring could that be? The reason I say it would be boring compared to poker is you're really not – as a banker, you're not making decisions. And that takes away some of the fun of the whole thing. And I do see a lot of them just sitting there with no players. Right. You probably have to be running around, finding the active games. Right. That's the other problem. Else. Yes, yeah. that's the other problem. They are just sitting around a lot where the game's not running. So you do have to just sit and twiddle your thumbs there. Whereas at uh, poker, if, if that's going on, you can just – switch games or go home or like you're not required to sit at one table but 
there's, there's only so many options you'll have of games that are the right limits for what you want. So I, I haven't tried it yet. Interestingly, on Real Grinders recently, somebody banked, I think, at Ocean's Eleven and enjoyed it, even won some money. And he talked about his experience, and I guess they must not be banning people there. People were talking in that thread about being banned from commerce. I I wouldn't go all the way to Ocean's Eleven. That's in the San Diego area. All right, so I'll let you guys know what happens from there. But a lot of times with these stories, you never know the truth behind it until you hear the full story from Poker Fraud Alert. And by the way, any story you'd like me to cover, feel free to bring to me. This was originally brought to me shortly after our last show over two weeks, almost two weeks ago, or exactly two weeks ago. And then like like two days later, I got a text about it before anyone was talking about this. In fact, I'll tell you who – no, actually, I won't tell you who texted me. I'm not sure if they want that known. Okay, moving on to our next subject. I'll talk about Peter Zup Jepson, who was – convicted of cheating in online poker using Trojan horse programs. Pretty bad. So Zup, whose real name is Peter Jepson, was a European poker player who was pretty well known in online poker high-stakes circles and thought to be really, really good. He was crushing the games. He was from Denmark, by the way. He was crushing the games from 2008 through 2014. And it was just thought that he's a really excellent player. Well, it turned out what he was doing was going to EPT events, the European Poker Tour, and finding ways into fellow players' rooms and installing... Uh, Trojan horse programs on their laptops that would allow him to see their screen. And then he would see what cards they had. And of course he could play optimally against them and just absolutely destroy them. Supposedly he installed the programs in Copenhagen, Las Vegas, Aarhus, and Berlin. He also had accomplices such as an IT worker who actually also worked for the Danish police. And various others, I heard even some females were indicted related to the matter. I wonder if the females like talked their way into the rooms in the first place or feigned interest in these guys, and then when the guys would leave, they'd let him in to do this. Uh, I have to imagine the IT worker... Well, they could have been banging them, when he, and then he'd sneak in. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Yeah, the guy's like... Did I hear something? Is someone coming in our room? Oh, no, 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 no. You're just... That's just me. That's just me moving on you really hard. Oh, okay. Okay. No problem. And then he's like, tap, 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 tap. <laughs> I'm putting on, on the Trojan. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how he was getting these rooms, but he was at these events and he knew... It, some of these were his friends he did this to. Some of these were acquaintances, but anyone who he's, he could access their room and their computer in some way without being watched could be in one of many ways. They leave him in the room and trust him. Uh, a girl gets in the room and yeah, maybe talks the guy out into leaving and then lets him in in some way. Uh, who knows? But basically, he got into these rooms at these stops and would put the programs on. Maybe he even bribed the maids. Who knows? But he was doing this, and he did it for six years, from 2008 through 2014. 
Well, finally, he has been sentenced for this. So here is a translation of a Danish article about it. And what's weird here is that they don't even name him, though he's definitely the one. But for some reason, the law in Denmark is that you are not allowed to name someone who was convicted of a crime. Even if if they were guilty, you're still not allowed to name them in the media because of privacy concerns. (laughs) Which is absolutely insane that you can't name criminals. If someone's a convicted criminal, then yes, they should be named. Yes, the public should have a right to know. And that's that. Like that's, when a court of law says you're guilty, at that point, you are guilty. And anyone who says you're guilty, this is in the U.S., anyone who says you're guilty cannot be uh, accused of libel or slander because a court of law has said you are guilty. And that makes you guilty in the eyes of the law, which makes sense. And then you can be named and, and described as guilty and there's nothing that can be done. And, and that's pretty much the, the case with – unless there's – with civil cases, that's the case too, unless there's some kind of uh, agreement not to reveal something. Uh, with civil cases, if you win a civil case, you're also welcome to come forward and uh, post everything about it because the court has decided. But in, in apparently in Denmark, you're, you can't be named. But it's known who this is. It's definitely about him. Here we go. For several years, a professional poker player committed fraud against other players after installing a spy program on their computers. On Monday, the Copenhagen city ruled in a sentence that the man has been sentenced to unconditional imprisonment for two years and six months. The convicted person also also got confiscated 26 million Danish krone, the city of court reports. The criminal case was launched in May, this is, uh, 2019, and is about the man's activities in relation to other players from 2008 through 2014. I'm not sure what took five years in this, but there we go. The defendant is largely convicted of the charge of fraud and hacking. The illegal profits that, that are confiscated are estimated at 26,376,929 Danish krone, which is equivalent to about 3.93 million U.S. dollars. I'd like to say it's estimated and say an exact number. <laughs> at the sentencing, the court stated that the imprisonment for three years is actually an appropriate penalty, but six months have been deducted from the sentence because the case has been long overdue, said the prosecutor in the case, Lisette Jorgensen. I, I think what they're trying to say here is that uh, maybe that's like a time served. I, I know that they're supposed to get these heard quickly in Denmark, and it was about six months between the time that uh, the case was launched, but I don't know when he was actually arrested. It's a little bit unclear from this article, but in any case, they deducted six months, maybe because he was in jail all this time. Who knows? So it's, he's got an additional two and a half years to serve, even though the sentence was three years. The defendant has been protected by name bans and thus continues – and this continues to apply, the prosecutor said. That's talking about what I just said. The man on the spot has appealed to the Eastern Lands Court where he demands an acquittal. <laughs> in, in a previous hearing, it emerged that – that it was his old friend who went to the police with, an, with the unusual review. Three witnesses, one man and two women, have told the court that the man admitted to them that they have installed the spyware on other players' computers. The confession fell during a stroll by one of the lakes in Copenhagen. How does that happen? How does that happen? So apparently I think that's what must have gotten the whole thing to happen five years later is that they're, they're walking by a lake. I wonder if it was with a dude or with one of the women. I don't know who it was. But you're taking a stroll down the lake. 
Oh, isn't this a nice uh, walk on the lake? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Very, very nice walk on the lake. Yes, it's. Uh, so, what's new with you? Oh, nothing. Just spending the money I cheated people out of with, with putting Trojan horses on their computer from 2008 to 2014. What? Yes, yes, yes. I, I put this on their computer. I stole, uh, I stole 26 million krone. Oh, okay. Well, that's nice to hear. Okay. Yeah, well, I, I've got to go somewhere that's not the police station. Okay, bye. Like, what the hell? A stroll by one of the lakes? Of all things, is where he reveals this. Why? Why would you ever say that? I get unless he's trying to impress one of the women. But why would you? How would that ever impress anybody? Wouldn't wouldn't it be much more impressive that you just crush everyone in poker? Like why would you admit this to anybody if you did this? It's so strange. Uh, now the male witness is someone who's a victim of it. He said the, the the male witness said he says he installed the program to see my cards. As previously mentioned, the convicted person has pleaded not guilty. About his career, he says he got a taste for betting money through card games in the mid-zeros. Gradually, he became so good at the game that he could make a living from it. He was completely engrossed. In the beginning, before I had a girlfriend, I probably played for periods of 16 hours a day. That was the first thing I did in the morning. Then I went back and forth between the computer and the toaster, he said. (laughs) Between the computer and the toaster. According to the verdict, in addition to the 26 million krone... He has to pay almost uh, $800,000 to a person. right? Yeah. So if this seems like awkwardly worded, it's because it's translated. But it looks like the 800000 is going to be to somebody he cheated. And they also confiscated $3.93 million. But I don't think that's going back to the cheated people. I think the government is just keeping that. It definitely is about Peter Jepsen. And there have been people discussing this on 2 Plus 2. Doug Polk, I believe, has previously accused this guy of putting a Trojan on his computer. Doug Polk uh, stayed with him. And when Doug Polk was in the shower, he put this on his his computer. That's what Doug Polk said years ago, I, I believe. I believe it's the same guy. Also, in 2013... Peter Jepsen was involved in another cheating controversy. Not quite as bad, but he was accused of multi-accounting in order to beat Victor Isildur Blom heads up of $800,000. I don't know if that's the same 800000 that they're going to be uh, making him pay back to the, quote, one victim. But uh, I don't think so, because that, that victim actually got it back after reporting it. But... Uh, that session took place in 2009, and at the time, the big concern was that Isildur was playing what he thought was one person, but in reality, uh, Jepsen and his friend named uh, Robert uh, Flink were taking turns playing Isildur under the same account. And they were not only comparing notes on the Isildur, but also Isildur was having a hard time getting a handle on the play styles because he was playing two different people and didn't realize it. And one of those two people was Peter Jepsen. But I believe that money got seized when that was found out by the poker site in question. However, it does bring up further questions that perhaps Jepsen and his partner, Robert Flink, perhaps they didn't just win because they had two different play styles that confused Isildur. Perhaps they also had a Trojan on Isildur's computer. So this is bringing up has brought up new questions about that match. This, this guy really is a piece of crap, this uh, Peter Jepsen.
there was some uh, concern over the years about why Peter Jepson did seem to be doing so well at uh, online poker, but but couldn't seem to really translate it to winnings live. Uh, he's won some live, but uh, he's only has four live caches lifetime over a period of a number of years. And uh, the funny thing, who's, uh, we were actually uh, in an event together. In 2006, he won, or he came in third place at the Caribbean Poker Classic in St. Kitts. I was like the second bubble boy in that one after finishing fourth the year before. I was the second bubble boy, and I was really frustrated because I lost a giant pot of king high against queen high when we both missed a draw. And I almost bet the river when the guy checked to me. Because I had a feeling he had a missed draw and was going to fold. So I was really frustrated because I was a huge pot. And then I ran my short stack with tens against queens and I was out. But he ended up winning that or finishing third in that one for 165,000. That was in 06. In 07, he entered a uh, an EPT event and won 415K winning the event. But aside from that, he has two other scores, one in 08, one in 12, in the ten dollars to $13,000 range, and that's it. So during this period from 08 to 14, he failed to win more than $23,000 total in live caches. And it, people couldn't understand why this online crusher couldn't seem to really translate it to playing in person. Now, I'm not saying he was a fish, but he just wasn't the crusher that he was online, and I think we know why now. And that I, I really think this match with Isildur probably was rigged the same way. Like, why, why play Isildur otherwise? Yeah, you can confuse him with a, with a different play style, but if you're able to play opponents where you're, you're seeing their whole cards, why take the chance playing Isildur where you can't see his whole cards, even if you're multi-accounting? So I think that was probably a cheating match, too. I think the guy pretty much only played when he could cheat. That's my guess. So it sounds like this came to light years later when he's walking by the lake and admitted it. I think from what I heard that he admitted it to the victim. But why? That's what I don't know. Why would he ever admit to that? Even if you're accused of it, why would he admit to it? Why not just say, no, you're crazy, I didn't do that? If you're, if you're going to go as far to cheat your friends... And to install Trojans on people's computers and, and, and rip them off of millions of dollars over the years. Like, like, why would you just admit to it five years later? Very strange. Very, very strange. And at a walk by the lake of all things. It's not like he was cornered in a, in a room and he's afraid he's going to get beaten up if he doesn't admit the truth. Yeah, they're, they're taking a walk by the lake and he, he owns up to it. Is that – maybe they should replace the police interrogation rooms and just install beautiful lakes in front of all police stations. And you can just – they could take a nice walk by the lake with anyone who's accused of a crime, and they'll just own up to everything. Just spill his guts. Well, he could have been walking with his friend by the lake, and he's like, oh, man, I just can't do anything right. I suck at poker. I'm quitting, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, well, listen, you know, you're, you're not that bad. I have to admit something. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like, what? You motherfucker? We're right to the police. Yeah, he's, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, you're a pretty good player. The reason you lost so much money to me was because, and the reason you question your whole play style is because I was kind of cheating with seeing your whole cards back then. But hey, it's been five years. We're good buddies now, right? Ah, so weird. 
I think actually the sentence should be longer given the amount of money that was stolen, but at least he's getting something. Yeah, at least it looks like they're taking close to four million from him, but I, I think that should be given back to the victims, unless it is and it's just not saying that, but it kind of seems like it's not. But who knows? It's it's a translated article and finding out what I can. If you guys know anything, you can text me 775-372-8355 and I will report it on the show. All right, let's move on to the next subject. Got 13 more subjects to cover. I want to talk about what I discovered from a New York Times article that you guys should all be aware of because it affects pretty much everybody. And when I say everybody, I really mean everybody, unless you don't have a smartphone, which I I would actually venture to guess that every single person who listens to this show has a smartphone. I would think if you're listening to an internet show about poker and gambling that you have a smartphone. So if you have a smartphone, then this affects you, and it's important to know about. And this isn't conspiracy theory. This is something that was proven by the New York Times. And even if you don't like the New York Times, I know Trump calls it the failing New York Times, and I know that they have a bias often, and there's been a lot of controversy involving them, some of which is deserved. But this was a nonpartisan article. This one looks very, very legitimate and reputable, this article. And I think you guys should be aware of this and go read the whole article, which I'll tell you how to find. And you'll see that this is something pretty disturbing. If you go to the article on the New York Times, if you Google New York Times location tracking cell phone, New York Times location tracking cell phone, you can find the article you can click on. And... This article goes on to describe that they got a big data dump. I don't know how they got it, but they got it. Of a database of information of locations that were gotten from cell phones that were saved. They may say, well, where are they getting these locations? Well, think about apps you use, whether it's a weather app or a mapping app or even a fast food app that wants to tell you where the closest McDonald's is, or the closest Jack in the Box is. There's a lot of apps that ask to use your location. And you usually have to give it permission. But once you give it permission, you think that's pretty much it. You think, okay, well, I'm giving them permission to know where I am. And, and okay, it has a purpose. Okay, the McDonald's app wants to know where I am so it can tell me the closest McDonald's. And the, the map app, of course, that has to know where I am to help me see, you know, see where I am on the map and help me navigate uh, where I'm going. And the weather app yeah, has to know where I am, so it tells me where the weather, what the weather's like where I am currently. So you give permission to these apps. And the way you probably picture it in your head is that you're allowing the app to see where you are. And you probably think, at worst, the owners of the app see your address. But you think, okay, what are they going to do with that? And why are they going to really care about it? So whatever, I'll, I'll give access. In fact, in some cases, if you don't give access, the app won't work at all or won't work right. So you give a lot of these apps access. So you probably picture, as I said, that the app owner, the developers of the app, are the ones that see this information if they want to. But there's so many people whose information they see, and you're probably not that worried about what happens with that location data. Well, what if, what if 
these were not being saved by the specific app? What if these were being harvested by third-party companies that these apps were using to look up your location? See, what if these apps don't want to put out the time and effort and expense to write their own uh, procedures to look up your location? Which a lot of them don't, which most of them don't. So they use these packages known as SDKs, Software Development Kits, which are run by third parties, and they just plug them into their apps. And these apps, and these SDKs give the location information right to them without them having to put the effort into developing a portion of the app to look up and process your location. So it's very useful and easy for these developers to do, and just about all of them do it that way. Well, the problem is, what about these owners of these SDKs? What are they doing? Well, they're not just providing the location information. They're providing it and saving it to a giant database file. And this database file contains the exact location. And when I say exact, I really mean the exact location of where the phone is, how long the phone stays there. So it sees whether your phone is there for just two minutes or if it's there for an hour or there for eight hours and it knows how long you're at each location. And the way each phone is identified is by what's known as an advertising identifier. And this is a little advertise. It's a little identifier that's given to each phone that isn't directly linked to each phone. So they don't know right away whose phone belongs to each advertising identifier. And the, the person who owns the phone can actually change their identifier if they want, though most people don't. Most people don't even know, even know it exists. But these companies make the excuse of, look, we're just collecting a lot of data, but we don't know who the data belongs to, so it's fine. We just have advertising identifier, you know, whatever, 1AS, 45S, B, C, D, whatever, you know, whatever their identifier is. We have that, and that's how we identify the location data and store it, but we don't know who that connects to. That's their excuse as to why this is okay. It's not really violating anyone's privacy if they're not connecting this to any specific individual. But might there be a way to translate the advertising identifier to a person's real identity? And might there be a way to do this in an automated fashion where it doesn't require a human being to painstakingly do it for each one? Because what the New York Times got was a file of 12 million different smartphones. So obviously they're not going to have a human being looking this information up for each person. But what if there's an automated way to take these advertising identifiers and translate that into the identity of a real person? Well, this is location data, remember? Where do you spend the most time every day on the average day? Trader Risky, any ideas? Where do you spend the most time every day? At home. At home. At home. Right at home is correct. So if they notice that you're in one location for a very long time, eight hours or more every day, that especially if it's during the nighttime, and if the majority of the day is that's where you are, 
then that is assumed to be your home. And right away, that can be looked up in various reverse directory databases and figure out who you are, or at least who you are, at least among a few different people. Maybe four people live in your house, but it can be figured out who you probably are. And then there's other things that can be used, such as, where's another place you might go? Your job. So if they see you going from a single-family house to a specific business every day, all an automated program would have to do is look up who lives in that house, then look up who works at that business, which there's ways to find, including if you voluntarily provide it on social media such as LinkedIn. And then they have identified who that person is with that anonymous identifier. And there's many other ways they can do it. There's also trading of information between owners of these apps where someone signs up for something. So you have an identifier which every app can access. And then if you sign up for an account on a particular app and give your name and email address, well, now they can associate the two. And if they trade this information with each other, then you can be identified again. So there's a lot of different ways that a computer just analyzing easily accessible data can connect an advertising identifier to you. The New York Times attempted to do this themselves manually, not with a computer analyzing it, but they would just pick out random smartphones that were found in this data set of 12 million smartphones in various cities around the country, including New York and Los Angeles. And they would look at the data, the location data they had, and try to figure out from that who the people were. And in every case they said, anyone they chose to focus on, they were able to quickly determine the actual identity of who it was. They also were able to identify celebrities. They were able to identify high-ranking members of the military. They were able to identify reporters for major publications, which I'll explain in a second why that matters. They were able to see interesting patterns of people, such as guys who seem to be cheating on their wives. They'd find a guy who is going from home to work, but uh, before going home would stop at some kind of sleazy motel before going back home, and from everything they could see, he was still married. And they found evidence of who was a prostitute. They found women that kept going from where they lived to various motels nearby and spending a few hours there and coming back home. Hmm, wonder what that might be. And they saw a lot of information on celebrities, where they hung out, what they typically did with their day, when they leave the house, where they typically go. They thought, hey, if we wanted to stalk these celebrities, we could easily do it with this. They were able to find, just grabbing random phones there, so much information from this one data file they had. A tiny sliver of all the data collected they found so many things, the New York Times. They did not name anybody except for a few who agreed to be named. For example, they found in uh, the Seattle area, a guy left his job at 2 p.m. one day from Microsoft and went over to Amazon's headquarters. And then they checked and they saw two weeks later, he switched jobs from Microsoft to Amazon. Hmm. What was happening there? So they contacted the guy and he's like, yeah, 
you got it. That's what happened. I went to Amazon for an interview, and they hired me, and I immediately gave my two weeks' notice, and then I started my job over at Amazon. Not scandalous or anything. I mean, people switch jobs all the time, but they actually found that during the workday, he went over to uh, he went over to Amazon for an interview and switched to them. But what if employers had access to this data, and they could see if you were visiting competitors, perhaps thinking of leaving, and they could fire you first? What if uh, people were to use this information to stalk ex-spouses or ex-lovers? What if people were to use this information for blackmail? You know of someone who's wealthy, who has been cheating on his wife, and definitely doesn't want to get a divorce because it'll cost him a lot of money. And you go to that guy and you say, look, I have the location information on everything. I've got all the goods about not only that you've been cheating, but who you've been cheating with. And I'm going to spill all this to your wife unless you pay me $250,000. The guy might do it. What about the reporters? Let's think about the reporters. A lot of times reporters will meet with people in secret who are giving them anonymous information, information that could cost them their job for revealing or... uh, information that might put them in danger, revealing. Reporters meet with anonymous sources or sources that do not want their identity printed and is respected by the reporter. This happens all the time, and this has been the way it has operated since the beginning of the press. Imagine if somebody had access to all the location data of all the smartphones and could track the movements of the reporter and then could track who was going to meet the reporter which would not be hard with access to all that data. In fact, the New York Times, again, did it and successfully identified who was going to meet with these reporters. So what if that information was accessible? And what if those who had access to this information were to sell this to those who might want to know about it? Can you imagine all the damage that could be done with this information? You could come up with a million scenarios in your head about how this could be abused. Now, who has access to it? Are these people with top-secret security clearances of the government? No. Are these people at least working for the government in some way? No. Are these people bound by any laws that prevent them from disclosing anything that they've seen? No. These are third-party companies that you probably haven't heard of. One of them is Foursquare. You've probably heard of them. But the rest of them, you'll see in the New York Times article, you'll you'll not have heard of any of these. And the reason it matters you haven't heard from them is you you haven't heard of them is they don't have any kind of public relations disaster that could hit them if they abused any of this because they don't have an image to uphold. So these are companies that are mostly unknown, Unknown meaning just unknown to the public and aren't really customer-facing. They're under no laws or regulations as to what they can do with the data. Now, they can't commit blackmail or other things like that, but people could go rogue and do it anyway. But there's no laws against what they are doing regarding the collection, the mass collection of all location data from your smartphone and location data that directly connects to these advertising IDs, which as I just described, can be then translated into your real identity. 
Now, you may still say, well, I don't care. I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm not a reporter. I'm not doing anything wrong at work or going to other companies. Uh, I'm not doing anything I'm ashamed of. I don't care if people know what I do with my day. I'm a pretty boring person. I, I, I'm at home for most of the day. I go to work. I come home. I go to a restaurant sometimes. I go bowling sometimes. I go to the movie sometimes. I hang out with my friends sometimes. I don't give a crap. Let them, let them know about these things. I, there's nowhere I go that I don't want people to know about, you may say. Well, let me tell you something. Right now, you are not worried about people knowing these things. But what if you have a stalker? You may say, well, I don't have a stalker. I have no reason to have a stalker. But you, you could. Stalkers don't always come because of any fault of your own. You can have a stalker for one of many weird reasons that where you've done nothing wrong. Maybe a guy becomes obsessed with your wife and starts stalking you to get rid of you in some way. Maybe someone at work takes a dislike to you. Maybe someone gets in a car accident with you and, and feels that you screwed them in some way and they want to ruin your life. You may say, oh, come on, this is not going to happen to me. Well, I once had this conversation with someone 20 years ago, as I alluded to in the opening to this show. I was dating a girl who, not too long into the relationship, we, we started going out in 1999, not too long into the relationship, uh, she was complaining about the horrendous traffic of driving from Orange County to Los Angeles. And I said, well, you know, it is closer to work if you lived with me, and there's much less traffic going the direction from where I am to your work, so it'll be a much easier commute. And I, I felt a little funny saying that because I, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to take it to the living with her point in the relationship because the relationship was already kind of flawed. And in hindsight, I shouldn't have, but I did. So she said, okay, yeah, let's move in together. And it, it also, the cheap Jew in me liked it because she was going to cover half the rent. But uh, I said to her one thing, though, before we agree to do this. One little thing. I see that you're in the phone book with your full name, full phone number, full address printed, super easy to find. I can't have that. And she says, what do you mean? Why, why can't I do what I want? I said, you can, but not if you live with me. Because once people know that you're associated with me, which won't take that long, then if they want to find me, they just look you up. And I, I don't want that. I don't want to keep you a secret to where no one knows I'm with you, but I don't want people to be able to just look you up to find me. I like keeping my privacy. I like keeping out of all these uh, directories. I don't want it to be as simple as opening up the phone book to find me. So she says, oh, you're so paranoid. I'm, it's, it's like, she was really, really frustrated with this and almost didn't move in for that reason. Finally, I convinced her because I said to her, look, uh, who, who needs this information? When was the last time someone looked you up in the phone book where you said, wow, I'm glad I'm in the phone book and they could find me? Said, well, uh, yeah, it hasn't happened yet. I go, see, like, believe me, you're keeping people away. It's much more valuable to keep unwanted people away than, than the rare case that someone's going to want to find you and, and can't. So she said, well, look, I, I don't have anyone trying to find me. I have nobody stalking me. I have no enemies. I, I don't worry about this. I, I, you, you and your weird online world, of course you've got weird people that you want to hide from, but not... Not me, she says. And I said, you never know. You never know what will happen in the future. And once it happens in the future, 
you can't put the info back if it's already out there. And she said, oh, come on. I said, well, look at, let's say you get in an accident with someone and they're unhappy about something that happened with the accident. You want them having their home address to keep hassling you? She said, well, okay, well, no. But I said, well, well, just any, let's say just some weird guy starts stalking you. You want him to just look up where you are? Well, no, but it hasn't happened. I go, well, could it happen? Well, I guess. So I convinced her with, with those hypotheticals. But she still was very, very skeptical and thought I was just crazy. She just kind of, she kind of relented because she kind of saw my point, but for the most part, she thought I was crazy. Well, then about four months later, she worked as a claim suggester. About four months later, she denied a woman's uh, workers' comp benefits, and the woman went crazy. And she got a call from a psychologist and said, I have to tell you this by law. My patient, whose claim you denied last month, has thought about you constantly all day and all night and wants to kill you. And she stated that her intention is to come down to your house, shoot you dead, and then shoot herself dead. Unfortunately, because no actual threat had been made, there wasn't much that could be done. They couldn't just arrest this woman because she, she hadn't actually done anything. She had just told her psychiatrist, her, her psychologist, that these are the thoughts she's having, that she really wants to do it. In fact, she was telling the psychologist, saying, like, you know, how do I stop this? I, I don't want to think this way. I don't want to kill someone, but all I can think all day is I, I want to kill this woman for denying my workers' comp claim. And that's all I can think about. I'm, I'm really starting to think I might do it. So this is pretty scary to get a call like that. But guess what? She had just moved in with me. And if you tried to look her up in the phone book, you'd find that old address, but not the new one. What about forwarding? What if the woman was smart enough to look at the forwarding address? Nope, the forwarding address was going to a P.O. box. There was no way to look her up. She wasn't in the phone book. There weren't any utilities in her name. There was really nothing that could be done to look up where she was. And she felt so good. She thanked me profusely for having pressured her to do this. And she said, now I understand. Now I know what you meant by you can't put the info back once it's out there. And they, they posted they posted like guards at her work to make sure the woman didn't come there. So they, they, they guarded her at work. But uh, at home, she didn't have anything to worry about because the woman had no way to find her. And can you imagine if she was right there in the phone book to be found, how terrified she would have been? Like, how can you even fall asleep when there's a person telling their psychologist that they really are strongly thinking of killing you and then killing themselves? And you're right there in the phone book. I mean, she would have had to move. So you never know when something like that comes up. So that's why you give a crap. That's why, that's why you don't just say, oh, I don't care who has this info about me. Because let me give you another example. It's a hypothetical one. Uh, you, you have places that you like to go, places that you may go to often. You may have certain patterns of places you go to on certain days, days of the week, days of the month, whatever. Um, I, you don't want someone who wants to do harm to you to know that much about you to know that much about your life. It makes you very vulnerable. So if 
there is somebody later on that has it in for you. You don't want them having access to that stuff. It's just as information that should never be out there. That's the point. Whether you care at the moment of it being out there, it just shouldn't be there because it can be used for something harmful later. And unfortunately, there, there's no way to really stop it. But there are some things you can do to make it tougher for these companies to make profiles on you. By the way, you may wonder, why are they doing this? They are doing this for advertising purposes. They are doing this to put together a profile on customers so they know what ads to serve you on your smartphone and stuff like that. And that's why sometimes freaky things will happen where you walk into a store, don't buy anything, don't interact with anybody, walk out, and then your smartphone has an ad for that store even if you never look that store up on your smartphone. That's why that can happen because they will see that you have been there. That's where those creepy things happen. What about the claim people have that the smartphone is listening and that if you mention something that you see an ad about it later on and that there's no way it could know that if it wasn't listening to you? Well, I think a lot of that is people forgetting. To my knowledge, there's no such thing as the smartphones listening to you and grabbing your voice and then serving you ads based upon those items. And I've never had it happen to me like that. I've always been able to figure out why it was serving me those ads. Like I did a search. And and where it can throw people off is maybe their wife did this. Like you mentioned to your wife, uh, like, like, hey, you know, I may want to go to Big Five Sporting Goods later to get a uh, toboggan. And your ma, your wife quickly looks up Big Five Sporting Goods Toboggan and sees what they're selling for there and then forgets she did. And then like three days later, you see an ad for a toboggan at Big Five Sports. You go, oh, my God, it's listening to me. Well, no, your wife just forgot she entered it in the home computer or the, the laptop, whatever you have, and it used the same IP address as the Wi-Fi you connect to on your smartphone. So that's that's why it's serving you the same ad. Like that's how it can happen with with you not realizing that you did give it a clue. So I don't think your smartphones are listening to you. I can't say for sure. Maybe we'll find out later they are, but I don't think they are. But definitely your locations are being tracked and stored to create an advanced advertising profile on you. And unfortunately, this can also be used for very, very sinister purposes. And there's no kind of regulation as to who can access that data or what they can do with it, other than they just can't break the law regarding blackmail laws or whatever. So here's some tips I'm going to give you on how to make this tougher for companies like these to track you. Number one, do not give your location permission to apps which don't actually need your location. Now, that's easier said than done, of course, but take a moment to consider whether the app actually needs your location to function properly. And if uh, it may just be a minor inconvenience if it doesn't have it. For example, a fast food app that wants your location so it can give you nearby locations of that uh, fast food brand. It doesn't need your location for that. You, you can just search whatever city you're in. You don't need it to know where you are for that, so just refuse to let it see your location. Now, there's other apps like a mapping app that needs your location to function. In that case, you're going to have to trust it and do it. So that does leave you somewhat vulnerable to what I was just describing, which leads me to my next point. Clear your advertising ID. That's what the apps use to identify you. Every time you clear it, you're given a new one. 
which makes it more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult to identify you. So instead of being one advertising ID that they can link all the different locations to, you can be two, three, four, five, ten, twenty, one hundred different advertising IDs, and it becomes harder and harder for them to put a picture together. If you want to know how to do it, you can Google it, and I have a link on how to do it. If you go to the thread called Unregulated Non-Government Third-Party Companies Are Tracking Your Every Move, it's in the Flying Stupidity Forum. You'll see my second post there gives you a link on how to do that, on how to clear your advertising ID. I suggest doing it like every few days. I do it. Then, turn off your location services unless you need them. Now, this may be a pain in the ass, but think about it. How often do you really use apps which absolutely need your location? Like if you're driving, you want to use the mapping app for navigation, then you need it. Or like even the weather, a lot of times you can just search a place. It doesn't have to automatically come up with your location. How often do you really, really need location services? You can just turn them off completely on your device, and that will give them big holes in their data. It won't completely wipe out location data because sometimes you, you will need it, but it will leave big holes to where they're not seeing you 24-7. So consider turning off location data so this way they won't have as much on you. Number four. You got to keep them separated. Yes, you got to keep them separated. What do I mean by that? What do you have to keep separated? As tempting as it might be to log in with your Facebook or Google account to various websites or apps, don't ever, ever do this. Always create separate accounts on these apps and use a different password on each one, even slightly. So if you take the same password and add one, two, three, four to it, that's fine because it's not going to be a human being looking at it. It'll be a computer and it won't be able to use the same password to auto-log into your other accounts. So don't ever use the same password anywhere and definitely never log in through your Facebook or Google even if they offer it to you and it seems easier. Yeah. It's good advice. Offspring new. All those years ago, Offspring new. Number five, register under fake names whenever possible. You may say, well, that's that sounds illegal. Fake names. No, you're not required to give a real name to anyone unless giving a real name would be commit, uh, giving a fake name would be committing some kind of fraud or except in those rare cases where you're required to give a real name, like at a, at a border stop or boarding an airplane or contact with a police officer, there you have to give your real name. But if you're on an app and you want to make up a fake name, you can. Nothing wrong with that. Now, if you're going to buy something on there, uh, it's kind of a murky thing. As long as you're paying from your own account, it's fine. If you want to morph your own name, it really is fine. Uh, But uh, definitely ones where you're not buying anything, you can give any fake name you want, totally legal. You're not required to give a real name. It doesn't matter if if they're terms of service. You must use a real name. It doesn't matter. Use a fake name. They have no way to know. Why use a fake name? Well, because it becomes harder to link you to the advertising ID. And pick something that's distant from your name to where your real name wouldn't actually come up with a Google search of the fake name. Don't take out one letter from your name. Use a completely different name. One you can remember, but a completely different name. 
And this way, it makes linking you to these advertising IDs useless if it links your fake name to it. So, in fact, always register under a phony name unless it's a situation where you really have to use a real name. Don't ever give these apps your real name when you're, when you're signing up unless there's a real purpose for it. Like, anything where they have to pay you something, you're going to want your real name in there. But other than where they're paying you something, use a fake name. It's fine. In fact, it's suggested. In fact, I do it. Number six, turn off location stamping on photos. You know how photos will say taken at such and such place? Don't do that. Turn that off. You can Google how to do that. Why do that? Because what will happen is when you share these photos, that location information can be easily harvested and used against you in some way. It's just something you don't want. It can bite, it can come back to bite you later. I've even seen when people think something's innocent, turning on those location uh, stamping, and then it screws them later. Like <laughs> there was a guy on my Facebook who used to always act like he's traveling to all these far flung locations, and uh, there, he posted these beach pictures, these beautiful beach pictures that he was, uh, I think, supposed to be in the French Riviera or something. Except he had the location stamping, and it turned out that he really had not left home. He was right back in Los Angeles taking these pictures and just pretending they were somewhere else. It was very embarrassing for him. So even if you're not a pathological liar like that, you you have to realize that uh, it's never a good thing to stamp your location on these pictures. It can only be used to track you and identify you. So just don't do it. It's just another piece of information you shouldn't be giving. Just turn that off. You know where you were. You'll remember where you were. Your memory's not that bad. You'll you'll see a picture and you'll say, oh yeah, I remember I was in this place. You're like, you don't have to uh, stamp it with location. And by the way, what's actually in the photo, even if it's very obvious, it's much harder to figure out what that is by a computer than if you stamp a location on it. So like a, a picture of you at the Grand Canyon, like any human being will go, oh, that's the Grand Canyon. The computer will have a harder time looking at seeing it's the Grand Canyon. That's You know those CAPTCHAs you have to always, those annoying CAPTCHAs you have to do to verify you're a human? It, it's using that same concept. They'll say like, you know, click on the four photos that have traffic lights. Well, like a three-year-old could do that, but a computer has a hard time figuring out what a traffic light looks like, especially if there's a lot of stuff in the background. So that's where computers kind of suck is, is uh, looking at an image and figuring out what it is. So it's much easier to just look at raw location data where it can know exactly where you are. Number seven, never ever check in places on social media, even if it's obvious where you are. Where you are. So again, let's say you're at Dodger Stadium. Don't, don't check in at Dodger Stadium. It just, it just creates profiles of you and where you go, what you like to do. You don't want to put this information out there to be mass harvested, even if it's not a secret, even if you're very public that you're going to a Dodger game. Even if it's very public, you're a Dodgers fan, don't check in there to where these services can harvest that you go to Dodger Stadium. You just don't want them having information on you. So don't check in anywhere. You can post where you are, just don't check in to a place on social media. Number eight, do not ever give permission to third-party apps or sites 
to access your social media accounts, no matter how innocent it seems. So I'm sure you've seen these people, mostly middle-aged women, but I see men do it too, who run these stupid little apps through Facebook where it says, what animal would you be if you're an animal? You would be a leopard. Uh, quick and cunning, blah, 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 just like you. And they're like, oh, look, I'm a leopard. And, and then they share it. And you think, oh, this is so annoying. Why is this crap cluttering up my Facebook wall? Well, the problem is these apps are not as innocent and cuddly as it seems. They're really harvesting information from your Facebook account that you're required to allow them to see in order to do this, including your entire friends list. You never, ever want to give any third-party site or app access to your social media, even if it seems like something cool. Now, sometimes you can't use them if you won't give them access, but then fine, don't use them. Don't ever give any kind of permission to access any data, no matter how simple and innocent it seems, from your social media. You're also screwing your friends that way, too, when you do that. Number nine, clear your browser cookies often. This includes mobile devices. Clear your cookies. It becomes harder to track the websites you've been going to. Number 10, opt out from as much as possible regarding anything tracking related. Don't just take the attitude of, I don't care if they have this info. As I said, you may care one day in the future. So if there are ways to opt out and it's not too cumbersome, do it. Again, it's easier said than done. Some companies require you send them a, a physical letter in the mail because they want to make it hard for you. If you, want, you don't want to do it for all of them, fine. But if there's easy ways to opt out, do it. Whenever Apple says, hey, can we send uh, information about your apps for diagnostic purposes, the answer is a big fat no. No reason to let them do that. They're not paying you to be a consultant. So never let them get information from your computer or your phone for, quote, diagnostic purposes. Give them the least information possible and any easy way to opt out, do it. And I would suggest going to the various sites out there to look up people. You can find them on Google, the ones to look up people's addresses and stuff, and opt out of those. I've done it. You should do it too. Finally, if possible, jailbreak your phone, get a location spoofer, and spoof your location on every app where a real location is not necessary. In some cases, you can actually spoof it to an approximate location, like a weather app. It doesn't need to be right at your house. A weather app, you can give it a location of two miles away from your house, and that'll be just as good. The weather two miles away is very, very similar to wherever you are. And in some cases, you can give a completely fake address far off if it doesn't really need the the address. But you can the, these uh, address spoofers on jailbroken phones, you can actually assign it by app to have a different location for each one. And keep in mind, most apps don't even take location data, so you won't have to do this for like 100 apps. You'll go through, you'll see only a a small number are taking location data, and then just assign a different location to each one, except for things, again, like maps, where you have to, if you want to use them. You have to use a real location, otherwise they're useless. But if you can get one of those, if you can jailbreak your phone, if you know how to do that, I would suggest it. And if you do have a jailbroken phone, I would suggest getting a location spoofer. I do that. I suggest you do it, too. Now, if you don't know how to jailbreak a phone or are afraid to, then that's fine. It's not illegal, by the way. Totally legal, but there are some people who are not technical enough to do it. It doesn't require like a genius to do, but uh, it does require some degree of being technical to do it. So, and if you get like a new phone, you usually can't jailbreak it. So there's, 
it's not so simple to jailbreak your phone. But if you can, then get a location spoofer. It can really help. This is not all just paranoia. They really have a full profile, a full profile on where you have been, every single place you've been, how long you've been there, and they can attach it to who you are at any time they want for reasons I already stated. And if that doesn't disturb you, it should. And when I say they have it, I mean they have it. Not that they have some people. They have everybody. Everybody. And when you have location data of where everybody is at every hour of the day, the possibilities for abuse are endless. Things you would never dream of. I could sit and think and think and think of bad, bad things you could do with that information. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't abuse it personally. Well, I wouldn't abuse it except if someone had done something to harm me. Then it would be very useful. I'll be honest. If someone's fucking with me, if someone's uh, harming me or my family, and I had access to this data, yeah, I'd use it. Yeah, I'd look them up. Yeah, I would, I would, it would be very, very useful. Also be useful to track down scammers, right? Well, yeah, things could be done to people who deserve it, but a lot of people who don't deserve it could get hurt from this. It was asked in a thread that I posted about this on Poker Fraud Alert, do you have any suggestions for new laws to be put in place to combat this or for people to simply be aware of this and trust free market solutions to pop up and quell any significant threat to loss of privacy? Well, yes, I do. Number one, I feel that it should be absolutely illegal for these large databases to exist of people's locations. Location data storage should absolutely be illegal even with the user's consent. One of the excuses these companies use is, hey, we, we asked for consent to get your location. You give it. So if we store it, that's up to us. No, it shouldn't be. It should be illegal to store location data in these databases with only a few exceptions. It should be allowed to be collected but not stored as long as the user gives permission. And as far as storing it, individual apps should be able to store the data, not these SDKs. They shouldn't be able to store in a, a mass. Uh, there should not be SDKs being able to. It should be individual apps should be able to store it for utilitarian purposes only, meaning only when the location storing is necessary for the function of the app, such as a jogging app that keeps track of where you've been jogging, how many miles you've been jogging, day-to-day, whatever where you've been going. Some people want to have that stuff. So it shouldn't be made illegal to do that because otherwise those apps will go away and that's too much control. But it needs to be made illegal for any third-party company providing location data to store the location data they are providing. And it should be illegal for individual apps to store any data without, number one, a very clear and direct uh, notification not buried in terms of service, but a clear and direct notification that's like through a pop-up that explains in a few sentences or less, we are storing all of your location data on this app. Is this okay? Yes, no. And number two, only if this is for a utilitarian purpose for the app to function. And it should be something like that. I could write better laws if I was asked to do it, but uh, off the top of my head, that's the sort of thing that should be done. Right now, it's like the wild, wild west. They can do whatever the hell they want. That's unacceptable. 
it's a, a huge, huge breach of privacy beyond anything else that we've discussed before. And that's why, do you remember in the early 2010s and during the 2000s, there was a talk of the Patriot Act and the government surveillance. And people were so panicky about that. And, and I said, look, the real threat is going to come from private industry. Private industry has been keeping records on you for a long time for marketing purposes, but it can be abused for other things. And that was before all these smartphones existed when I said this. Uh, in, in the later 2010s especially, the amount of data that's being collected and in some cases abused dwarfs anything the government has done, will done, will do, or is interested in doing. Big Brother is watching you, but not the Big Brother you think. And you want to get this out of your life. And, and some people say, well, just don't use a smartphone. Who needs a smartphone? Just don't, don't use one. That's not realistic in this day and age. How often are you at a store and you need the app for something? You have to bring up their app to do something, get some discount or, or to make some appointment or whatever it is. There's so many app-based things these days, more and more and more. And to leave yourself out of the smartphone revolution puts you more and more in the dark ages every year. I mean, why not say, well, why have a phone at all? Don't have any phone. And, and why, why have a car? Just ride your bicycle everywhere. And, and, and why, why take a plane? Just, just, take, uh, just drive or take boats? Actually, we said no car. You can't drive either. Uh, maybe just take a train. Uh, why, why, not, why not just live like it's, it's 1870? That'll prevent a lot of this stuff, right? Yes, but it's crappy. <laughs> it's not realistic. If you're going to give advice to people, it's got to be realistic. Even these 11 items I told you, some of them are really not realistic for the average person to do. Some people are not going to want to turn on and off their location data all over and over. I understand that. A lot of people won't want to jailbreak their phone. I understand that. But at least do some of them. Do some of the real important ones. Clear your advertising ID every few days. That's easy. Don't use your Facebook or other social media ever to log into other sites or apps. That's simple. Register under fake names. Also simple. Turn off location stamping on photos. Also simple. But it's getting more and more intrusive. And also... Hackings. What about hackings? What if the companies collecting this data are responsible and not misusing it, but then they get hacked one day? Can you imagine what hackers might do with this stuff? Especially if they start identifying opportunities to blackmail people? Can you imagine? Think about it. Something else, by the way. You could even be blackmailed with information that just looks bad, but really isn't. Let's say... uh your wife doesn't like you hanging around with a certain dude that uh, she just doesn't like, so you just tell her you're not anymore. But uh, you leave work a little bit early and sometimes go over and hang out with him for, for an hour or so. But uh, in that same place where he lives is a single woman. And the location data would seem to show that you're visiting her, even though you don't really know her. And then someone blackmails you one day that they're going to send all this location data to your wife and show that you've been visiting this woman. Well, maybe you can convince her that it's this guy that she didn't want you hanging out with. But number one, that wouldn't be that good either. But And number two, maybe she won't believe you. Maybe she'll think that uh, you met this woman when you'd been over there. And that's why you're going over there so much. I, I'm just making this up the top, off the top of my head. But sometimes even location info, what it appears to be, is not even what it really is. 
you just you just don't want someone having access to everything you're doing, when you're doing it, how long you're doing it. You don't want it. It's not their business. Even if you're someone who isn't really actively doing anything wrong. Take this advice to heart. And sadly, as the years pass, we're going to have more and more scandals like this. And sometimes only when something really bad happens from it are we really going to hear a lot about it. The average person still hasn't heard about this. It was in the New York Times, but the, the average person still hasn't heard about it. It's no longer a secret, but it, the average person still hasn't heard about it. In fact, I think there's a good chance that unless you read the Poker Fraud Alert Forum, you have not heard about it prior to hearing this segment. So take care. Watch out. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Move on to the next topic. Before that, I will read from the chat room. Disposition says... And the conspiracy theorists have been yelling the truth about this invasion of privacy through our phones for quite a bit of time. Now some listen, most don't care. Yeah. I was one of those, quote, conspiracy theorists who was saying that it's something that's going to be a big problem and is a big problem. And people don't realize. People focus on all the wrong things to be afraid of. Sometimes it's the things you let into your life voluntarily that are the most dangerous you know where they talk about violence against women and that women are actually most likely to be killed or seriously hurt by a man they're in a relationship with or were once in a relationship with rather than a stranger who just attacks them? And that's true, by the way. Similar here that you're much more likely to be hurt by apps that you voluntarily allow to get information on you than these Russian hackers that are looking to break into your system. Who really aren't, by the way. That's what you should be afraid of, is what you let into your life, not what tries to break into your life. Trust me. Own Mattisau says the true Team ML gay uses Trojan horses to track dudes to give blowjobs to. <laughs> That's not a nice thing to do to drag poor Team MLK into the mud. He hasn't called the show in a long time. We. We can't say such things about him. By the way, I Am Greek has said that uh, his wife is recovering. Remember in a previous show we talked about how his wife uh, was not doing well. He was even afraid he might lose her. He said she's getting her strength back every day. He said Merry Christmas from both of us, which I don't appreciate because I'm a Jew, but I guess I'll let this slide. So I'm glad that she's doing better. Okay, moving on to the next topic. Let's talk about something more personal that happened to me. I made a cash out recently, a fairly large cash out. I won't say how much, because it's none of your business, but it was a fairly large cash out. Let's just say it was more than 5K from Ignition, which is the same network as Bovada. I made that cash out through Bitcoin, and when I received my Bitcoin, I was shorted by more than $25 per Bitcoin. Well, how does that happen, you might ask? Why don't they send me the amount I really cashed out, and how can they justify having done so? Well, remember, they're sending it to me in Bitcoin, not through regular bank wires or uh, EFTs or any other form of uh, U.S. dollars where it's easy to tell whether they sent you the correct amount or not, which, by the way, they were also skimming that way because they were uh, when they would send you bank wires, it would be in foreign currency and claim that it was a, a, con- a currency conversion problem when you would get less than expected. But 
this was all done by their processors. This wasn't done by them specifically. And I think in this case, it may be the same thing, but it doesn't really matter. The bottom line is you cash out. You should get the amount that you're expecting and not one penny less. The problem with Bitcoin is that there is no actual set value of Bitcoin because Bitcoin has no central authority. It's not centralized. It's decentralized. And therefore, the value of Bitcoin in U.S. dollars at the current moment is something that's approximated by the free market of what Bitcoin is being traded for at the moment. And it's estimated through a process of averaging that's done a little bit differently on each tracking site. One of the sites that seemed that is believed to be pretty accurate and reputable regarding tracking Bitcoin price is Bitstamp, which is also an exchange. You can't use it in the U.S., but Bitstamp, which is bitstamp.net. If you go there, you'll see the price of Bitcoin, which, as I'm speaking, is $7,135.87 and is going to keep changing every few seconds as Bitstamp keeps updating it. Uh, There are other sites that actually keep track of this, and they make a little chart that you can look at. You can look at the last day's prices, the last week's prices in in a, a chart, and you can actually move your mouse along it and watch as time passes of uh, what each value was. Not down to the second, but you can see it uh, like down to a few minutes. So there's a lot of these different sites out there. Some are more reputable than others. But if you look at the reputable ones and you go back to the Bitcoin price history, you can get a pretty good idea of what the going rate was for Bitcoin at that moment in time. The moment in time that we're going to be talking about here was 11.17 a.m. Eastern Time on December 17th, 2019. I say Eastern Time because that's the the time that Bovada and Ignition use. This is a West Coast bias show. I like to talk about Pacific Time. In this case, we'll talk about Eastern Time. 11.17 Eastern a.m., also known as 8.17 a.m. Los Angeles Time, Las Vegas Time. December 17, 2019, that was when my Bitcoin cash out was processed. Everybody agrees on that. Ignition agrees, and I agree that that was the moment it was processed. So the price that was used at that time should have been close to what the reputable sites said it was at that point. And by going back on various graphs, I was able to find what at that moment the prices were. Again, not an exact price, and I found a range of somewhere between 66.95 and 67.03 per Bitcoin. That's dollars, okay? 66.95 to 67.03, obviously it's gone up some since then, but that's what it was on December 17th at 11.17 a.m. Eastern Time when I received the Bitcoin cash out. Well, I looked at the number of Bitcoin I got, and I looked at the amount I had requested from them, and I did a very, very simple mathematics problem that even my son Benjamin could probably do. I whipped out a calculator, and I typed in the amount of my cash out in U.S. dollars, divided by number of Bitcoin I received, and that would indicate the price that they felt Bitcoin was worth at the time they sent it to me. And that price turned out to be $6,728.01. You may say, wait a minute, that sounds like you benefited. It sounds like that they gave you more if they 
made the price on their end uh, sixty-seven twenty-eight when it was really worth sixty-six ninety-five through sixty-seven oh three. But wait, no, they didn't. It's the opposite because the more they feel a Bitcoin is worth, the less Bitcoin they have to send me. Let's take two extreme examples, just in case you're still confused. Let's say they felt Bitcoin was only worth a dollar. Let's just say hypothetically I was doing a $5,000 cash out. My cash out was more than that, but let's just say that's what it was for simplicity's sake. Okay? So if they stupidly felt that a Bitcoin was worth a dollar, they would send me 5,000 Bitcoin for that cash out, which would be very, very nice because I would have a whole lot of money if I I received 5,000 Bitcoin at this point. At, At today's prices... Uh, I would have uh, $35 million more than that for my cash out. That would be a very nice cash out, $35 bucks, would wouldn't you say? So uh, I would get tremendous benefit if they believed that Bitcoin was worth a dollar, a.k.a. much less than it really was. But what if they felt it was worth much more than it really was? Let's say they felt that a Bitcoin was worth a million dollars per coin. Well, if I was cashing out $5,000, then what they would end up sending me would be uh, 0.5, no, not point, 0.005 of a Bitcoin. They'd send me, they'd send me one two hundredth of a Bitcoin if they felt a Bitcoin was worth a million dollars and I was cashing out $5,000. So obviously I would be very much shorted if I was cashing out $5,000 and received 0.005 of a Bitcoin. In reality, 0.005 of a Bitcoin would be worth about 35 bucks. So that would be a tremendous shortage, right? So from these two extreme examples, one can see that if they think the price is more, I get screwed. And if they think the price is less, I get helped. And if they think the price is accurate, then it's neutral and I don't get screwed or helped. So I'm not expecting them to give me free money. I want them to pay me what the approximate going rate is. So if I got anything between 66.95 and 67.03, I'd say, okay, that's in the range. They did it right. I'm fine. In the past, that's what they've done. In the past, I've always seen that they've done it either correctly or even a few cases, they gave me a little bit more than it was at the moment. And I'm like, okay, that's nice. Thank you. But in this case, they gave me less. They gave me 6728 was the value, which was probably between about $25 and $30 per coin, more than it was really worth at the time, which meant for every Bitcoin I received, I was getting cheated out of $25 to $30. Is it tremendous money? No, but it's something. It's something I shouldn't be losing. And the problem is I'm pretty sure it was done on purpose. Why? Because you're not going to get a value like 67.28 when every site is saying it's near 6,700. It's just you're not going to come up with that amount. They're, like no reputable site says it's that much. So why would they come up with it that much? Not only that, but I've seen on 2 plus 2 others complaining that they are getting shorted this way. So it seems like they must have switched processors or if they're process- maybe they're processing it themselves now and skimming. Whatever it is, they've decided they can get away with it. Why? Because there is no exact price of Bitcoin So they can always hide behind, well, you say it was worth that at that moment. We say it was worth this, and no one can say we're wrong. Well, sort of, but there's a lot of very reputable sites that have taken averages that are quite far from what you came up with. If everybody 
reputable says it was worth between sixty six ninety five and sixty seven oh three, and you're coming up with sixty seven twenty eight, then you're 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 either screwing something up royally or you're cheating me. So I called them. I called them to discuss this. And of course the frontline customer service rep was clueless and she just gave me a lot of nonsense answers. And say, the the first rep I dealt with was attempting to treat me like I was a cryptocurrency novice. Now, I'm not a super expert in cryptocurrency. I'll concede that. But I'm by no means a novice. I understand it pretty well. And she was explaining to me, now you have to understand Bitcoin price is constantly changing. So the price you see of what you have right now is not the price at the time that we sent it to you. Thank you. As if I didn't know that Bitcoin price changes and that if a few hours have passed since you processed the cash out, that my cash out may be worth more or less right now. She she was really trying to answer in that way. And I don't think it's because she was stupid. I think she understood what I was saying because I, I kept repeating my point and I even kept telling her I know I, I understand Bitcoin changes value. I'm not complaining about the value right now. I'm complaining about the value at the time of the cash out, 11.17 a.m. Eastern Time. But she kept coming back to well, Bitcoin changes a lot. That's the nature of Bitcoin. Like It just kept coming back to things like that that they probably are trained to tell people who call up and complain about the number of Bitcoin they get. Now, in their defense, there's probably morons that cash out via Bitcoin who don't understand how the whole thing works, and they check a few hours later, and Bitcoin will have gone down in value, and they'll go, oh, no, look, I, I did a cash out for 1000 It's only worth 925 now. I got cheated by $75 and, and Ignition tells them accurately, no, it was a thousand when we sent it to you. It went down since then, so that now it's worth nine twenty five. It could have just as easily gone the other way. And I'm sure they get morons who don't understand this, and they have a lot of arguments with them, and they're probably tired of dealing with people like that. But I was very careful to explain this in a very coherent and slow and clear fashion to where she totally had to understand, unless she was a complete moron, that I was not making that point. That I was making the point that at the very moment they sent it to me. It was not worth that, and that I that there's many reputable sites you can use to check this, and that six, 6728 was so far out of range, there's no way that was a real value. Well, I got nowhere, so I waited on a long hold to speak to a supervisor, which at first she refused to let me speak to a supervisor, but then finally she let me speak to a supervisor. Supervisors at Bovada and Ignition tend to be hit and miss. Sometimes you get a great one who's very helpful as I did when when they under-bonused me at Bovada, as I mentioned on the last show about the Thanksgiving crash, that they didn't want to give me the $25 bonus they gave to everybody else, and the initial rep was obnoxious about it and wouldn't do it for me and was just making just really offensive comments. Not like insulting, but just like offensively stupid comments and stubborn comments. And then the supervisor was very, very nice and handled it right away. But this time I got a crappy supervisor. The supervisor this time, and unfortunately I think this is a tougher one to deal with than the bonus thing because the bonus thing I had a a stronger leg to stand on. With this one, they probably get so many complaints about the amount people get in Bitcoin because people don't understand the way Bitcoin works that they've probably just taken a policy of, look, we're we're never going to credit people who complain about Bitcoin value discrepancies because otherwise we're going to constantly be inundated with these requests. So we just got to say no to everything. I have a feeling that's the attitude they've taken. So the percentage of people who are correct get screwed. So the supervisor just told me, that's the value we came up with. And I said, well, how? 
We can't reveal that, they told me. It's proprietary. (laughs) What? How is it proprietary to tell me how you're determining the Bitcoin price? I'm not asking where are you getting your Bitcoin or what processor are you using. I'm saying, how do you know the Bitcoin price you are using is accurate? What source are you using to know that price? Can you tell me, tell me you're getting it from Bitstamp or from Coindesk? or Tell me which reputable site you're pulling this from. That, that's what I want to know. Tell me the source of the price. And then I'll check that source and see if it really was that price. And if it's a source that is reputable, that it happened to say 6728, then okay, fine. Probably wrong, but I concede. But they would not tell me. They, they absolutely refused to tell me. When I stated that no reputable site showed Bitcoin worth 67.28 at that point in time and that it's just not the right value, she said, we have a difference in opinion. <laughs> I said, no, that's not how it works. Hard numbers are not subject to opinion. They're either correct or incorrect. Now, yes, in this case, Bitcoin doesn't have an exact price, but, but you have to determine the price in some way. She also tried to use the argument that since Bitcoin doesn't have an exact price, that I don't have any right to question it. (laughs) She also said that whatever number that their processor came up with has to be the correct one. (laughs) I said, okay. What if they came up with $10,000 when the actual price was $6,700? Would that be okay? Would it be okay to short me on a third of my cash out and just say, well, that's our price? I said, no, there's obviously some form of sanity check that has to be there. There has to be some source of where they are getting the price that should be shared with the customer if there's a discrepancy or if they don't want to share it, at least let the customer present their own data as to why the price is incorrect. And I offered to send her screenshots or directions on how to find these graphs on all these reputable sites all over the web that would show that there was no such price as 67.28 at 11.17 a.m. Eastern Time on December 17th. But she said, no, we don't need to see that. (laughs) And I said, oh, you don't need to see that? That must mean you believe me. She said, no, our price was correct. We don't need to see it. That's the most infuriating thing when you you have the goods, you have the evidence, and you're like, let me show you why you're wrong. Let me show you why I'm right and your statement is wrong. Can I show you, please? And they say, no. I hate that. I detest that. I had that happen once when Verizon, when I had them for internet and phone service. I don't anymore, but when I did. And they totally screwed up my bill. And they totally screwed up the deal I was promised, but I was smart enough to take a screenshot of the deal that I signed up for online because they denied such a deal ever existed. And I said, well, guess what? I have a screenshot from right then because I was afraid this might happen. Can I send it to you? And they said, no, we don't need to see it. We know it's wrong. (laughs) By the way, in that one, after... Many, 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 many hours of arguing and finding the right people to talk to, which was incredibly difficult. I, They conceded I was right the whole way and gave me like a $200 credit for my trouble, which wasn't worth it. But 
I was right and I proved it eventually. Anyway, it's a really, really infuriating situation because I got shorted and they don't even want to see the evidence. I'm not sure if the supervisor I talked to was aware I was right and just didn't want to deal with it or just is so brainwashed that any complaint about cryptocurrency is invalid that she just basically tunes it out and says, no, I don't want to see anything you're sending. No, 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 you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Like she may not understand it well. She may think whatever processor, whatever price the processor gives them is correct. Now, someone on 2 plus 2 told me that there is no processor for Bitcoin and that they process their own Bitcoin. I don't believe it. I don't have proof of this. And if you guys know better than I do, please let me know. But I don't believe they would sit there with a large cache of Bitcoin ready to use for withdrawals because they're exposing themselves to a lot of variance in Bitcoin's price, which, as you know, there is a lot of variance in Bitcoin's price. I don't think that Bovada and Ignition want to risk this. I don't think they're really in the business of speculating Bitcoin, which they would be unintentionally doing if they were to hold a lot of Bitcoin to make uh, payouts with. So I have a feeling they are using a processor. Because this way, if they use a processor, then they're, they're not subject to that. Yeah, they have to pay the processor something, but they, they prevent a lot of variants which could really kill them if there's a huge crash. So uh, I, I, still, I still think it's a processor, and they admitted to me on the phone there's a processor. Now, maybe they said there was a processor because it was easier to blame on the processor than themselves, even if there wasn't one. But I tend to think there was a processor. I tend to think the processor cheats people because they know Bitcoin has no exact value and that most people won't go back and look up exactly what the value was at that exact minute. People know if they get approximately the amount they're cashing out, then it's good. And they don't go back and check over a relatively small amount of money, especially on a large cash out. Again, let's use the number 5,000. If you cash out 5,000, you get 4950 and it's a Bitcoin cash out. You know how Bitcoin changes all the time? Are you really going to question it? Probably not. I did it. I found skimming. They skimmed before. They're skimming now. Their processes are shady. But the worst part is they won't make it right. The worst part is they won't make it right. Now you may wonder, well, what's the end of this saga? Where are we now? Well, I threatened to expose this, which obviously I am right now. <laughs> and I told them, I told them on my next radio show I'm exposing it. And by the way, you, you may laugh at that, but they've actually backed down before because of the show. Like they, they've actually like gone and looked up the site and they're like, uh, yeah, okay, fine. We'll, we'll do what you want. Like they, they didn't want me exposing or, or making them look bad. Uh, okay. So here's, here's the great email exchange I'm getting. I, I hate dealing with them on email for exactly the reason you're about to hear. That's why I called them. As, as infuriating as they are on the phone... They're even worse than email. The reason I emailed is because I said, is there anything further I can do? Can I appeal this to anybody? So I was told I can do two things. I can do like a dispute resolution process, which I haven't tried yet, but that's my next move. Or I can email service at ignitioncasino.eu and ask for it to be forwarded to the withdrawals team. And the withdrawals team will take a look and see if they agree with me. And if they do, they'll credit my account. So I figured, okay, not feeling super optimistic here, but I'll give it a shot. So knowing that the email, the main email address is manned by monkeys, and it really is. I think they actually hire monkeys in the Philippines to, to man the, uh, the computers there. But knowing it's manned by monkeys, I made sure to write things very clearly and, in fact, repeat something at the very beginning twice. So I wrote, hello, 
please forward this message to the withdrawals team. And they put, I put like asterisks around it. And then I did it again. Three asterisks. Please forward this message to the withdrawals team. Star, star, star. Like I, I did that twice just to make sure it stands out. So I want to make sure the withdrawals team gets it because that's a little bit of a smarter team than frontline customer service. You processed my cash out for blah, blah, blah at 1117 AM EST, uh, 121719. I received this many Bitcoin by doing the math. That would have made the price per Bitcoin 672801. However, this was an incorrect price. The price listed on bitstamp.com and other very reputable Bitcoin sources for 1117 AM shows the price around 6695. It is clear that the payment processor intentionally inflated the price by $25 to $30 per coin so they could skim some money off my cash out. You will not find one reputable Bitcoin price tracker in the world which will which shows the price anywhere near 6728 at 1117 AM PST on 127 or I meant to say EST uh, at 121719. I am asking for a credit to my ignition account to cover the difference. Please see the attached chart and feel free to do your own research. You will not find one chart from any reputable site showing the price of 6728 or above at 1117 AM on 121719. Thank you Todd Wittellis. Now pretty clear, right? Like that was like super clear. I repeated some things. I made sure they like really understood what I was saying. Response. Thank you for contacting Ignition Casino customer service. It appears that you've already contacted us with the same inquiry and we're able to provide assistance on a different thread. We're available to help 24/7 if you need anything else. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, no, you didn't provide me assistance. I was told to email this address by the people on the phone, and this is the first response you guys have given me. So I wrote back, hello, this is not true. I called Ignition about the matter, but was unable to get assistance on this, and I was told to send a message to service at ignitioncasino.eu with my evidence so you could give this to the withdrawals team and possibly credit my account. Please send my previous message to the withdrawals team as instructed and have them read it carefully. Thanks, Todd Wittellis. Response back. Thank you for contacting Ignition Customer Service. I do understand your concerns regarding your account. I'm seeing that you already contacted us about this inquiry and you were assisted. You've got to be fucking kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. If you'd like to find out more information, you could give us a call at a toll-free number, which by the way they don't give. You have to know it. I tried again. My response Star 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 please read this carefully in all caps star 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 I was not assisted regarding my bitcoin withdrawal price error I called in about it and I was not assisted the rep refused to look at it and refused and told me to send email to this address and ask for it to be forwarded to the withdrawals team please do this for me I wrote in all caps thank you Todd Wittellis Well this evening just as I was about to start the radio show I got another response Trader Risky what do you think it said you still there I'm here. I'll bet we've already reviewed it and you get that thing. I wish it was that good of a response. Nope. Thank you for contacting the Ignition Casino customer service. I do understand your concerns regarding withdrawal with reference number blah blah blah. I am seeing that your cash out was paid to your Bitcoin wallet as per your request. If your funds are in the Bitcoin wallet for a period of time, once Bitcoin goes up or down, your funds will fluctuate. <laughs> Oh my god my my forehead actually hurts from the number of times my palm hit my face as I read these responses. Can you believe it? Like we're four emails in and first they they kept saying this was 
answered already, which it wasn't. And then finally, they say something other than that, and they say, yeah, Bitcoin goes up and down in your wallet once you get it. Just learn that about Bitcoin. Thanks, bye. That's the crack team I'm dealing with here. So I I think the next solution is just to create a dispute resolution. We're not talking about a lot of money. It just pisses me off. It just pisses me off. I I hate just walking away and saying, yeah, you cheated me. And I'm going to take it up the ass from you. It really sucks. It really, really sucks. I I have the goods. Like I, I, I will send them proof. I can still do it. It doesn't matter if we're days later now. I can still do it. I can go back. I've I've done screen captures, but they can still check themselves to make sure I didn't modify anything or or cherry pick the best sites to, to demonstrate my point. And and that's what customer service should be about. If you can prove your point, they should say, okay, we concede you're right. Here is your credit. Instead, they're finding every reason to deny it. Really crappy. Really really crappy. But that's what we have these days. We have them or America's card room, which has their own problems. Own Mattisau and chat is asking, what is latest with Possel? Um, at the moment, nothing. Eventually we'll get a, an answer, even if they don't do anything with their, quote, investigation. Eventually we'll get something because of Mac Verstandig's lawsuit. That's going to go somewhere. It's a slow process, but it's going to happen. But we may not hear anything for a while. They're also not running their stream still. They have not resumed Stones Live. They may not resume it. They may decide that it's doing more harm than good. So they, I think they're just in a holding pattern, hoping time heals this wound and people forget about it. They won't completely forget, but it'll get further and further from people's minds. And I'll admit it's, it's even done that to me. Like I, I used to think about, okay, what's the Postle update today? Uh, now several days go by without me even thinking the name Mike Postle. And I'm sure that's the case with other poker players too, even ones who are victims here. By the way, I am Greek. I, w- I was just kidding. He says, happy Hanukkah to my Jewish friends. I did not mean to offend. No, I'm not offended. I'm, you know what? Uh, I am Greek. You're a loyal listener. And I, I appreciate you listening to the show every week. And I'm glad your wife's okay. And... I actually hate when people complain about Christmas greetings. They go, well, you shouldn't say Merry Christmas. You should say Happy Holidays. No, you can say Merry Christmas. It's, I mean, most of the people in this country are Christian. And you don't have to include everyone. I have people telling me Merry Christmas all the time. I just, I don't go, no, 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 I'm a Jew. Don't say that. Now, if they saw how cheap I was, then they'd know not to say that. But uh, if they don't, I can see, I can understand the confusion. I, I'm taller than almost all Jews. And uh, my last name doesn't end with Stein or Steen or Min or Berg. I understand. My nose is about average size. So it uh, there's certain ways one could be confused and just think I'm a Gentile. So you want to say Merry Christmas, it's fine. I want to talk about uh, something else involving Bovada and Ignition since we're on the topic. I'm going to jump to a topic that I was going to do a tiny bit later in the show. And that is about this weird saga with the cash games and, and yet another change that happened and then a change that unhappened and then a new change that happened after that. It, it, it's so strange. It, it really is like monkeys are in charge there sometimes. I mean, I, I, I criticize Caesars with doing stupid things, but Bovada and Ignition, they're, they're almost like the online Caesars. I mean, they, it's funny because they do something so well and so competently 
and then other things you go, what the hell are they thinking? So here's the latest with what's going on with the cash games on Bovada and Ignition. So back in May, there was a big removal of a lot of different cash games, and we reported that on this show. They removed all the nine-handed tables. They removed uh, 1530 Limit Hold'em. They removed every single 08 game. They still had PL08, but they removed every single Limit 08. They killed uh, nine-handed, I think, everywhere, or everywhere at least 510 and above. And they killed nine-handed Limit Hold'em at every limit. A lot of games just disappeared. And I assume just because traffic went down in the cash games and they just wanted people to find games more easily since they don't have a lobby listing games running so you had to kind of just guess at it and they wanted to take some of the guesswork out. So whatever. I I wasn't happy with the 1530 limit hold'em going away because that was a good middle ground between 1020 and 3060 for some people. I prefer 3060, but I, I liked having 1530 to play when 3060 wasn't going. 1020 is a little bit low for me. But that's what I'm stuck playing sometimes. But whatever, that's what they did. And it sat that way for six months, more than six months. And they did not announce that they were doing it. It just happened. Just one day you went on and discovered that was the case. No communication, just one day it's gone. Well, seven months later, the site put all of this back. I thought it was because maybe they were struggling even more, which they have been. The cash games have been kind of slowly dying there. So I thought maybe they realized they were getting more and more ghost townish and thought that this whole thing seven months ago was a mistake. So they brought Limit 08 back. They brought 1530 Limit Hold'em back. They brought all the nine-handed games they took away back. Every game they took away back in May returned. And then, so that was on December 13th. On December 18th, those same games all vanished again. Does that make any sense? No. They did not announce the return of the games. They did not announce the removal of the games. They just came and they went without ever telling us. They disappeared without telling us. They came back without telling us. They went away again five days later without telling us. They never really got going again because people didn't know where they were there. (laughs) A few people discovered it, but most people didn't. So they didn't really run, but they were removed. After five days. What do I think happened here? Well, I think this was an error. I think probably while updating the software, they re-enabled these games accidentally, maybe by copying and pasting something from an old version. And it brought these games back. And then five days later, they realized their mistake and removed them again. That's my guess. I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But that's my guess. But there's another development since then that I want to talk about. They have also changed something where there is no longer an ability to decide whether you wish to post the blind or not. Yes, you heard me correctly. If you sit down at any game on Bovada or Ignition, that's a cash game, you are required to post the first big blind. I think the only way out of it is if you can leave before it happens. Otherwise, you're required to post the big blind. So there's no more, I'm going to join the game and I'll post if I like the game. Nope. 
So if you go sit up, if you go sit, and you can't see what you're sitting at, you just say, hey, I want to sit at this game. It drops you there. It could be empty, in which case there's nothing to post because there's nobody to play with. If there's a person sitting, then you have to play at least one hand heads up with them. Even if it's a great heads up player and you don't want to play them, you have to play them. And this is kind of unnerving because it's forcing you to play things you may not want to play. This was actually as a result of a suggestion on the Ignition Forum. The first time, to my knowledge, they actually took a suggestion there. But there's these no-limit players that are obsessed with what's called bum hunting, and that is people who will only play if there's a fish in the game. For whatever reason, bum hunting has always been looked down upon much more in the no-limit cash community than the limit cash community. In the limit cash community, it's been long considered to be okay. In the no-limit cash community, it has not. So... The no-limit cash players are very, very sensitive about bum hunters and hate them with a passion. In fact, there's a a no-limit player who goes by Big Dick on Poker Fraud Alert. And for a long time, we didn't realize that we hated each other on Bodog, back when it was called Bodog, because I would play no-limit on there sometimes. And I was a bum hunter. I would only play if there's a fish in the game because, uh, you know, it it was no limit. That wasn't as good at No Limit Cash as I am at Limit Cash, and I only wanted to play if the game was good. Also, in the Limit Hold'em community, that was totally fine to do. I didn't know at No Limit there was like a a big no-no. So I would quit when the fish would bust, and boy, they would bash me there. Boy, they would call me terrible names. And and one of the guys there was really nasty and even told me if he saw me anywhere, he was going to punch me. Now, he didn't know who I was, but he's like, hey, if I find out who you are and I see you somewhere, I'm going to punch you. Well, it turned out that guy was actually Big Dick on Poker Fraud Alert, and he didn't realize that I was the guy he was threatening. We only realized this years later, and we thought it was funny. Uh, Big Dick, he's called in the show before. So we, we we get along just fine. In fact, I'm one of the few people who knows his real name. But uh, um, it was funny that that turned out who he was and who I was to, to each other. But uh, the people who hate bum hunting complain, complain, complain to Ignition that people keep joining and just hog up seats until a fish sits and then they leave. So the first change they made to where it kicks you out of the game if you just sit and sit out and the game isn't running. It kicks everybody out who's sitting out. But now they made it to where you're just forced to play. The problem here is that uh, this is really going to uh, bother people because there's a lot of recreational players who don't like heads up. In fact, if you've been to live card rooms, you've probably seen that a lot of times fish will quit as the game gets short. Like, a fish will play happily if it's nine-handed, eight-handed, seven-handed. And once it gets, like, four-handed, a lot of times the fish will get up and leave. The funny thing is he's, like, dead money either way. He doesn't realize that. But the fish somehow believes that, like, nine-handed he has a chance and short-handed he doesn't, where sometimes it's the opposite. Be a short-handed, at least playing trash hands uh, is not as bad as it is in a nine-handed game. But, they, you know, they're fish. They don't understand that. They just see the shorthanded games more aggressive and it makes them uncomfortable. But anyway, recreational players don't like sitting down and being forced to play heads up a lot of times. So this is bad that it's forcing them to do it. It's going to scare them out of just sitting at all. So I don't like that change at all, but that's what's going on. And that's the way it sits right now. But times are a-changing. They're at Bovada and Ignition. And... That seems to be the way it is, and there's really not much way to appeal it. In fact, I'm surprised they even took this advice 
I think part of what made them do it was just selfishness in that they realized there were a lot of people just sitting and not playing because the, it, the games weren't running. This is kind of a way to force games to run. And I will say it's been a little more active since they did that. I hate to give them any credit for this. They, it's a little bit more active, but I don't like the way they accomplished it. I think the much better way to accomplish it is to actually have a lobby listing which games are running and how many people are sitting, and then people know where to sit. And you can still make everything anonymous and not let you view tables unless you're actually playing. Uh, that's fine, but at least let people see what's going and how many people are sitting at each table so people can make an informed decision whether they want to play or not. And I said that on 2 plus 2, and they call me a bum hunter, and I'm like, no, guys, you don't understand. I, I play, since you can't say who you're playing against, I play a lot of people heads up or play three-handed against two good players. Like, I play a lot of games that are terrible just in the hopes that, like, a good one will get going eventually. So I am one of the people who doesn't bum hunt on there and actually runs hands against tough players with no bad players there, hoping it'll, it'll bring in some fish to the game. I don't quit the second of fish bus. Like I, but they don't care. They just go, no, oh, no, you're a bum hunter. Like they, they just don't want to hear it. Not that I care. I don't care what these idiots in two plus two think. But that's what's going on. And it's kind of a weird change. It's it's across everything. Every every cash game they're running on Bovada and Ignition. This applies to. I haven't tried yet. I mean, it'll cost me thirty dollars if I'm wrong, which kind of sucks. But. I haven't tried yet. You know what I should do? I'll, I'll actually give myself an idea. Instead of trying this at 3060, I should try this at like a low-limit game. So try to sit at like a 1-2 game and try this. I haven't tried quickly Xing out the window before it forces me to post the blind. It's going to do one of two things. It'll either let me out of it if I don't like the game and not charge me at all, or force me to post the blind and just time me out and give the pot to the other guy. Now, I know if you sit... And, the, and you're not ready to get the big blind yet because you're just not in the position to have the big blind and you leave then, then it won't force you to post. But if a guy's like waiting heads up and you sit with him, the question is, can you quickly leave before it forces you to post and not get charged? I haven't tried that yet. I may try some experiments. And I'll let you guys know if you can do that because that is one small way out of it if your reflexes are fast enough, which I don't think requires like breakneck speed. It, it doesn't react super fast there. It gives you at least like five seconds. Okay, let's talk about Joe Biden and his support for online poker, which previously was only expressed by Andrew Yang. Now, right now, the Democratic candidates are trying, trying, trying to set themselves apart, and they're trying in the final months leading up to the first primary in Iowa to make an impact, and uh, there's only certain candidates left who have a chance. There aren't that many at this point. There's Joe Biden, of course, who I believe to be the front runner, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, um, Bernie Sanders, of course, and then there's some fringe candidates who I really don't think have a shot, even though they're still technically in the debate, people like uh, Tom Steyer and uh, Andrew Yang and Amy Klobuchar. Uh, we have uh, Michael Bloomberg. I don't think he has much of a chance. I think he would have if he entered early, but he entered too late. I just don't think it's going to happen for him. And, and that's pretty much it. If it's not one of those names I just mentioned, I'd be shocked. I think Biden's going to get it, to be honest. Andrew Yang, who has kind of 
trying to set himself apart in two ways, kind of like the uh, the technology candidate and the I'm going to give you a thousand dollars guy. Uh, he came out with support for online poker, but you could tell he didn't fully understand the issue from his tweets. And then Negranu ran a fundraiser for him. So I wonder if he heard this from Negranu in the first place. I wonder if he was parroting what Negranu had told him. They probably developed a relationship at some point. But he's almost surely not going to win the primary. So what he thinks doesn't really matter. What Biden thinks matters a lot more because he's most likely, in my opinion, and even in the betting markets at this point, to be the Democratic candidate. And he has a fair chance to win the presidency if he is the Democratic candidate. It'll probably be uh, close whether he wins or whether Trump wins. They're both flawed candidates, as you might guess. So he very very easily could be the president of the United States starting January 2021, which was only a little bit more than a year away. So, of course, what he thinks about online poker could be something that would matter. So this is what uh, Biden had to say about it. He said that uh, he doesn't support adding unnecessary restrictions to the gaming industry like the Trump administration has done. Now, wait a minute. Let's, let's hold on. So what has the Trump administration done? We, we still have legalized online gambling in states that want it. We have it in Pennsylvania. We have it in New Jersey. We have it uh, poker only in Nevada. It's also in Delaware. It just got legalized in Michigan, as I'm going to be talking about a little bit later. So what has Trump done to hinder that? Obviously he hasn't. They even have interstate games running, interstate poker games, where Nevada, New Jersey, and uh, Delaware are connected. So, So what could Trump have possibly done to restrict it if it's the same way it's always been? In fact, it's less, restric- less restrictive when it f- than when it first rolled out, before there weren't these interstate uh, agreements to share the player pool. Well, what he's referring to, a little bit unfairly to Trump, is that the Department of Justice had a new interpretation of the Wire Act that... It does apply currently to uh, the internet and that uh, online poker should be included in that as well. Basically that the Department of Justice determined back in 2011 that uh, interstate online gambling um, only had to do with sports betting and didn't have to do with anything else. That was the determination eight years ago. But in early 2019, the current Department of Justice reinterpreted it and said, actually, any interstate online gambling would be illegal. Now, keep in mind, intrastate online gambling would still be okay. There's gambling that doesn't leave the state borders, but anything that crosses state borders would be illegal, meaning the current partnerships with uh, WCB.com between Nevada, Delaware, and New Jersey would become illegal. It hasn't been made into law yet, but that was a new interpretation. So that's what Trump – that's what he was referring to and saying that Trump 
reinterpreted this and Trump is adding unnecessary restrictions. Trump didn't do any of this. Trump doesn't care about this. It was it was his appointees at the Department of Justice who did this. But to blame Trump for this is like blaming Obama because uh, Black Friday happened when he was president. And it was done by one of his appointees, which is true, but I don't blame Obama for it. And in fact, I think the same thing would have happened under a Republican president. They, the DOJ doesn't take orders from the president on things like this. They do their own thing. So, yeah, Biden's being political there and trying to make Trump look bad, but whatever. That's, that's, that's what they do in election season. Biden is looking forward to when he will face Trump, provided he's a nominee. And he's already trying to get the bashes in. The thing we're going to focus on here, though, is what Biden had to say, aside from the jab against Trump. He says he doesn't support adding unnecessary restrictions. He also said that if he were elected president, that his DOJ would go back to the 2011 interpretation, which would not provide any interference involving online gambling. So basically, each day can decide what they want to do, and if they want to share player pools or allow interstate betting between themselves, then that's fine. He's going to not get in the way, and he's going to tell whoever he appoints the DOJ, do not get in the way of this. This is his claim. Of course, politicians make claims all the time when they're trying to get elected, and when, once they do, they change their mind. So uh, that doesn't mean this is set in stone. Also, he may not be president. But that's what he's claiming at the moment. In addition to the states I mentioned, by the way, uh, West, Virginia, West Virginia is another one that has uh, legalized uh, online gaming. But so what does this really mean? Does this mean if Biden's elected president that we're going to have the return of federally legal online poker? No. Even Biden's not saying that. He's not saying I'm going to make it legal federally. Any online poker site can start up and get licensed and exist in all 50 states. No. He's basically saying I'm going to leave it up to the states. States can do what they want. If they want to cooperate, they can. If they don't, they don't have to. If they don't want it at all, they don't have to. Uh, we're just not going to get in the way. We're not going to change anything. We're going to go back to the 2011 interpretation and whatever the states want to do with it, they can do. We're out of it. That, that's basically what he's saying. So it'll still be kind of like an opt-in situation. It'll be the status quo to where there's slow progress with more and more states adding online gambling. But it's been found that online poker is just not very lucrative, at least not yet. So that's not the main focus. The main focus has been sports betting. The secondary focus has been casino games. Third focus is online poker. So who knows if that will exist that much in all the markets. Now, it exists in Pennsylvania, and it's doing decently. Not great, but decently. It exists in New Jersey. exists in Nevada. exists in Delaware. I have to imagine it will exist in any large state that legalizes online gambling. If New York does it, if California does it, Texas does it, I'm sure these states will have online poker if they legalize online gambling. Eventually, if enough states do it, and if enough states realize they're going to have fail sites unless they have shared player pools with other states, then at some point in the future, we will have a pseudo-federal uh, legalization where most states are opted in. I'm sure Utah won't do it. Hawaii probably won't do it. Wyoming probably won't do it. But these aren't really consequential states. It seems like 
all of the large states except perhaps Texas, which has always been kind of funny but gambling, which is funny because uh, think of Hold'em. It's actually called Texas Hold'em. And yet in Texas, there's uh, you can't have a real card room that operates in a traditional fashion. It's not legal. But I think most of the major states will get on board and that will already cover a lot of the population. So if a few of the smaller states don't want it, it's not going to matter that much unless you happen to live in one of those states. But it's a slow thing. So we're going to have to wait several years till this happens. I, I, I laugh when I hear sometimes old shows where I talk about online poker legalization. And I was talking about California. It was an episode from like 2014. And I was saying, I wouldn't be surprised if online poker still isn't legal in California until 2017. <laughs> Well, we're days away from 2020, and we're not even close in California. So we got a while to go. But basically, Biden is just saying, I'm leaving it how it is, and I'm going to reverse whatever Trump's DOJ did. But what Trump's DOJ did hasn't taken effect yet anyway. And... There was a temporary overturning uh, involving uh, a federal judge in New Hampshire. So the whole thing hasn't taken effect yet. The process is still ongoing. And the Department of Justice is, was supposed to have filed paperwork by today. Or I guess now it's technically yesterday because it's after midnight, December 20th involving that ongoing matter of whether they're going to return to the 2011 interpretation or to keep the latest interpretation that you cannot uh, do interstate online gambling of any kind in the U.S. So we'll follow that as well. So don't get too excited about this. Biden's just saying, I'm not going to hinder it. But he's not really going to help it, aside from reversing anything that happens under this administration. But who knows? He may not even do that. He says that, but he may not do it. And it's not going to be a huge issue. Like if, if he says it and doesn't do it, he's not going to lose a lot of uh, votes for re-election. And let's face it, he may not run for re-election if he wins because he's really old. Joe Biden, I believe, is uh, 77 and will be 78 if he wins and gets inaugurated. Yeah, he's born November 20th, 1942. So he would be 78 upon inauguration in January 2021, which means he'd be 82 for the inauguration for a second term. I know I'm getting ahead of myself here, but he could get too old, especially he, he seems old. He's not one thing I'll say for Trump. He doesn't seem old. Trump seems energetic. He, he doesn't come off as old. And Biden does. Biden does. Bernie Sanders does. Elizabeth Warren, who's 70, doesn't. She comes off like she's 60. I'll give her that. Trump comes off younger. But Biden, he seems like an old man. And he is. So, I don't know if he'd even go for a second term. If he were to win. 775-FRAUD-55-775-372-8355. Eight three five five. I'm going to pause for a moment and read you an ad for myself. 
Why? Because it is my show, and I can do so if I feel like it. And yes, it's about Binance again, but I, I, I want to be honest and transparent. I'm never going to lead you to something that is not good for you. Binance, in my opinion, is by far the best Bitcoin exchange in the U.S. If you want to buy or sell Bitcoin for U.S. dollars, and you live in the U.S., then they are the best choice. The biggest reason is because their fees are the least. Their fees are 0.1% on buys and sells. So if you buy or sell $10,000 worth of Bitcoin, your fee is $10. $10 is negligible for $10,000 worth. That's what 0.1% is, obviously. Gemini charges you 2%, so does Coinbase. That's 20 times higher. Binance is a reputable company. It's been around a long time. You can trust it about as much as you can. It's regulated. It's regulated by the U.S. government. Deposits have no fees. And withdrawals, whether you're uh, taking them in uh, via cash through uh, an ACH transfer or if you just want to take your Bitcoin off the site, that's also free. And the limits are high. Now, you can only do an ACH of $5,000 at most, but you can do multiple ACH transactions. So if you want to get twenty five k off, you can just do it five times in a row with no waiting period. And you can do that and hit your bank, no problem. Everything's good. They are regulated in 37 U.S. states. If you live in any state besides these, then you can use it. You can't use it in Alabama, Alaska, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Louisiana, New York, North Carolina, Texas, Vermont, or Washington. Any other state not listed there, you can use Binance legally. That includes California. That includes Nevada. That includes New Jersey. All these states, you can use it. Arizona, fine. Illinois, fine. Just not those 13 I listed. The fees are the lowest of any exchange in the U.S. has an excellent reputation. It has every cryptocurrency you can think of. I'm actually about to buy 5,000 Dogecoin to give to Benjamin as a Hanukkah gift, and it'll be his first cryptocurrency. Benjamin's going to have a cryptocurrency for the first time in his life, and he'll be excited by it. He, he follows Bitcoin along with me, so he'll be excited to have 5,000 Dogecoin. And I'm going to buy them for him for a Hanukkah gift. I'm going to use Binance to do it. And I will be honest, there are a few things that are negative about Binance. The customer service isn't particularly good. They, they don't respond very fast, and when they do respond, the answers aren't very good. Everything pretty much runs itself. You won't need customer service very often, but the customer service kind of sucks. I will admit that. The initial identif- identity ver- verification process is a bit slow. It'll give take about a day to complete. So if you need to buy Bitcoin today, that's not the best option, but it'll take about a day. It's, you'll need to do it one time. And it's done. They claim it'll take one to five minutes. That's BS. It takes about a day. But once you're done, you don't have to do it again. Do I recommend it? Of course, I wouldn't be mentioning it if I didn't recommend it. Are they paying me? No. So why am I doing this? Well, there's always something in it for me if I'm doing this, of course. $15 is in it for me if you sign up using my referral code. You may say, well, screw you. I don't want to use your referral code. I will just use no referral code. And I say, okay, then you will not get $15. You will screw yourself. You will cut off your nose in an attempt to spite my face. 
So don't do that. You should use this referral code, and we will each get 15 U.S. dollar for doing so. No risk. No deposit necessary. I promise you. Just enter referral code 350-29165. 350-29165. Go to Binance.us, not .com. .com is the non-U.S. version. You know what that one. Binance, that's like finance with a B, B-I-N-A-N-C-E, Binance.us, and enter referral code 350-29165, or just use the link which you can find in the Flying Stupidity Forum, which is a thread called Sign Up for Binance, the lowest fee Bitcoin exchange in the U.S., and get $15. There's a thread there where you can click on a link, which will automatically fill in the referral code, or just write down the referral code, 350-29165, and go to Binance.us and sign up. Now, little note, as far as the $15, you can't just get 15 and withdraw it. Someone tried that here. Someone who listens to the show is like, I'm just going to get 15, buy Bitcoin with it, and just ship it off to a gambling site and screw them. You know, like, No, you can't do that because they require you to make $100 worth of trades. And you go, aha, that sounds like a trick. You're making me deposit $100. No, you don't have to deposit anything. You just have to trade the same $15 over and over at minimum to be able to withdraw it in some way. Now, I, don't, I didn't do that. I, I don't recommend you do that. I recommend you only sign up for Binance if you really want to use it, not to get 15 bucks out of them. So I, I signed up when I was really ready to use it, so I didn't have to trade 15 over and over. But, but just to show you, there really is no obligation. You can sign up, get the 15, trade it around you know, seven times, and you'll have reached the $100 limit, and then you can pull it off. So uh, a really cheap guy who listens to the show did it successfully. <laughs> I don't recommend you do it, but you can. And it's not against the rules. But really, sign up for it if you really need it as a service. It's, it's a good service. But one other restriction you should know, if you're going to deposit into the site with ACH or eCheck, you're going to have to wait 10 days before taking any cryptocurrency you buy off the site. So let's say you want to sign up and then, and then move your Bitcoin elsewhere. You're not going to want to do that unless you have 10 days to wait if you're going to use ACH or eCheck. If you're using Wire then this doesn't apply, or if you're going to just send cryptocurrency into there, then this doesn't apply. Then there's no waiting period. It only applies to ACH and eCheck, where there's a waiting period. And outgoing ACH and eCheck, there's no delay. So if you want to withdraw, then they'll do that immediately in just the normal few days it takes to hit your bank is what it'll take. And I've done that myself, and it works great. I have actually not bought any Bitcoin through them, but I have uh, sold Bitcoin through them and sent, sent the U.S. dollars to my bank, and it's all worked great. I have, I have the money sitting in my, in my bank. I can go to the bank any time and take it out, put the money in my Jew wallet, and feel good. I've always said you, you've, you never really have the money until it's actually in your pocket, and that includes cryptocurrency. So it feels good when you actually trade it for real currency, and the real currency is in your bank account safely. But I've done that through Binance. It's worked exactly as they say, no tricks, no hidden fees, nothing. And I wouldn't be advertising this if it didn't have such a thing. So that's Binance.us, referral code 3502916. We will each get $15 for it. Not a sponsor here. Only reason I'm recommending them, well, two reasons. One, because I think it's a good service. And I know a lot of you need an exchange to buy and sell Bitcoin. And number two, because I want $15. So I think that's a good enough reason to take up time on this show. Trader Risk, are you still with us? I may have bored him to death with a. I am oh, here, I, but I'm fading fast. I, I thought maybe I bored you to sleep with a Binance talk. <laughs> nah, it's good, Binance. 
Binance is Biden, good. The Biden conversation was uh, helping me sleep. Okay, the Biden conversation put me to sleep. A, that, that's sad that, that the Binance ad is more exciting than the Biden conversation. Okay, let's let's go to uh, talk about the World Series of Poker. That's a little bit more exciting than Joe Biden. The World Series of Poker has announced a number of events, and we now have the dates the general dates for the World Series and the specific dates of certain high-profile events, which is always good to have so we can schedule schedule our lives around it if we are going to be attending many World Series events as I do and as I know some of you do. So they had initially only announced a few events, but they have since announced, uh, I think, 12 more. I think we have a total of 14 events with exact dates listed. So on uh, December 12th, eight days or nine days ago now, I guess, they announced that the World Series of Poker will take place from May 26th through July 15th. That's actually the earliest that it has taken place in over a decade. And the Big 50 is returning this year after getting over 28,000 entries in its inaugural year of 2018. I finished 666 there, easily cashing for about 3K in the $500 buy-in event. I also was one of the top stacks after the first day, but I wasn't that excited because the field was 28,000 people. The event will once again have a $500 buy-in with 50,000 starting chips and 50-minute levels. The reason all these numbers were chosen because they're all forms of 50. $500 buy-in, 50,000 starting chips, 50-minute levels. The starting flights of the Big 50 will be from May 28th to May 31st. So there's four different uh, starting flight days. It's unclear the re-entry status. It's possible that you can do unlimited, but it also just may be one re-entry per flight. I'm not sure. It's also unclear if the first buy-in will still be rake-free as it was last year or if that has gone away. It actually cost them a lot of money last year because the lines to register were so big because of all the fail they had there that people didn't bother registering for a second bullet because it was just too difficult. <laughs> they didn't want to stand in line for four hours again. Hopefully they'll do it better this year. Uh, so I still don't know if it's going to be rake-free or, or the, the rebuy situation. Oh, no, I, they, they've clarified that. I see. The next press release has clarified it. You, you can rebuy uh, a total of three times. You can have four entries at most because there's a – there's four flights, and you could rebuy once per flight. So I guess uh, no, I, I guess that's not true. I guess you, that means you could rebuy uh, seven times for a total of eight entries. It's a rebuy once per day out of four days. Okay, and that's at 10 a.m. on May 28th, 29th, 30th, and 31st, and day two will be on June 1st. This is important to know if you want to play this event because I will tell you, it's going to be very, very crowded. There's going to be a ton of people in town, and the hotel rates are going to be very high. And I suggest right now, I really mean right now, drop everything. Drop everything if you want to play the Big 50 and register a hotel room if you need one, if you don't live in Las Vegas, immediately now before it shoots up to $300 a night for the Rio. I'm serious. I immediately go book the Rio right now for that weekend, starting from the 28th through the 31st. And in fact, book it for several days after that, which you can... Cancel and get your full money back, by the way, if you don't need it anymore. That's something you may not know. You can book a lot of extra days at the Rio and then just uh, – you don't even have to pay in advance. Just book a lot of extra days and then just cut them off and they won't charge you for them. 
You don't want to just book through the 31st. That just means you're going to get day one. But book whatever time you feel you need and do it now. Otherwise, the price is going to go way up because the entire town got jammed that weekend because of all the people that came in to play this. So the Big 50 is coming back. And in addition, the main event has been announced. It will take place between July 1st and 15th. And the starting days will be July 1st through 3rd. So it's going to be a two-week event. And boy, I know that. I mean, I, I lasted to day five, and it took me over a week to do. But uh, July 1st through 3rd are the three starting days. And it's very similar to previous years. Still $10,000 buy-in. Still no rebuys. No add-ons, nothing like that. They've changed late registration a bit, which has pissed off Norman Chad, who's become a, an anti-late registration advocate. They are now allowing late registration all the way through six levels, which doesn't sound that bad, except the six levels are two hours each, which means now you can late register all the way through two hours into day two. So it's not just day two registration. You can register after the first two hours of day two. Now, this isn't as bad as it sounds because it's a very slow-moving event and about two-thirds of the people have been making it through day one because it's so deep and so slow-moving. So the truth is, two hours into day two, still most of the field's going to be there. It's much worse than these smaller events where people can register eight hours in when 70% of the field is gone. That's that's what needs reform. This, This isn't that bad, even though it sounds bad. I still don't like it, but it's not as bad as some others. If you remember, I finished 128th last year for about 59K out of 8569 entrants. I was busted and doubled up through at one point the eventual winner, Hossein Ensan, who was a nice guy, 55 years old, the oldest winner we've had in a long time. And I'm excited to play that again. The seniors event, which is still for ages 50 and older, which means our friend Trey here can play it once again. I cannot yet, but I'm getting close. I will be 48 when the event goes, two years away. But 50 and over can play the Seniors event, the fastest-growing event in the World Series of Poker by far, because poker is an aging game. And every year, the existing player pool gets a year older, and more people qualify for the Seniors event. So just bigger and bigger fields, especially because it's only a $1,000 buy-in, and a lot of people over 50 can afford a $1,000 buy-in, because people over 50 tend to have more money than young people do. So this is a very big event. It starts on June 18th. It will be at the Rio. will not be at this new convention center at the, near the link. It may move there in 2021, but for sure it's going to be at the Rio in 2020. Now, here is uh, that was information that was released on the 12th. Since then, more information has been given. Uh, the Millionaire Maker event, $1,500 buy-in. It's been around for some years now. That is just a standard $1,500 buy-in event, except you can rebuy once per flight. It's not a freeze-out. So you can play uh, a total of four bullets. So there's two starting days, June 5th and 6th at 10 a.m. I thought they were going to do away with a lot of the 10 a.m. start times. I guess they didn't. I heard something like, oh, oh we, we heard you loud and clear. 10 a.m.'s gone. No, 10 a.m.'s not gone. 10 a.m.'s alive and well. It's there for the Big 50. It's big for there for the Millionaire Maker which is June 5th and 6th, and it's going to be there for the Monster Stack on June 12th and 13th. $1,500 buy-in. 
Also, 60-minute levels, but you start with uh, basically double the stack you get on uh, the Millionaire Maker. Also starts at 10 a.m., and there are no rebuys. If you are out of the monster stack, you are out. You cannot rebuy at any point. One entry maximum. The ladies' event, since we have such a large female audience here. The ladies' No Limit Hold'em event is on June 17th with a $1,000 buy-in. And there's one rebuy allowed. June 17th at 11 a.m. June 19th and 20th, I already told you about the June 18th seniors event. The seniors is at 10 a.m. also, but I guess that doesn't matter as much. Old people get up early. So, Trader Risky, do you get up early? Are you used to getting up early? Um, I, I, not when I'm in Vegas. Well, I normally get up by 9.30 at the latest. I mean, okay. that's late, but no, normally when I'm at home, I'm up by 7, 7.30 at the latest. I don't think I'm going to change. I don't think in two years I'm going to be any different. I think I'm going to still be sleeping late. And in fact, my grandmother, maybe I inherited this from her. My grandmother on my mother's side, she stayed up very late till her dying day. All the way through age 85. She, she looked like someone who'd go to bed early and wake up early. This, this little old Jewish lady. But uh, no, she went to bed very late and got up late. Uh, anyway, that starts at 10 a.m. The seniors. June 19th and 20th, the double stack. Not to be confused with the monster stack. The double stack, $1,000 buy-in. Start with 40 k in chips. One rebuy per flight, meaning four entries maximum total. 10 a.m. They love 10 a.m. June 22nd, the super seniors for age 60-plus. I still think they should have kept it at 65, but it's 60-plus. Really makes the field a lot tougher. Because 60 and 65 can be a big difference. So you have a lot of these guys between 60 and 65. There's a, there's a lot... A lot less mental deterioration that can happen, and and also there's just more good players of that age. Those five years make a big difference, especially at this point. I'm not saying once you get to 65, you go senile, but you can start to have slow deterioration mentally without being senile. You're just not going to be as sharp as you get older. There's, there's going to be some slowing down. Of your mind. Some people it's very little. Some people it's a lot. Some people it's really extreme. Anyway, Super Seniors age 60 plus. I'm a while away from that one, thankfully. I'm not ready to be 60 yet. Super Seniors age 60 plus, 10 a.m. on June 22nd. The tag team event, an event I think is stupid. $1,000 per team, 2 p.m. It's a freeze out, no rebuys on June 22nd. I don't like the tag team because there's no requirement how much time each person has to play. And this allows people to win bracelets without being justified in winning a bracelet. You can be someone who is deep bankrolled and is willing to put up the entire $1,000. I guess it doesn't have to be that deep. And say, look, I'm going to barely play. Buy in some uh, player who's good. Give them a sweetheart deal saying you just want to pretty much buy a bracelet and hope you and barely play. Let him do all the work and... Uh, then if he wins, you get a bracelet, which you didn't earn. So I think that's crap. Ryan LaPlante has come forward and admitted that he was approached by various recreational playing businessmen who wanted a bracelet. He said more than one approached him and offered to buy him in with a great deal if he were to just play almost the whole time, that they just basically wanted to buy a bracelet. He said no, but he said that he was offered this. The Colossus. The Colossus, which is a shadow of its former self, which has been replaced by the Big 50. Colossus is like the uh, 
it's like a hot nightclub that a better nightclub that's much more hip opens down the street and then nobody wants to go to it anymore. But it still stays open for those that uh, have good memories of it. That's what the Colossus is at the World Series. The Colossus, which was once the huge field event called the Colossus for that reason because it's supposed to be colossal. It is now a $400 buy-in, 40-minute levels, and one rebuy per flight on June 24th and 25th at 10 a.m., meaning a total of four buy-ins could be done. It's a much smaller version of the Big 50. The Crazy 8s event, which is eight-handed, no-limit hold'em, for $888 with a guaranteed $888,888 first prize. That is coming back June 26th and 27th. It will have, uh, looks like, four flights total, one at 10 a.m. and one at 5 p.m., and you can rebuy once per flight, meaning a total of eight buy-ins. The mini-main event is on June 29th. That's something they started last year. I did not play it. It's a $1,000 buy-in, 60,000 chips, except it goes four times as fast. I think it's like the main event structure, except it's... uh, Levels last 30 minutes instead of two hours. So it's a, like a mini, uh, like a main event that's sped up at, by four, which is a lot. That's why it's nothing like the main event. <laughs> Once you change a 120 minute level to 30, that makes a huge difference. But if you want to play it, it's on June 29th, $1,000 buy in 11 a.m. The main event I already told you, July 1st through 3rd, starting at 11 a.m. Thankfully not 10 a.m., but 11 a.m. I was rocked out of my bed anyway by an earthquake. So I have to get up early anyway, but hopefully that won't happen next year. The little one-for-one drop, which I will not play out of protest. $1,111 buy-in, of which $111 is going to charity. Now, that part's fine. The part that isn't fine is that uh, despite the fact they're still raking it normally like it's a $1,000 event. I think they're taking like... 10% 10% out of that, so basically you give $1,111 and only 900 goes into the prize pool. The charity part's fine, but I don't like if there's going to be a charity event that they're not doing anything on their end. They're running it like it's a normal 1K event and then just taking $111 from each person, and you don't even get to claim this in your tax form, by the way. This is not a charitable donation from you. It's from Caesars. I refuse to play that in principle. If they, if they were to reduce the amount of rake they're taking, I might consider it, but no. July 10th and 11th is the closer. This is one of these events that starts after the main, as is the little one-for-one drop. $1,500 buy-in. This is for people who are just uh, trying to take another shot at hitting something big at the World Series, even though the main event is over for them, or maybe they didn't play it at all. $1,500 buy-in. 12 noon start time, as is for the little one-for-one drop, by the way. Little one-for-one drop has unlimited rebuys, but the closer has... One per flight on July 10th and 11th, meaning four total. So what do you notice here? What do you notice? Of the events announced so far, only one of them has unlimited rebuys, and that is the little one-for-one drop, which begins after the main event. The rest are all one rebuy per flight, which still can mean like eight buy-ins total, but it does prevent, at most of these events, people from buying in like 40 times, which some will do. That's some progress, but it's still more than I would like. And the biggest problem remaining, and this is what Norman Chad has been complaining about, 
is the late registration thing. And there's there's been others who agree with him, and there's been some backlash against this. I've been saying it for years. Norman Chad tweeted on December 11th, allowing day two registration late for the World Series of Poker main event is an awful, 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 awful decision by my friends at the World Series of Poker. It just strikes me as awful. He really wrote awful that many times. And as I'm saying, I don't like that either, but I, I like even less the late registration of some of these smaller events where really like 70% or more of the field is gone. I think that's just insane that with when you're paying 85% of the field, when you're paying with, with 15% of the field being paid to let people register with only 30% of the field left is crazy. And that has been happening. And as I said, like two or three years ago, someone had a bet that if they registered for the 1K PLO and folded every single hand that they could cash, and they did, with like 200 in chips, so they almost didn't, but they proved that even a monkey could have cashed that event with the late registration. You could have really registered a monkey if they allowed it. You could train a monkey to just fold every hand, which wouldn't be hard to do, and register the monkey, register the 1K PLO as late as you could, and the monkey would have cashed in that event. Now, is that insane? Is that insane that a monkey trained to fold every hand could have cashed an event at the World Series of Poker? That's when you know you have to change something. But they have not announced their late registration policy with other events yet, only the main. If you are going to register at the Rio, here is a Jew tip for you. You should try two different booking codes and see which one is better. Also, do this on an incognito window. First log into your Caesars account, and then log back out, close your browser, and reopen it again, and and open an incognito window and do it again, because the reason you're doing this is you don't want it remembering through cookies that you've been there, because it's called adaptive pricing. It actually changed the price around. So if you look at the price, and five minutes later it's higher, you didn't get like awful luck. They actually upped the price because it believes that you're interested and is willing to tra- and, and that you might be willing to pay more. So if you see that happen, just close it and, and open it in 30 minutes or so. It'll be better. It'll go back down. Anyway, here's the promo codes you should use. First try WSOP20, which is the booking code, which they make public. You're not doing anything wrong here. WSOP20 will get you WSOP rates, but those may not be the best rates. You also may want to enter Flex LV1. That's F like Frank, L-E-X number one. Or sorry, Flex LV, like Las Vegas. Flex LV1. No spaces, just Flex LV1. That will almost always get you a discount of like 5%. So sometimes Flex LV1 is actually better than WSOP20. So try them both. You can't have them both at the same time, but you can try one and see which one's better, and then book that way. They make WSOP 20 public. Flex LV1 is not public, but it's usable, and you won't get in trouble for it. It's like a public code that just isn't publicized. What is Flex LV1? Flex LV1 is what they email to people when they are looking for a room and then close it and choose not to book. Sometimes it'll send you an email going, whoa, 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 you know, here, here's extra money off. You use this code. So you don't have to wait for that email. Just use Flex LV1 instead of WSOP 20 and see what's cheaper. And that's Flex LV1 will work for any Caesars property. WSOP 20 will only work for the Rio. 
Keep that in mind, too. If you have any problems booking online, uh, you can call up the CCS, which is their reservation center, and they have power to override restrictions of the system. Let me give you an example. Um, This is one that really will come up for you a lot if you are going to be staying there for a lot of days, as I do. Uh, The system does not like you booking back-to-back reservations. It gets very upset when you try to book back-to-back reservations, especially with any kind of discount code. So let's say you use WSOP 20 and book a five-day reservation, but then you still want to stay three more days. So then you book a second reservation for three more days. I think the most you can get off... Actually, that's not true. um, I know what it is. Let's say you have like a day in between or something. It still doesn't like it. It also doesn't let you do back-to-backs, but let's say there's a day in between. It still doesn't like it. or Whatever reason, if the system rejects it, saying you've already used a code or we show you're not checked out, just call the main reservations line and then take a screenshot of the rates you're being offered with whatever code you have, and they'll honor those rates. They'll ask you to email you the screenshot or email them the screenshot, and then they will honor the rates. I promise you they will. At least they have in previous years every time I've done it. So as I said, if it doesn't let you book, take a screenshot of the rates you're being offered and then call up the 800 number versus 1-800-CESARS. And if you get the Philippines, asked to be transferred to the U.S. If they can't do that, then call the property, you know, the Rio itself, you know, 702-777-7777 uh, or whatever other property you want to reach. And when the operator comes on, ask them to transfer you to U.S. reservations, and they will. There's a little trick you can use to get U.S. reservations. And they will honor whatever the website tells you, even if the website gives an error saying, oh, you can't use this code twice in a row, or or we show you haven't checked out yet. Any errors like that, they can fix. They can override it on their end. So don't... There's some people that just give up using these codes because they won't work back-to-back. Yes, you can. Just got to do it through the main reservation center. And they will honor the rates that are on the site. Usually the rates they're going to quote you are going to be higher. But then if you email it to them, they will honor it. Those are my Jew tips regarding booking for the World Series. And I suggest do it early. And guess what? Guess what? You may say, well, I don't want to do it early because what if the price goes down? Well, guess what? There's no penalty. You can cancel and rebook. And sometimes they will re-rate it for you. You can just call up the 800 number, 800 Caesars, get a U.S. rep, and they will often re-rate it for you. And again, you may have to send them a screenshot, but they I, I get my things re-rated a number of times. I keep checking, and I make sure that the rate hasn't gone down. If it's gone up, of course, I don't want to re-rate it. But this way you're locking – it's like a free roll. You're locking in a rate right now. If it goes down, they'll re-rate it. If it goes up, then you can stick with what they gave you, and it won't re-rate against you. So that's why it's always good to book early and then just keep checking. I remember I did that with Hawaii, too. Last time I went there, I booked early and just kept re-rating. That's why it's a mistake, by the way. It's a mistake unless it's the last minute to book one of those rates where you get a certain percentage off for booking a non-refundable reservation because you deny yourself the ability to re-rate it. And re-rating it can be big sometimes. Sometimes there will be big drops. So you, you want that flexibility. You also, if you use one of those stupid rates, if you can't make it, you just get screwed and you have to eat the – you lose it. You eat the money. Whereas otherwise most hotels have a pretty good cancellation policy, some of them all the way up to the same day and a lot of them the, the day before. So 
definitely book here as early as you can. In the Rio, I suggest the Ipanema Tower. Do not take the Masquerade Tower. Do not let them try to convince you the Masquerade Tower is better. It is not. It sucks. The Ipanema Tower is closer. The maintenance, the maintenance problems are fewer. And the elevator is faster because it does not have as many floors to go. The Masquerade is higher. The entire process of getting from your room to the tournament area for the Masquerade Tower is much slower than the Ipanema Tower. So take the Ipanema Tower. Trust me on that one especially. And there is no harm having a room by the elevator because they have soundproof doors that prevent the elevator sound from being heard. So you can be right by the elevator and you're probably not going to hear it, unlike other hotels. Those are some tips for booking the Rio from a guy who knows all too well. Trey Deruski, are you still with us? I am, Jeff, and i got to call it a night. Okay. Well, thank you for being with us here, and uh, you can listen to the rest of the show later. And Absolutely. Th- thank you. I appreciate uh, your attendance here again. And uh, are you going to Vegas this year for New Year's? Um, no. Nah. Probably won't go till, uh you know, maybe March or April. Well, I am not either. This is one year I'm not okay. going. I'm not going to Vegas this year for New Year's. Well, have a happy Hanukkah and a Merry Christmas. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you, you too. <laughs> celebrate all you can. Yes, I will. I will celebrate Christmas right, big time. Go. Okay. Bye, bye, Trader Risky. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye. If anybody wants to call in, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. I will take your call now if you want to call in. Otherwise, we move on to our next topic. Let's see the chat room. Matt the Rat says, just watched the new Star Wars. It wasn't great, but not bad. Overall, I'm glad I went and saw it. There's an unbiased review from Matt the Rat on Star Wars. Okay, we're going to move on. We're going to do one more topic, and then I will take myself a break, and uh, then we will continue the show. Michigan has legalized online poker, online gambling, and sports betting. Wow, a lot of things legalized by Michigan. And what does this mean? Well, Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed HB 4311 into law on uh, Friday morning, which is now yesterday, December 20th. And that legalized sports betting and online casino games, including poker. Michigan has become the fifth to legalize online casino games, the sixth to legalize online poker, and the 20th to legalize sports betting. As far as poker is concerned, you've got uh, Nevada, New Jersey, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia at the moment. The only three that are sharing a player pool, as I said before, Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware. I don't think West Virginia has any poker rooms yet. Pennsylvania has Poker Stars PA right now running, which is doing fairly well. Rick Snyder, the former governor of Michigan, vetoed a bill that was similar to this that would have legalized it. But um, Whitmer decided that uh, she is going to sign it this year. So this will allow pretty much all these forms of online gambling. 
and they believe this will bring in a lot of revenue to the state that will go to the school aid fund and first responder presumed coverage fund. I'm not sure exactly what that is. Something probably having to do with uh, emergency services. My top priority in signing this legislation was protecting and investing in the school aid fund because our students deserve leaders who put their education first, is what Whitmer said. Thanks in part to the hard work and leadership of Senator Hurdle and Representative Warren, these bills will put... I don't think it's Elizabeth Warren, by the way. <laughs> She's a senator, not a representative. Uh, these bills will put more dollars in Michigan classrooms and increase funding for firefighters battling cancer. Oh, I see. This is for firefighters who got cancer somehow. This is a real bipartisan win for our state. So as usual, these legalizations are about money and not much else. If you want to run one of these online gaming sites, first you have to cough up $50,000 to apply non-refundable, by the way. Then if you do get licensed, you have to cough up $100,000 and then another fifty k renewal fee each additional year. And uh, it's not open to just anyone. You have to be one of the 26 casinos in Michigan. There are three non-Indian casinos and 23 Indian casinos in the state of Michigan, all 26 of these can apply. Nobody else can. And if they do get licensed, then what they can do is they can actually separate out online poker and the rest of the online casino without an explicit partnership. So, for example, poker stars could exist in Michigan only as poker stars without having to have an associated casino, even if it technically is under the auspices of one of the licensed casinos in the state. So they can actually have like two different brands, basically. So we do have to wait for this to actually form, but the law has passed, and it's going to happen. Michigan has a pretty good population. It's not a huge state, but it's a decent-sized state. They have uh, about 10 million to compare that, Nevada's population is about 3 million, so they're only about 30% as big as Michigan. Pennsylvania is bigger. They have uh, almost 13 million. New Jersey, their population is similar to Michigan. They have uh, 9 million, a little bit less. Obviously, Delaware is much smaller, and West Virginia is smaller. So Michigan, it's, it's kind of like between New Jersey and Pennsylvania in population. So it's it's nothing like California or New York or Texas getting online gaming legalized, but it's also not like a small state getting it. It's another medium-sized state getting gaming. And there is a general enthusiasm for gambling in Michigan. Michigan is a state where people do like to gamble, and that matters too. If there's not that much interest in gambling in the state, it's just not going to do as well. In Michigan, there is interest in it, and there are casinos in Detroit. There's an MGM Grand there. There's also Caesars Windsor, which is across the border, but really is uh, getting a lot of the Detroit market over there because it's just right across the border. So in Michigan, as I said, there's 26 casinos across Michigan. So there, there's a lot of existing gambling there, and that makes it more likely that people want, want to play online, especially since they can do everything. They can play casino games, they can sports bet, and 
they can play poker. I still don't think the online poker there is going to be great. It's going to have to be one of these things where they join other states. I think if all the existing sites, let's say PokerStars uh, gets to exist in uh, in Michigan, if they could combine with PokerStars New Jersey and PokerStars Pennsylvania, then I think you'd have a pretty good site. Nothing like the main PokerStars, but you'd have a pretty good site to have a combination of New Jersey Pennsylvania, and Michigan. You'd be looking at a population then almost that of California. Still not quite, but the three of them combined are getting close to the size of California population-wise. Now, California thinks that would still do better because California is a state where people really do love to gamble. California is a state where I think per capita you have more gamblers than uh, most other states other than Nevada. California has been long a home of poker, poker rooms in California for many decades. And there's also Vegas, which is only 300 miles away from the LA area and pretty much all of Southern California. And then you have Reno that's not that far from the Northern California market. Californians have always had a place to go gamble because of its proximity to Nevada And then there's been the poker room. So really, California, I think that would be something very big. But without that at the moment, uh, three medium states combined could be really good. But there's been no talk of that yet. I'm just speaking in theory. And it's good that we're seeing this. And remember when sports betting got legalized federally? Remember when the restriction was removed to where any state that wanted full sports betting could have it, where before it could only be Nevada? Then that restriction got removed. And I said this is going to help online poker because I said online poker was just not exciting enough. It wasn't lucrative enough for states to bother legalizing it, but that it's going to ride along with sports betting. And that's going to be something that will help poker in that sports betting is is lucrative enough to legalize and that states will do it. And then they'll say, okay, well, while we're at it, let's take online poker too. And that's what happened here in Michigan. That's exactly what happened. There would be no online poker in Michigan if it were not for the sports betting. That's what's driving this whole thing. So thanks to sports betting for this. And I think we're going to see this more and more. And states, even ones that are moderately against this, are going to turn around and go, well, we need the money, and it's kind of free money, so let's just do it. I'm not sure if they – there must be some tax on this above the, the, the application and licensing fee because it's not that much money they're going to collect. Uh, the article I'm reading doesn't mention the taxes, but there's got to be something. Let me see what I can find here. Open up a different article. Oh, here we go. <laughs> it's pretty substantial. The tax on the internet poker and online games – will range between 20 and 28%. Whoa. And the tax on sports wager receipts after winnings are paid out will be 8.4%. What they're saying is we're not going to tax the uh, revenue you're taking in when people place the bets. We're going to let you subtract the winnings that you have to pay out to people. 
and then whatever the profit is, we're taking 8.4% of that. And it looks like the casino games and poker, just whatever income they take in, that they're going to have to pay between 20 and 28%. Hmm. See, I, I knew it wasn't just about the 50 and 100K. Should have read this other article in the first place. Well, it's moving along. It is moving along. And I'm, I'm happy to see that. It's not going to really matter to me as far as the Michigan thing. But it's nice to see more medium-sized states getting on board, and especially if we could eventually have a, a combination. We might really have something with the revival of online poker because these single-state fail sites are, are not going to do it. It's just not going to do it. Even Pennsylvania, which is doing fairly well, it's not. It's just not what we really need. We re- need something bigger. We need something bigger. Well, I'm going to tell you about something bigger, and that is if you need a big attorney to help you out in the state of California, he does many things. He also specializes in arbitration and mediation. So if you need that done, he can do it. He can even do it uh, if you're elsewhere. He can only practice law in uh, California and federally, and I'm forgetting where else. I'm sorry, Eric, but uh, it's in the ad. I'm going to play the ad. But uh, he's been giving so much money to the free roll here, and he's also, he's also answered a lot of people who've emailed him. The people hear this ad, and they email him for legal advice, and he doesn't make a penny off of them, and he's nice and responds. He's actually a, a nice, non-intimidating attorney, and if you've heard him on this show, this is really what he's like. He's not someone who just puts on a nice face on the show. I, I remember there was an attorney that uh, I heard on the radio. Sounds like the nicest guy, and if you speak to him directly, the guy is the biggest dickhead. Okay, Eric's not like this. He's uh, the same guy you hear on the radio is is the guy you meet in person, and uh, that's why he responds to the emails, and that's why he just gives money to these free rolls. And I never ask him. I, I'm never going to be an ingrate and say, hey, Eric, we're short this week. Can you give some to me? I I would feel terrible asking for him to sponsor a free roll on this site. He, this is not his obligation to do, but he does it because he's a nice guy. And, and as you've heard on the segments here, he's a knowledgeable attorney as well. You've heard him not in action in the courtroom, but you've heard him uh, answering legal questions. And obviously the guy knows what he's talking about. So, Eric Benzamokin, I thank you very much, and I thank you also for giving me an excuse to get up and take a break, giving my voice a break, allowing me to rinse out my throat, and and having this valuable few minutes to take a piss into the toilet. I mean, so many things here. So many things you've helped with that you don't even realize. So, we'll play that ad, and uh, we'll be right back, and we will do the remainder of this show. We have a lot of topics left. It's kind of oppressive, but I'm not going to let not going to let it psych me out. I'm just going to go through them, and then before I know it, they'll all be finished. We had two weeks worth of stuff to talk about, so that is what will happen. I will be right back. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad, and that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. 
Now, simply put, if someone owes you money, or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then you can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin. Eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, now time for something completely different. Not going to talk about legalization of online gambling or the World Series or Bovada or Joe Biden. We're going to talk about something that has nothing to do with poker or gambling or Las Vegas. I'm going to talk about how I am currently in the middle of a dispute involving a former Playboy Playmate and actor Scott Schwartz. If you don't know who Scott Schwartz is, I will forgive you because he hasn't been that relevant in a number of years. But Scott Schwartz is best known for two things. Number one, being the kid who had his tongue caught on the flagpole or frozen to the flagpole in A Christmas Story, and also for being the kid in the Richard Pryor movie The Toy, which I actually saw in the theater. I actually knew him better for The Toy. I saw that in the theater. For some reason, it was a memorable movie where a rich kid... Uh, it's kind of, it kind of had a racist premise. In a, I, I don't think we'd see the movie again today. But uh, Richard Pryor was bought by a rich dad to entertain his spoiled son as like a toy. And I guess if he wasn't black, that wouldn't be as big of a deal. But it kind of has some like slavery connotations to it. it. It didn't really, but just the whole concept does. You wouldn't see something like this today with a black man being bought <laughs> as a toy. But in 1982, I guess this was uh, okay. Anyway, Scott Schwartz was in both of these things. A lot of people remember the flagpole scene the most. Here's uh, a part of it. You're full of beans and so's your old man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Says who? Says me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I double dare you. The exact exchange and nuance of phrase in this ritual is very important. Huh. Are you kidding? Stick my tongue to that stupid pole. That's dumb. That's because you know it'll stick. You're full of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like double dog dare you. 
Now it was serious. A double dog dare. What else was left but a triple dare you? And finally, the coup de grace of all dares, the sinister triple dog dare. I triple dog dare you! Hmm. Schwartz created a slight breach of etiquette by skipping the triple dare and going right for the throat. All right, all right. Now, what's confusing here is Schwartz is not Scott Schwartz. That's the character Schwartz, who's daring Flick, who actually is Scott Schwartz, to stick his tongue to the flagpole. So he got triple dog dared, which is the highest dare possible. And now he feels he has to do it. And Flick doesn't believe that his tongue would get stuck to the flagpole in cold weather. Flick's spine stiffened, his lips curled in a defiant sneer. There was no going back now. This is next. Stuck? Stuck? Stuck! Stuck! So he's saying, stuck, stuck. So that's that's enough of the scene. A lot of people remember that. It's from 1983, A Christmas Story. And he was in the toy in 82, so that, that was kind of the peak of his career. And like many child actors, he didn't uh, end up doing much more, and he ended up doing something very different. Scott Schwartz, unable to find many uh, serious acting roles, unfortunately maybe fortunately, depending which way you look at it, ended up doing porn. Yeah. So, he was in a number of things after this, but nothing that big. He was really best known for those two things, the toy and a Christmas story. But in the 90s, he started being in a different type of movie, New Wave Hookers 5, The Wrong Snatch, Scotty's X-Rated Adventure, Dirty Bob's Excellent Adventures, Cafe Flesh 2, Silver Screen Confidential, Flashpoint X, Still Insatiable, Torn, uh, Booby Trap, Skinwalker, I mean... <laughs> um. He was in some stuff later on in the 2010s, nothing very well known. And these were like TV shows or movies, which were not porn. But yeah, he ended up in porn later in his career. He is 51 years old, born in May 1968. When he appeared in A Christmas Story, he was actually older than people thought he was. He was actually 15 at the time. That was common in those days. It was probably filmed in 82, so he's probably 14 when they filmed it. But, yeah, he's one of these kids who started off hot and then just 
couldn't get much going after that, especially as he probably hit puberty and probably couldn't get jobs. You know how it goes. It's, it's, it's kind of sad, actually. Even in ABC after school specials at one point. <laughs> That's when it all went downhill. In 84, he was in an ABC after school special and he just never recovered. I actually liked ABC after school specials, though. They're very 80s, but I, I kind of liked them at the time. I bet they'd look really stupid now if I watched them. So Scott Schwartz has a social media on Facebook. And I think he pretty much adds everybody who wants to add him. You can probably go add him and he'll accept you. There's certain, like, has-been celebrities who will add, like, anybody. I think uh, Robbie Rist, Cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch is like that. Like, he just adds anybody. So these are not huge celebrities, but they're accessible and people remember them from the childhood. So it kind of feels good. Like, hey, Scott, Scott Schwartz is on my Facebook. So, yeah, you can add Scott Schwartz. He'll probably – I can't say for sure, but he'll probably accept you. I noticed on Facebook – and he's not even my friend on Facebook. I don't just add random celebrities, but someone led me to it that he was posting an alert about a scam that he alleged took place against him. And I found it interesting enough to post on Poker Fraud Alert. Scott Schwartz claimed that he befriended a Playboy playmate named Audra Lynn who appeared in Playboy in 2003. Now, if you go Google Audra Lynn, you will see pictures of her, especially if you Google Audra Lynn Playboy. And you'll see in, in around 2003, she was a very pretty girl. She had kind of like a curvy figure. She wasn't like really thin, but uh, if you like a uh, curvier girl, she wasn't like fat or anything, but she was kind of like a curvier girl. If you like that type, then uh, you'll probably find her very attractive. She had a nice face. Uh, I see a picture of her like on a runway, some kind of like Playboy runway. Looked very good from 03. However, like many of these Playboy models, I don't know in her case why it happened. Her looks didn't maintain for very long. Not that she became ugly, but she wasn't exactly uh, Playboy model quality anymore. So uh, she was trying to live off her previous fame as a Playboy Playmate. And this is what Scott Schwartz had to say about uh, what happened involving Audra Lynn. Now, he posted this in April of 2019. Hi, gang. I have an issue. If anyone sees Audra Lynn, former Playmate, she still owes me $500 that I gave her back in 2011. Yes, almost eight years ago. And she gave me a check and then stopped payment on it. This is publicly shaming her, basically, and now she's blocked me on Facebook. Shocking, I know. Maybe some of her fans who are fans of mine will tell her to do the right thing. Public post so everyone will see it. And then he included a picture of a stopped check. It's a stop payment on it. It's a picture from her. It says Audra L. Christensen, which I guess is her real name. He blotted out the address so you can't see it, but it does look like a legitimate check written October 1st, 2011 to Scott Schwartz for $500 with a stop payment on it. To me, that looked like a real check, so I thought I probably believed his story. It wasn't hard to believe that Scott Schwartz got involved in some way with a former Playboy Playmate who rolled him for $500, as sometimes will happen when pretty girls take advantage of guys. So it wasn't shocking to believe such a thing could occur from a former Playboy Playmate who uh, had fallen apart in some hard times. She is now uh, either 39 or 40. 
I found a picture of her from 2011 when she was like what, 32 or something. And, you know, she wasn't bad looking. She wasn't ugly, but you, you wouldn't look at her and say, oh, I like I could see she was a former playmate. Like she she didn't she didn't have that look anymore by then. By, by that point, she was just kind of like uh, an OK looking woman in her early 30s is the way I describe her by that point. So anyway, I believe she probably did roll him, and I believed that, like most gamblers in poker, that he was just calling it out to try to maybe shame her into paying him. As I've said, there are very few times when someone says someone scammed them that it turned out they're making up the whole story or that the story is missing major portions to it that would change the whole situation if you knew. Usually when people call out scammers, they're telling what's fairly close to the truth or sometimes the complete truth. So I, I kind of believe this here. And I posted it on Poker Fraud Alert, and there, there was some general uh, discussion here and there about it, but uh, and some people thought maybe this was some sort of a prostitution thing that got bad. It, uh, these, these were some suggestions, not by me, but by some people on the forum. Uh, I didn't think that. I just kind of thought that he loaned her the money at some point, and then she stiffed him because she wasn't doing well. That, that's what I thought had happened. But it's more complicated than that, it appears. And I'm only finding this out now because Poker Fraud Alert, which can Google pretty well, like a lot of times we show up as the number one or at least a front page result for a lot of different topics. And this was actually the number one result on Google for Scott Schwartz, Audra Lynn. So anybody who had remembered this story and had wondered what was happened with it, if you Googled uh, Scott Schwartz, Audra Lynn, you would actually get Poker Fraud Alert as the number one result, and it still is. It still is. Now, to be honest, there's not much written about this in general on the web, but we are the number one result. I happened to write about it because I saw it on Facebook. This, again, was a public post by Scott Schwartz in attempt to draw attention to this. I wasn't violating anyone's privacy. So... In December of 2019, December 8th specifically, Audra Lynn made contact with me. I had forgotten I even posted this. I posted about this in April and forgot about it. But uh, she made contact with me, registered an account on the site, and said she's going to tell me her side. So I said, okay, tell me her side. So this is what she said. He had me sign 500 stickers he promised he was going to collect at the end of this autograph show before I got on a flight. I took time away from fans to sign them and money I was earning signing autographs at a busy show. He never came to collect them. Then he came at me saying I owed him 500 I wrote the check and my lawyer flipped out and said, what are you doing? You, you lived up to your end of the deal. So he advised me to cancel the check. I lost that much by taking the time out of my autograph show. It was never a loan. Okay. So to me, it kind of sounded like that she just signed 500 stickers of whatever type they were. I don't know why, but she had 500 stickers, agreed to sign them. For $500, he paid her 500 and then he never came back to collect the stickers, and then said, okay, where's my 500 And she's like, hey, you never gave it back to me. So I thought that that's what she was saying. But I, I had some questions. I said, what do you mean by 500 stickers? What were the stickers for? Are you saying that he never loaned you money, but instead believes you owe him 500 because he never got his stickers back? Did he pay you $500 initially for the stickers? And she responded back, he was going to do these trading cards, so I signed stickers for these trading cards. Yes, he initially paid me 500 I took a big chunk of time out of a very busy autograph show to get them done before I flew. He never came back to pick them up. By the way, this was in 2011. I had no contact with him, 
He then came at me during an autograph show. I presume he, she means a different one, saying that I owed him this money. So I wrote him the check. Later that day, my lawyer came by the autograph show. I'm not sure why she had a lawyer and said, you did what? I'm guessing this is like a friend of hers who's a lawyer. I told him I wrote a check for the money. He said, I did the work. I, he didn't come get them as promised before you left the show. I lost out of autograph sales while I was signing them. That would have been only 25 photos I missed out on to make that $500. I thought I would do him a favor and sign them, even though I knew I would probably lose out on money. Then he never came to pick them up. That's not fair to me. So basically, this is what she's saying. There's some autograph show, and he was putting together some trading cards with her signature on it. Maybe he got other people. You know, maybe it was like trading cards where you put a bunch of stickers on with 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 a bunch of stickers on it for, with signatures from a bunch of different celebrities. Maybe that's what he was doing. I don't know. But he supposedly paid her five hundred dollars to sign five hundred stickers, which then he put on these trading cards he was selling. And she claims that she was doing so well signing autographs that she was actually going to lose money by taking the time to sign 500 stickers, which I don't believe. I don't think she did this as a favor. I think she she probably figured $500 for these stickers is better than taking a chance of getting 25 autographs for 20 bucks a pop. I don't think she was as busy as she claims. That's just my guess. I have no idea. But uh, she, so anyway, she claims that she signed the 500 stickers after being paid the 500 bucks, and then to her surprise, he never came back and took the stickers. It just never happened. Now. I don't know why she didn't go back and try to find him and say, hey, here's your stickers, but I understand her point that he never came back for them, and that's not her problem, if this is really what happened. And then later at another autograph show, she saw him again, and he says, hey, where's the 500 bucks back for those stickers? And she said, hey, I signed them. You just never came and got them. And he's like, no, 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 no. You owe it to me. And she claims her lawyer told her to stop the check. She claimed you know, she was pressured into writing this check to him at the second autograph show. But then her lawyer told her, no, 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 put a stop on that. You, you, know, you don't owe him the money, and she did. So, okay, reasonable. I guess it's reasonable. So at that point, I took questions from the peanut gallery on Poker Fraud Alert, and I said, do you guys have any further questions? And a user named Grenada Roger came up with some. I didn't use them all, but I took uh, some of his questions and wrote uh, a follow-up to her. And uh, some of the questions I didn't want to use from other people. For example, uh, Hockey Guy, he had some questions, or he had one particular question. He wanted me to ask her, does she prefer to take loads on her face or on her tits? And I said, come on, Hockey Guy, I can't ask that question. Kind of wanted to, but no, I can't ask that question. So here's what I ended up writing to her. Number one, do you still have the stickers? She wrote, no, I don't have the stickers. That was like 10 years ago. Okay, eight years ago, but close enough. Did the original deal specify when, were, where, and how the stickers were signed, the stickers uh, when signed were to be gotten back to him? And she wrote, he was to pick them up in the same day. Okay, that doesn't fully tell us, but that is a good question. Like, when we were supposed to get it and how, and she just said he's to pick them up the same day. I guess she means it like the same autograph show. Number three, did you discuss other remedies to his not getting the stickers, such as did you offer to sign 500 more stickers rather than return the 500? She said, I offered to sign 500 of whatever he wanted when I ran into him at another autograph signing. I wasn't going to take time out of making money at that signing like I had the time before. I said I'd do it in my spare time and then send them to him. The reason I offered to sign whatever he wanted was because he said he was no longer doing the cards because at the time I still had them. So I guess she was saying at the time she still had the stickers, she could have just given them to him, but but he didn't want that anymore. So the, she said, I'll, give me 500 of anything else and I'll sign them for you, but not right now. He was going to do something like Benchwarmer does, 
They're like baseball cards if you don't know what they are. I was willing to send them to him. He no longer wanted them. I'm still open to signing 500 of whatever he wants. Well, okay. You know, I don't think this is all made up. I don't think this is all made up. This is too elaborate of a story to just be a loan. Like, let's say she just loaned, she got a $500 loan from him. And then when she found something on the internet about her that's negative and she wants not to look as bad, she makes up a story. It's not going to be this whole convoluted story about stickers. Like, no one can make this up. This this is a very, very detailed and weird story that you just aren't going to make up if it's not at least somewhat true. So there had to be some kind of deal involving the stickers. And Scott Schwartz already wasn't being honest about that because he talked about a $500 loan. So that that already call some question into this here because clearly clearly this had something to do with those stickers and whether he was in the right or she was in the right i'm not sure but he didn't present that in the facebook post he didn't say he had a business deal with her and she went back on her end of the bargain he said she still owes me 500 dollars that i gave her back in 2011 that really implies a loan without directly saying a loan that's why I, i figured it had to be a loan Still owes me $500 that I gave her back in 2011. Okay, he knows some girl who was in Playboy at one point. He gives her $500 and she doesn't give him back the 500 That sounds just like a loan to me. But it turns out it wasn't a loan. So that, that already was kind of like lying by omission, in my opinion, by Scott Schwartz. He didn't directly lie. He said he gave her 500 and didn't get it back, which I guess is technically true here. But you know what people think when they read this. It really sounds like it was a loan, and it wasn't a loan. It was a, a business transaction where he feels that she didn't perform and owes him the money back, which really he should have said there. Really he should have said, I paid her $500 to do something, and she never went through with it and never gave me the money back, and then when she finally did, she just put a stop on the check. That would have been, at least in his view, an honest telling of the situation. Even if he's in the wrong, at least that would have been something that would have been describing the situation. But the way he put it, it sounded like a loan. So I believed that at the very least there was some sort of dispute with the stickers. Now, do I think that she was 100% of the right? Um, very possibly not. Very possibly she was supposed to go bring it to him and never did. Or maybe she misunderstood. Maybe she was supposed to bring it to him and she just never showed up. And then by the time he went to go find her, she was gone. Maybe there's some miscommunication. I believe she probably did sign the stickers. Like if you're kind of hurting for money and someone's offering you $500 for 500 signatures, you do it. And I believe she agreed to that. And I don't think she would gain anything by not giving him the stickers. Like, why would you not do that? So I think she probably did do it. And then something prevented her from getting it to him. It's possible he just never showed up to pick him up or he was too slow to show up and she left by then. Maybe some miscommunication, whatever it was. But I think she's at least somewhat in the right here that unless she really violated the uh, whole thing with the stickers, because, okay, what about this? Like, why didn't he try to contact her and say, hey, mail me the stickers or anything like that? It, it kind of seems like he just didn't get them back. Maybe the cards weren't selling well or whatever. He just didn't get there in time. And then uh, by the time the show was over, he's like, okay, I don't need them for now. And then later he sees her again. He's like, oh, I want to get that $500 back. I really need that. And so he says, hey, you never gave me the stickers, you owe me 500 I could totally see that happening. And then she kind of feels intimidated and gives him the $500 check and then speaks to her lawyer friend and says, are you crazy? You don't owe him the 500 And then so she he tells her to stop it, and she does. And then uh, Scott holds the check for <laughs> eight years and posts on social media. That's crazy. He held it for eight years. I'd understand posting it back in 2011, but the, he held it for eight years and posted it on social media at that point. Wow.
So I can't be sure who's right or wrong here, but I did offer to contact Scott Schwartz and try to come up with a remedy here. Because she said she's still willing to sign five hundred dollars of five hundred of whatever, even at this point, to make it right. He probably doesn't have a need for that at this point, but she's still willing to do it. Which, if she was totally trying to roll him, you'd think she'd just say "f you." I don't have to do anything for you. Like she, it kind of seems like she just wants the original deal in some way or some form of it. She doesn't want to give back five hundred, but she'll she'll do the whole thing all over again that you did for the five hundred. So I said, hey, let me try to mediate here. I also thought that maybe if I got in the middle here, I'd figure out better who was really right and wrong. Because I'm not sure. I'm just kind of theorizing at this point. So I offered this to her. Now, she also was concerned that if you Google her business, which had something to do with uh, pets, I forgot what it was. Nothing having to do with modeling or anything. But that if you Google her business, that it came up with Poker Fraud Alert, which is true. I did post a link to her Facebook page of her business. And she claimed that's what was what upset her and made her contact me in the first place. She wasn't mad at me. She never asked me to take that down, but she said that's what was kind of like irritating her that this has been following her around all this time on the internet. And I'm like, okay, at the very least, she seems to have like a semi reasonable claim, or even some, maybe even more than semi reasonable. This wasn't just taking a $500 loan and skipping out on it. At the very least, they seem to have some dispute about whether she owes it or not. That maybe on both sides would have a point. So this isn't worth trashing her name over, and I didn't want to be part of that anymore. So I said, okay, Audra Lynn is not, you know, that's that's without a last name, and, you know, so I, I kind of took like a middle ground. I removed the business post. I removed the post that mentioned her business, and she seemed happy with that. So I said, I'm, she didn't ask me to. I just said, you know, I'm, I, now that I've gotten this explanation from you, I, I don't want to see your business heard over this, so I have removed that, and it's going to fall off Google, and that's that. People Google your business, they won't find it. So it's kind of like a middle ground. People who want gossip on her can see this whole story, and people who want to patronize her business that may not even know her past won't run into this. So I thought that was a good middle ground, and she was happy with that too. But uh, I also wanted to see if I could mediate here. So I said, uh, let's see here. Oh, here's something else she said that I never posted publicly. She said, uh, I also think that if you worked really hard at something, took time out of your business to do a favor for someone, it was $1 a signature where at the show I was making $20 a signature that you'd be beyond frustrated as well. It wasn't fair. I lost it on money. He never came to collect them. I did my end of it. He didn't do his. That was another email she wrote me. So anyway, I wrote... I just removed the post with your business, the name of your business, so it should fall off Google soon enough. Hopefully that helps somewhat. And I also said, uh, I, I can understand your concerns. Just to let you know, this isn't a fraud alert. Because she said she didn't like her business coming up with a fraud alert. I said, no, this isn't a fraud alert. My site is called Poker Fraud Alert, and it's co- it covers a lot of different topics, mostly about poker and gambling, often uh, not about any kind of frauds. I covered your story with Scott because he was making this very public on Facebook. Would you like me to confront Scott regarding your claims and see what he says? Maybe this can be resolved. Now, by the way, I wasn't going to confront him. I just put up – I like saying that to the people to try to encourage them to allow me to get involved. And when I say confront him, I thought maybe that, like psychologically she's going to think that uh, um, like if she's in the right that I'm going to be confronting him. Like, hey, what about this, Scott? But I was really going to send him a friendly message and ask him for his side. But to her, I said I was going to confront him. 
Yeah, semantics. But she says back, no, I hate drama and negativity. I just want my side told, which I did. <laughs> I've tried to deal with it, with him in the past. We can't seem to see eye, and eye, eye to eye, and I don't need the negativity he brings in my life. I'm about love and peace, not hate, but thank you. So I said, you sure? I was pretty good at, at mediating. I'm pretty good at mediating, getting things settled. Maybe once this is settled, he won't bring this up anymore on social media. Anyway, as I said, I removed the post about your business, so the Google thing should disappear soon enough. And uh, she said, thank you so much. My buddy Lorenzo Lamas has said he already tried to remediate. Lorenzo Lamas apparently got involved in this. He got so pissed he blocked him as well. But thanks a million. Some people you just have to leave in your past. And then she put two little hearts to end the message. So she's definitely not bitter at me. She's happy with my resolution to it. And basically said, no, thanks, but no thanks. Lorenzo Lamas already tried to mediate here. <laughs> Remember Lorenzo Lamas? He, he's trying to mediate this. This is so funny. I don't know. It's just entertaining when I get involved in these things. It's just entertaining to get involved in this thing between Scott Schwartz and a Playboy Playmate from 2003, about $500. It's just, you know, how, how often do people get a chance to do this usually? Just just regular old people. It's because I, I run a site like this with all this uh, news and gossip and people find it through Google searches and they, they want to give their side or they, they want help. And I, I try to get involved. And I, you know, and I tried to do it in good faith. I really did want to settle this between them. I wasn't trying to create drama. Like, I was really going to go to him and say, hey, this is what she's saying about the stickers. Is there anything she can do? Is this true? And I was going to try to find, like, what I felt was, like, a fair resolution and propose it to both. I, like, that was really what I was going to do, just for the entertainment of the site. I, I, I was going to make public eventually the way it all went, and I was going to let them know that. But um, I, I thought that would be a cool thing if I could somehow make peace between the Playboy Playmate and Scott Schwartz, who got his tongue stuck on a flagpole in 1983. You know, I think about watching the toy in the theater at 82 and watching A Christmas Story in the theater at 83. And that, that kid, all these years later, nearly 40 years later, I'm, I'm mediating between him and a, and a Playboy model. That's That's got to be kind of entertaining if you think about it. I know some people hate getting involved in, in such negativity, but I don't mind it. It doesn't affect me. I don't get stressed out about other people's problems, only my own. Lorenzo Lamas got involved. <laughs> Somehow I missed that when I read it the first time, too. That's why I'm so amused by it right now. Like, I thought I had read all the emails, but th this last email, which I did read, I think I was kind of tired when I read it. I think I like woke, it, woke up and then read the email and didn't read it that carefully, just seeing that she didn't want me to continue with it, um, and that she was okay with my resolution. I didn't see the Lorenzo Lamas thing. Oh, my goodness. Well, all's well that kind of ends well. Looks like she was just mainly worried that her business was leading people to find this and think she was a scammer. I can understand that. Like, I can understand the whole thing. I can even kind of understand it on Scott's side without even knowing too much about it. Like, if, if he really believed that she just never brought him the stickers, to him it kind of looked like she just took the 500 and ran. And maybe he didn't believe that she signed them and tried to get it to him. It really could be a misunderstanding. We always make jokes about scams being misunderstandings, where someone's clearly guilty. But this really might be a misunderstanding. This was not your typical pretty girl stiffs guy at a $500 story. Like almost every one of those stories, the girl's guilty. But not here. Not here.
It surprised me. Usually these, these scam claims, especially by like against a former model who's hit hard times, you would think that the claim is true, but the claim had much more to the story. All right, let's move on to the next topic here. Wow, we still have a lot left. Do we have seven topics? No, we have six topics left. That's still a lot. A major bust has occurred in Ontario, Canada. It involves a sports betting ring, and it involves the Hells Angels and even the Mafia. So this comes out of London, Ontario, Canada, which is in southwest Ontario, east of Detroit, west of Toronto. It's the westernmost kind of big city in Ontario. So if you're driving east from Detroit, that's the first city of any real size that you will get to, London. And five online sports books that were run by this ring have been shut down. Ultimate Sportsbook, Titan Sportsbook, Play to Win Sportsbook, Privata Sportsbook, and Players Sportsbook. These five sportsbooks, which were run by this uh, version of the Hells Angels in London, Ontario, have all been shut down. And apparently, this was a big operation netting a lot of money over five years. In that time, in that five years, they took in... One hundred billion dollars. No, but over a hundred million dollars, one hundred thirty-one million dollars over five years. This sports betting operation made. They must have had a ton of players and a lot of uh, big bets being placed. Now, these were not online sports books the way you might think of them. It's not like Bovada or Five Dimes or Bet Online. No, these were sports books that the online portion was only the betting portion. That there was no money handled online. Online was really just to place bets and keep records and things like that. The actual money would be handled by a live agent that you would either meet in person or you would be doing uh, electronic transfers with. I don't know how they were exchanging money, but every week you would settle up with your agent. And if you won for the week, then your agent would pay you. And if you lost for the week, you would pay your agent. These agents were members of the Hells Angels and they would set you up with a password on these sites that otherwise are password protected. There is still one up right now. Uh, Playtowin.ag was one of them. Playtowin.ag, it's still up. And you'll see that you can't do anything there. You'd have to have a way to log in, and you don't have a login, so there's nothing you can do. See, it's a very generic-looking sports betting site on the front. But this is a typical model. This is how bookies work these days. But in the old days... Let's say you want you had a bookie in 1985. If you want to place a bet, how would you do it? We couldn't do it online. You'd call up the bookie and say, "Hey, uh, I, I want to bet bet on the the Lakers minus seven today for 120 dollars," and that's how you do it. And then you'd again settle up after a certain amount of time, depending on how much credit he'd give you. But that, that's how sports betting would work through a bookie back then. Nowadays, it's not like that anymore. Nowadays, bookies give you access to one of these sites online where the only thing the site doesn't do is handle any money. So you never deposit into the online site. You never withdraw from it. That's handled by the agent. But this was a very large sports betting operation, probably catering to people in Ontario. I'm guessing uh, people from London, maybe uh, 
a little further east in Hamilton, maybe even some people from Toronto or Mississauga, which is even further east. London, if you're wondering, is uh, 120 miles northeast of Detroit. It is 120 miles southwest of Toronto, so it's right in between Detroit and Toronto. And then it's 80 miles west of Hamilton. The population in London is 400,000, so it's not a small city, as I was mentioning. But they made $131 million over five years, according to authorities. Now, one person who was arrested and charged for this, they ended up uh, charging more than 20 people for this whole thing. But uh, one of the people who was arrested and charged was Robert Barletta, who is the former president of the London Hells Angels. This is London, Ontario, Canada, not London, England. And what was interesting about him is that he was known for somehow maintaining a clean criminal record despite many arrests over the years for serious or semi-serious charges that every time he seemed to get out of it. And uh, this one may be the end of that. His winning streak may be over in that way. This one may be tough to get out of. He actually was arrested for a very similar situation. There was a sports book that he was allegedly involved in called the Platinum Sports Book from 2008 to 2013. That one was interesting because they actually busted everybody at a Super Bowl party in February 2013. That they had a party invite only for people who were customers of uh, this uh, illegal Platinum Sports Book. And they busted uh, all the people at the party who were... Uh, involved in running this sports book. It was a good way to find them all together. Somehow the police found out about this particular party and figured that was a good time to get them all. So they showed up to the Super Bowl party and busted them. Uh, There was a Vice article about this at the time in 2013. You can Google Platinum Sportsbook Super Bowl Party Vice and you will find it, that article. And that involved uh, Robert Barletta, who ultimately was not uh, convicted. So he escaped conviction of those charges and, and, and uh, to my knowledge, has a clean police record despite many arrests over time for some pretty major offenses. You may wonder what put the police onto them again. Well, it's actually something pretty serious. Michael, it's a hard name to say, Michael Debatua Scholde, or Schold, Michael Debatua Scholde was murdered in 2016, in a Mississauga, outside a Mississauga, Ontario gym, as he left the gym, he was murdered. And the police think that this has to do with his involvement in this particular gambling operation. It's not really known who murdered him or exactly why, but he was involved with this operation and they believe that this murder had to do with that. So once... Michael Debatua Schulde was murdered outside this gym in uh, Mississauga, Ontario, which again is about uh, probably like 100 miles east of London. They started to look into all of this and came up with the fact that it looked like the Platinum Sportsbook had pretty much restarted in a different form. 28 people were arrested in this bust. This is considered one of the bigger on one of the bigger gambling busts in Canada, given that it was a $131 million operation. 
They ended up seizing guns, houses, cars, and cash. Staff Sergeant Anthony Renton, not Anthony Rendon, who is now of the Angels, Anthony Renton, said, this will have a great impact through the nation. It will have a disruption throughout the entire country and internationally. So I guess I guess they took bets for more than just Ontario. By being able to dismantle this group, I really believe that we will stem the flow of a lot of the violence that we are seeing. Uh, they said that 17 different law enforcement organizations, including police in London, Woodstock, and Stratford, as well as the Canada Revenue Agency, which is kind of like the IRS, conducted this investigation, and 28 people were arrested on 228 charges. They carried out a series of raids last week on Thursday and Friday, and they seized seven residences and two vacation properties. They also seized 18 vehicles, bank accounts totaling of more than $1.2 million. Uh, they seized three Harley-Davidson motorcycles, two snowmobiles, two golf carts, more than $1.7 million in cash, gold and silver coins and bars valued at 320000 luxury watches and jewelry valued at 303000 Also seized 21 firearms, and they, uh, they've they also charged uh, Barletta with tax evasion for failing to report revenue of 770000 between 2015 to 2018. They said, it's important to know our criminal investigation is ongoing and could lead to criminal charges against individuals linked to a part of this alleged crime network. Even a woman was charged with this whole thing. Uh, Habiba Kajan, 43, was charged with 10 firearms offenses, three bookmaking offenses, possession of property obtained by crime, and commission of an offense for a criminal organization. She is still in jail. And she had one of the houses that was seized as well. Neighbors of one of those of that house that uh, Habiba Kajan owned said that Hell's Angels seem to be coming in and out pretty often. That's a pretty big bust there. If you are owed money by any of these sites, I don't think you're going to get paid. But since it's settled weekly, it, you probably weren't owed very much if you did happen to be a customer there. It does look like they served a lot of Canada. I think that's what they're talking about. I don't. They didn't specifically say that, but they said this is going to make a big difference throughout the nation and they were talking about the violence. I, I don't know how much violence was directly related to this, but it really looks like they believe that the murder that occurred outside that gym in Mississauga did have to do with it. And that was kind of a catalyst to looking into this whole thing. So whatever reason they killed this guy, it ended up being their undoing though. You think it was going to be found anyway, especially since people were involved in this who had previously been involved in a very similar sports book. So if you want to read about the previous offense, the Super Bowl party that got busted in 2013 again it's Platinum Sportsbook Super Bowl party Vice Google that and you got to go to the page we have on Poker Fraud Alert about it on the scam scandals and shadiness form. The Global Poker Awards are going to take place in 2020, and they're trying to prevent a controversy and embarrassment that took place in the last version of it. What happened last time? was uh, they had various members of the media nominate people in their different categories. The, the Global Poker Awards are run by the Global Poker Index, and they're also the ones who currently own the Hendon Mob. And it, 
the guy in charge of the whole thing is kind of shady, as we've talked about before. But anyway, that's not working. We're not going to talk about that here. The Global Poker Awards were mostly liked, but it got a lot of criticism over some of the categories and how they seem to not know what they're doing. So the two categories that really frustrated people were Best Vlogger and Best Streamer. The problem was that Doug Polk got nominated for Best Vlogger, and Jason Somerville got nominated for Best Streamer. And this was for the year 2018 back then. Little problem, Doug Polk had not vlogged at all in 2018, and Jason Somerville had not streamed at all in 2018. (laughs) So they nominated a vlogger who hadn't vlogged and a streamer who hadn't streamed that year. And Doug Polk made fun of this. He wrote, I do hope to win best vlogger for 2018 for my combined zero vlogs that I put out. These awards are a total joke. So this was pretty embarrassing. And here's what really happened. They sent voting papers to a panel of 137 poker players, media representatives, and, quote, industry leaders. And the voting papers listed 13 categories – And each of these uh, 137 people would suggest two names in each category. And then the top four suggestions would get put on as official nominees. So what happened was a lot of people who got this weren't that familiar with some of the categories. So they said, okay, well, who's the best vlogger? You go, vlogger? I I, I don't follow that stuff. I, I think Doug Polk does videos. Yeah, I'll just put him down. So a lot of people did, not realizing that he hadn't done any in 2018. Best streamer. Well, a lot of these people didn't follow the streaming. So they go, who's, who's a well-known streamer that everyone likes? Who? Oh, yeah, Jason Somerville. Everybody likes him and his streams. Okay, we'll put him down. Hadn't realized that he quit doing that in 2017. So these nominations got through, and nobody realized it, and then it was very embarrassing for the GPI. It made the whole thing look like a joke. They got past it, and the award ceremony was generally liked, but this was uh, an embarrassment. They did put out a statement about it when this controversy occurred at the time. The Global Poker Index sent Global Poker Awards voting ballots to poker players, industry leaders, and media members from around the world. Those nomination panel members made up 137 respondents, picked two names in each of the 13 voting categories. The top four vote-getters were then officially recognized as the nominees for the awards. While the voting itself is fair and democratic, we do understand that there were individuals worthy of recognition that were not included. We sympathize with those that may have been overlooked for nomination this year. That was another problem. Some people who were definitely deserving of nomination didn't get the nominations, and then people who totally didn't belong in there, like Doug Polk and Jason Somerville, got their place. Although the 2018 nominees are final, the GPI will, making concert, will be making concerted efforts in 2019 and beyond to approve the vo- voting process by consulting with key industry figures and making changes for the betterment of the award as a whole. So, okay. That's what they've actually done. What they've decided to do, which isn't a bad idea, is they've decided only to ask for nominations from people who are known to have exposure to that particular area of poker. So they're not just firing out 13 categories to 137 people who have some association with poker and say, hey, put two names down. Because then you're going to have some people not know certain categories and just take weird guesses that aren't correct. And if you get enough of the same weird guesses based on previous years, then the wrong people are going to get nominated. And that's what happened last year. So they realized the mistake. So this year they're only 
sending these out specifically to people who are supposed to know these things, and this is much less likely to happen. That's a big improvement. I give them the thumbs up for this. Uh, However, how is Alex Dreyfus still getting any respect in poker after what he's done? I mean, remember this guy borrowed money from high-stakes players at the World Series and claimed he'd pay them back the next day when he was cash poor and then just stiffed them until they called him out on on, uh, 2 plus 2 about it. I mean, just really bad that this guy would be doing that when he's supposedly this uh, successful CEO of these large poker entities like like uh, the Global po- Poker Index, and, and now they own the Hinden Mob. Uh, this guy always struck me as a snake oil salesman, but okay, at least in this case, it looks like they did the right thing, and they have improved the process. Hopefully the World Series of Poker Hall of Fame, or not, the, the Poker Hall of Fame, which is run by the World Series of Poker, hopefully they could take a tip from that and they can improve the process, which is very corrupt and easily rigged. We've talked about that before. Totally different topic, but just made me think of that. I want to give an update regarding Lake Tahoe Video Poker. Because I talked about it on a previous show, and I want to give an update on that information because I said we'll be looking into it. And I've received some contact from not one but two different trusted people who have told me, that it's not as bad as it seemed. I had received information that the video poker in Lake Tahoe, specifically Harris and Harvey's Lake Tahoe, had really gone downhill and that uh, the good machines were gone. This was significant because Caesars has been degrading their video poker machines, especially in the Western United States, where it's very hard to find what's known as full-pay video poker, that is, video poker where it's 99% return with perfect play or better, and where you also earn one tier credit per $10 wagered. There are some machines that are above 99%, but they're one tier credit per 25 or $50 wagered, and that's not worth doing. So if you want to earn diamond or seven star, you really want to find a good-paying machine, meaning 99% or higher, with $10 per tier credit, and preferably in the mid to high 99%, not like 99.1 or 99.2%. So a good game that people have been playing to earn diamond as cheaply as possible has been what's known as 9.6 jacks or better. 9.6 jacks or better has a few advantages to it. Number one, the variance isn't all that high for video poker standards. Number two... It's pretty easy to learn and know the strategy so you can play it quickly. It's basically the oldest video poker game. Jacks are better. And 9-6 jacks are better refers to the amount they pay for a flush and full house compared to the amount wagered. So 9 means you're getting 9 times what you wagered. So 9-6 jacks are better means you get paid 1 for a pair of jacks, queens, kings, races, 2 for 2 pair, 3 for 3 of a kind, 4 for a straight, Five for a flush, or sorry, six for a flush, not five for a flush. Six for a flush and nine for a full house. If you get paid five for a flush and eight for a full house, then that's called eight five jacks or better, and so on. You need nine six jacks or better for it to be a good jacks or better game. If you play perfectly at nine six jacks or better, which is very hard to do, but if you play perfectly and make zero mistakes, then the average return, which has a lot of variance, but the average return is 99.54%, which means on average you would lose just $46 when wagering 10K. That's pretty good. Of course, there's a lot of variance, but I'm saying that uh, 
those are pretty good odds at least. The problem is it's very hard to find 9.6 jacks or better where they're paying $10 per tier credit, especially if you don't want to play super, super high limit. The only place you could find that in the western U.S. at Caesars Properties was in Lake Tahoe. And that's where a lot of people would go to grind seven stars, or in some cases even diamond, as cheaply as possible. However, the bad news dropped that machines were disappearing from Harris Lake Tahoe, and that these 9.6 jacks or better machines were among them. There was some fear that the best poker game, uh, the best video poker game, that is, in either Harris or Harvey's Lake Tahoe, which are right next to each other, and both these properties, was 8.5 bonus poker, which is only uh, 99.17%, and also has higher variance. Well, it turns out, no, there are some 99.54% 9.6 jacks or better machines left in Lake Tahoe, and I want to tell you about them. So I got this message from a person named uh, STL Longhorn, who reads uh, VegasCasinoTalk.com, which is one of my other forums, And this is what he said. Hey, Dan, wanted to let you know that I double-checked the Harris 50-play machines yesterday. They are still 99%, 9-6 jacks or better, uh, 8-5 bonus poker, and 9-5 double-double bonus. Harvey still has its dollar progressive. That is 9-6, 8-5, and Uh, 9-6. Please pass this along to whoever's interested. So the 50-play machines he's talking about are machines where you can actually play uh, up to 50 hands at once. I don't know how many minimum you have to play, but I, I know that uh, you don't have to play as many as 50. In fact, here's a little trick, and it's totally legal. If you want to avoid the hand pay for when you're dealt quads on that machine, because if you if you win more than uh, uh, 30... If you win more than uh, $1,200... In a particular hand, then the whole machine freezes up and forces them to hand pay you, and you, you have to wait for them to do it, and then you're expected to tip them. The whole thing kind of sucks. The hand pays suck. So you want to avoid hand pays as much as possible. So um, the way you can avoid that, if you're dealt quads, dealt quads meaning since it's 50 hands at once, if you were to be dealt quad, you'd win all 50 hands for four of a kind. You just hold them. The way these machine, these 50-play machines work is you get dealt the same hand for all 50 hands, and then you select what cards to hold, and then it draws the remaining cards for that you didn't hold 50 different times. So the deal's the same for all 50, but the draw is different. But if you're dealt something right away, like a four of a kind, you just hold the four of a kind, and then all 50 hands get four of a kind. So the 50-play machine, as you can imagine, even at a quarter per credit still adds up to a lot of money per hand because you're playing 50 hands at once and you're playing five credits. So you're actually playing $1.25 times 50, which is $62.50 per hand. So that's uh, that adds up. So you usually don't want to play more than 25 cents. Even though it sounds low, you're actually risking 62.50 each time. But if you want to avoid a hand pay when you're dealt quads, you should do a 38 play instead of 50 play. And then if you're dealt quads, you will win $1,187.50, which will be less than 1200 and the machine will not lock up. Totally legal, by the way. This is not like structuring or anything like that. This is totally legal to play at a limit to just avoid hand pays because they're a pain in the ass. But anyway, uh, getting back to the machines, there is still, 
you can still find 50 play machines in Lake Tahoe. And among other things, they have nine, six jacks or better. You also could play uh, eight, five bonus poker, which I wouldn't recommend. And, uh, so those still still exist. So I got that from this St. Louis Longhorn guy, but I, I don't know St. Louis Longhorn. So I'm like, well, I believe him, but I don't know him. Like, what if the guy's screwing with me? What if it's like a gimmick account? I don't think it is, but good thing is I got confirmation, number one, from a radio listener who I've gotten to know told me that, uh, yes, that 50-play machine is still there. And another guy I know through Vegas Casino Talk told me that, uh, yes, those are still there. The guy from Vegas Casino Talk said, uh, I was just at Tahoe this weekend. I think the messages about Harris Tahoe video poker's demise have been exaggerated. First, I used the two 25-cent 50-play video poker machines at Harris High Limit. It has both 9-6 jacks or better and 8-5 bonus poker. That's exactly what the other guy said. Uh, the, the were tucked between, the, these were the two tucked away in a slight alcove. There are, are still two 3-play and 5-play machines on the right side wall as you enter high limit slots with 9-6 jacks or better, starting at $1. So let me stop here. He's referring to the high limit room in Harrah's. If you go all the way to the right on the wall, you can actually find two machines, which you can play either three-play or five-play at a dollar per credit. At 9-6 jacks or better, you can do that too if you don't want to do 50-play. So you can do three or five-play at a dollar instead of 50-play uh, at 25 cents, or up to 50-play at 25 cents. He said... There are five machines against that wall, but only two had nine six jacks or better. But he said there were only ever two with jacks or better, so they, with nine six jacks or better, so they didn't downgrade those. He said uh, you can disclose the availability of the above to the forum if you like. So now I've disclosed it to you. So the good news is, if you want to play nine six jacks or better at Harris Lake Tahoe, you can, and you will get. One tier credit per $10 wagered. If you want to earn diamond, you can do it by simply wagering 50000 in one day. You may say, oh, 50000 I can't afford that. Well, yes, you can, because it, you're not spending 50000 You don't need a bankroll of 50000 or anywhere near that. This is just wagering 50000 where you're cycling the same money in over and over, because you'll win a bunch of hands, and then you'll be cycling that money back through. What kind of bankroll should you bring for that? Well, in the worst case, you could lose like 3500 It wouldn't happen often. But I say you bring a bankroll 3500 you're pretty safe not to blow that. Uh, but usually you're not going to lose more than two k. Sometimes you'll win. Um, the 50-play machine, that uh, you know, that actually has about similar variance to the 3 and 5-play machine. It has more variance than the deal, where if you're dealt bad hands, you're just going to get clobbered, but much less variance than the draw. And what can be very frustrating on like single play or even three and five play games is where if you get four to a royal dealt to you, it's still unlikely you're going to hit the royal. Even at a five play, you're still about roughly 10% to hit the royal, which isn't very good if you're dealt four to a royal. Where at a, at, at a 50 play, you're probably going to hit one royal if you're dealt four to a royal, maybe more. So that's where the 50 play is better, but where it's worse if you're dealt shit over and over then no matter how well you draw, you're, you're probably going to lose the hand. Not going to lose all the money, but you're, you're going to get something crappy as a return. So those 50 plays can kill you in a way you wouldn't expect. But overall, they're about equal variance from what I've seen. And 
these really are the best options. Either one of these, the three to five play jacks are better at a dollar a credit, or the fifty play, where you can do lower than fifty play, thirty eight play or whatever, uh, twenty five cent, a uh, fifty play machine. And you may say, well, who cares? You know, nine for the flush, uh, six for the or nine for the full house, six for the flush. Eh? Who cares? Eight and five, nine and six. That's a, that doesn't matter. What really matters is the big hands. It matters if I hit a royal flush or a straight flush or quads. Who cares about the flush and the full house? So I'll lose a little bit here and there. That's not worth going to Tahoe. It is if you're going to put in volume. This adds up, and I, I've explained this before. You got to think of it this way: if you're playing an eight-five jacks or better, every time you hit a flush. It's like someone reaches into your pocket and takes money out of it. So let's say you're playing a, uh, let's just do, take it simple. Let's just say a, a $5 per credit one play machine. And let's say you hit a flush. Well, you should be getting $30, which is six times, or not, not 30. You, you should be getting, uh, uh, not 30. You, you should be getting uh, $180 or $150. Having trouble doing math tonight. But it should be 25, which is what you're wagering. It's 5 times 5. And then times 6, because the flush is 6. So you should be getting $150. Instead, it's paying you $125. So it's like every time you hit the flush, someone reaches into your pocket and grabs $25 out of it and runs away. And every time you hit a full house, instead of getting paid $225, you're getting 200 Again, it's like someone reaches into your pocket and grabs $25 and runs out. So imagine if you sit there a long time, all the full houses and flushes you're going to eventually hit, and every time that little jerk is stealing $25 out of your pocket, it really is the same thing. And it adds up. So don't do it. Play at the better machines. And you know what? Lake Tahoe is a nice destination. You can ski in the winter. You can hike in the summer. They've got a lake there. A big, very big lake. Surprisingly big lake. So go to Tahoe. I know it's not easy to get to, but you can fly into Reno and rent a car and drive there in an hour. Or you could just drive up from L.A. or Vegas. It's about 500 miles. If you do play, if you do try to earn Diamond or Seven Star, do not do this until January 1st, for God's sakes. Please. It's December 21st. Please, 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 please. I beg you. I beg you. Do not earn diamond at this point, unless you're super close. If you're at 14,500 tier credits, fine, earn diamond. If you're at 145,000 tier credits, fine, earn seven star. Otherwise, let it reset back to zero and earn it next year. Next year meaning January 1st, which is 12 days away. Why? Because the programs go by calendar year. And... If you earn your status now in December, it will be good through January 31st, 2021. If you earn your status on January 1st or later, it will be good through January 31st, 2022. You get a full extra year, a full extra guaranteed year of whatever you earn, seven star diamond, whatever it is. If you earn it in January, you get a full extra year compared to December. That's what a big difference it is. So don't earn it in late December. That's the worst time to earn it. You better believe I'm not going to earn mine until the new year rolls over because I'm going to get two years instead of one. You should do that too. 
So if you're going to do it, wait till after January 1st, unless you're close anyway. And you have to be really close to make it worth it. And don't just guess at the strategy. Google Jacks are Better Strategy Wizard of Odds, O-D-D-S, and a site, wizardofodds.com, will come up, and they'll have the strategy listed there. You can leave that up on your phone and just consult it whenever there's a hand you don't know. Jacks are Better, you can learn pretty fast and not make that many mistakes, but for the marginal ones, just can consult what the website says to do. They've already worked it all out mathematically. It's not like poker where you have to practice and get better and uh, you know, kind of invent your own strategy on the fly for every situation. Video poker is not like that. It's a game that's already been solved with math. So the exact right thing to do has already been determined. You just have to do it. But play right. Play only pay tables like 9-6 jacks or better. And Make sure you earn either 2,500 tier credits or 5,000 tier credits in the gaming day. No more, no less. Exactly 2,500 or exactly 5,000 because that's the way to maximize your bonus. Because if you earn 2,500, they'll give you a bonus of 5,000 tier credits. If you earn 5,000 tier credits, they'll give you a bonus of 10,000 tier credits, which will instantly make you diamond even if you start with zero. That's called diamond in a day. So if you show up on January 1st and you earn 5,000 tier credits which means you wager 50,000. Now, it sounds like it's going to take forever, but it won't. For example, on this 50-play machine, you could knock that out in uh, probably four hours, which isn't very long. You knock that out in four hours, you're diamond for the next 25 months. Sound pretty good? So that's what you should do. Diamond does not have any review program like I've been talking about, like 7-star does. So they're not going to care how you earn diamond or really anything else related to you being diamond, provided you just earn it honestly, which you are. You know, you you go there, you earn it, you earn the 15,000 tiers, and it's automatically granted by a computer. A human does not see it. A human does not touch it. So that's what you should do. If you have any questions, you can text me 775-372-8355. Just earn it after January 1st. Trust me. And seriously, if you earn it after January 1st, no matter how little you play after that, you will have it till January 31st, 2022. Not 21, but 22. I will almost be 50 on January 31st, 2022. Be very, very close to 50. That's how long long away that is. Oh, here's some bad news. A little bit bad news, not terrible news, but a little bit bad news for Diamond members who either live in Vegas or go to Vegas and are Diamond members at Caesars. One benefit, one which I never used, by the way, I I was never one who was a big fan of this stuff, but one benefit of being a diamond or higher member of Caesar's Total Rewards program is that you get free access to spas in all Las Vegas Caesar's properties. That was an automatic thing. You could just walk into the spa and you could use the facilities. You would not get free services there. The services would still cost money, and I don't even think you got a discount, but you may have gotten a small discount, but whatever. The services would cost money, but you could access the spa for free. Well, that has changed, or is about to. You have 12 days left of doing that. Starting January 31st, no, 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 wrong. Starting January 1st, 2020, all Las Vegas spas at Caesars Properties will cost $20 for diamonds. Seven stars can still get in for free. People who are diamonds will now have to cough up $20. And 
that's the way it is. So it's going from free to $20. The rumor is that this is being done because they are uh, looking to close these down and allow uh, third-party companies to open in their space who will be leasing the space. So uh, if the third-party companies were to take over there, then Caesars would have to pay them to allow their members to get in for free. So they don't want to do that. They don't mind so much letting people in uh, if they're running the spas themselves, then it doesn't really cost them much money. But if they have to pay a third-party company for admission, then they it does cost them money. So the, that's the theory as to why this is ending, that they're probably going to be leasing them out. So that's another degradation of benefits at Caesars. I was never a spa person. Spas never impressed me. Some people love them. I just never thought it was something that appealed to me much. I I don't find them too relaxing. When I've gotten spa access for free, I haven't used it. If I get a massage for free, yeah, I'll use that. But then like when the massage is over, I leave. I don't even shower there. I'd just rather shower in my own hotel room. I don't really have a use for spas, <laughs> to be honest. Some people like hanging out there and... Uh, just using whatever little facilities there and uh, watching TV and, and there's fruit on the table you could eat and uh, there's a, a dry sauna and a wet sauna. and Okay. Is there a jacuzzi? I don't know. I'm not impressed by that whole scene. That's just not me. So to me, this does not matter. This is being discussed on my Vegas Casino Talk forum, which I suggest you check out if you'd like to learn about stuff in Vegas or about other things uh, involving casino gambling. It's not a poker site. It's a casino gambling forum. And people ask, well, why even stay diamond? And it looks like they're just taking so many things away. Why even bother to stay diamond? Well, I will tell you why to stay diamond and why to earn diamond and why I'm going to re-earn diamond myself shortly after the new year comes upon us and the 2010s are in the rearview mirror. Getting diamond is essential, first of all, if you're going to be at the World Series for any length of time. If you're just stopping in for a weekend, it's no big deal. But if you're going to be there a lot, I really suggest you get diamond. You get to go to the front of the waiting list for any poker cash games at the World Series of Poker. And more importantly, you get to use the diamond registration room with much shorter lines for tournaments at the World Series of Poker. Now, this has become very important because of all the huge field events that keep running. And you may say, well, I'm not going to play those events. I'm not going to play the Big 50. I- I'm not going to play the Monster Stack. I'm not going to play uh, the Seniors event. Well, that doesn't matter because the registration line is for all events. So if those events are going at the same time as your event, which they very well might be or will be, then you will stand in that long, long line even if the event you're playing doesn't have many people. So you want that diamond room, and they check. They have a guard checking that you have the proper card to get in there. So you do want that diamond card. And you'll have it for two years once you earn it. And then you can use that room, and you can skip to the front of the line at the cash games. And it's just a good thing to have. There's other benefits to have it, though, too. Even if you're not a World Series of Poker player, You can get a small room upgrade for free at most properties 
And this is not guaranteed, but uh, they will often do it for you. And when I say a small upgrade, it can actually it, – when I, it's, it's sometimes like a small price upgrade, but sometimes it can actually be a big upgrade as far as uh, the quality of what you're getting. For example, at Harris Las Vegas, you can upgrade from the – I forget the main tower, whatever it's called, but the – the old tower to the Valley Tower, which has been renovated. The Valley Tower is much nicer, aside from having no shower door or curtain. But the Valley Tower is much nicer, and you can upgrade for free just by saying, hey, I'm Diamond, can you please upgrade me to the Valley Tower? If they have room, they will do it for you for free. So that's the type of upgrade you can get. You won't get upgraded to a suite, but you can get upgraded to a better standard room without paying additional money. They will also take your room requests more seriously. You don't want a connecting door. You don't want to be by the elevator. You do want to be by the elevator. You want a high floor. You want a low floor. When you ask for it, if you're a gold member or a platinum member or not a member at all, they will basically give you the middle finger in most cases. A diamond or seven star, they will try to accommodate you. Also, there's generally more leeway regarding bending or making exceptions to petty rules, of which there are many there. There's many petty rules around Caesar's properties. You can whip out your diamond card and say, I'm a diamond member, can you make an exception here? And often they will. Now, you can't ask for the world, you can't ask for exceptions to major rules, but kind of silly, stupid things that don't make logical sense, you can say, no, I'm a diamond member, I, I don't want this. Make an exception for me, and often they will. It sounds like that wouldn't really work, but it, it does. It actually does work for smaller things. Smaller yet annoying things. Then there's the special lines for check-in and check-out, including sometimes the whole room, whole special room for check-in and check-out. Again, with Vegas often getting very crowded, especially on the weekends, you don't want to stand in a tremendous line for check-in and check-out, which can easily happen. I've seen these lines just snake around everywhere. I'm not just talking about like New Year's. I'm talking about times you wouldn't expect there to be a tremendous line, and there is. So it's always nice to have the special lines for check-in and check-out. And you also have special lines to get into restaurants, buffets. Remember the, uh, the Bacchanal buffet? I just breezed right in when the normal line was like 90 minutes. I just walked right in with no wait because I was a seven-star member, but Diamonds could have done the same thing. Uh, and other things around the property. A lot of special lines for Diamonds and seven-stars. So that's a, a huge benefit to have when the place is crowded. So these are all big reasons to have Diamond. And it's not that hard to earn, unlike Seven Stars, which is a big deal to earn. Diamond is easy to earn. Just one session of 5,000 tier credits will earn you 10,000 bonus tier credits, which will take you to 15,000. Now, it's true you can't use the Diamond Lounges anymore until you get to 25,000. It is true that the spa thing's been taken away. But you have everything I mentioned here, plus you get a $100 uh, meal comp once a year. I think you get a one-night free stay in Atlantic City. Big deal, but you get it. And you get some other small things. So I would recommend getting Diamond if you're going to spend any time at Caesars Properties, especially if you're going to spend time at the World Series for more than just a few days. I can tell you, if I didn't have Diamond, I would be pretty upset at the World Series. It's really a good thing to have. It really reduces your stress level. I recommend getting it. And by the way, when you earn it, make sure you know the of what they consider a day there. A day is not ending at midnight like a real day does. The gaming day usually ends at 4 or 6 a.m., something like that. It always ends in the middle of the night sometime. Just always ask them, when does the gaming day end? So they may tell you 5.59 a.m., they may tell you 3.59 a.m. Just just know it and don't overrun that. So earn the 5,000 in the gaming day. 
A safe way to do it is just to start early in the day, and there's no way you're going to run over. It doesn't have to be super early, but like, like if you start at midnight, you may be taking a chance you're going to run over, and it's, the, the tier credits are going to bleed into the next day, and you won't get the bonus you think you do. So I suggest if you're going to do this like video poker play, you start at, at least by like 6, 7 p.m. Okay, two more topics. The Hard Rock Atlantic City took over for the Trump Taj Mahal, and things are not going as well as they thought that it should. Candidly, we're disappointed with Atlantic City, said Chairman and CEO Jim Allen of Hard Rock International. There's no other way to say it. It's a shame that they did not rise to the occasion of a company coming in and putting $500 million into that city. Now, who is they? Who didn't rise to the occasion? Who's he criticizing? He's criticizing Atlantic City. <laughs> so he feels that the Hard Rock Atlantic City has mostly been a failure. It's not losing money, but it's not making the money they thought it would and he's saying they spent 500 million coming in what they did was completely redo the trump taj mahal which turned into a dump trump didn't own anymore by the way he hasn't owned it for a long time it turned into a dump it closed and then it reopened as the hard rock atlantic city they invested 500 million in it and while they made money it was uh, a disappointing start, to say the least. They were expecting to do much better than they actually did. And this was uh, very sad for them after what they put into it. It's not about to close or anything, but this, this was not what they were looking for. The Hard Rock ended up uh, with profits of uh, $24 million in the third quarter of 2019. That was the quarter that just ended on September 30th. That sounds pretty good. That was just in a quarter. But they're still not happy with it. See, they spent so much last year that uh, they really were hoping to do better than making $24 million in the quarter. And they're afraid that maybe this shows that the future isn't that bright and maybe they won't even continue making $24 million in a quarter. So you can't even say, well, they'll just wait it out and recoup their $500 million investment after uh, five years or so. It appears that the market is saturated and that they really probably should not have opened there. And that's what he was talking about, that the city, the people... I think the customers and maybe the city itself just didn't rise to the occasion that after all that money was invested into Atlantic City, people didn't show up to play there, which, which is stupid. I always hate when businesses blame the customer for not shopping there, for not utilizing their services. That's so stupid. Nobody's owed customers. You have to earn customers. Customers have to want to come to your business. If you do a crappy job or you you make the wrong decision opening in a saturated market or if your prices are too high, whatever the reasons are and people don't come, you, you can't give them a hard time for not showing up. And remember, I called out Phil Galfon for this attitude regarding his run-at-once poker site 
when instead of admitting that he had a lot of lousy ideas and that his site was failing because largely they did not make a lot of good decisions, he was blaming the customers for not understanding what a wonderful site it was and what a wonderful deal he was offering. And that's just so arrogant. You'll never hear me say that those people who don't listen to this show are at fault in some way. If you like this show, I'm happy to listen to it. I'm always happy to hear we have new listeners. I'm always happy to discover listeners that have been around for years that I didn't know existed. But if people don't listen, I don't say, what if you listen to my show? How dare you not like my show? How dare you not give my show a chance? No. If this show appeals to you to give it a try, and you try it, and you like it, and return to listen, that's great. That's the best scenario. Uh, if you try it and don't like it, okay, at least you tried it. If you don't want to try it, that's fine too. Maybe it just doesn't appeal to you at all. It's my fault if I'm not appealing to you. It's not your fault for not liking what I'm offering. And I know that. And that's the truth with any business. It's not the business's fault if it does not appeal to the customers or if they opened in a bad market or whatever. So it's it's stupid that he's saying this. Anyway, Atlantic City is still struggling. And uh, Tillman Fertitta is not very happy. He's the owner of the Golden Nugget. He's also the owner of the Houston Rockets. And he does not like the fact that the Hard Rock and also the Ocean Casino, which was in, uh, that's the former Revel, that they opened, that they didn't just leave well enough alone and leave those two properties closed. He said, it's not a nine casino market, referring to how many casinos are currently in Atlantic City. And I don't understand why nobody realizes that. You know what? He's right. It sounds like a bitter guy who just doesn't want competition for his casino because he, he has a casino. He has the Golden Nugget Atlantic City there. But he's right. Like It's probably infuriating to him to know he's one of seven casinos that's really the maximum to have there before it gets too saturated and everybody starts struggling. And then two more big casinos open, and he's like, oh, crap, this is going to screw everybody. He said, this is what happened to Atlantic City the first time. It's how casinos got all run down. People didn't have the money to keep their properties new and fresh by putting money back into it. I think it's a huge mistake again. It's a seven-casino market, and when it was seven casinos, everybody was putting money back into the properties. Now they won't. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. A lot of casinos did get run down. In fact, the whole area was considered run down for a while, aside from the Borgata. The Borgata, which isn't even on the boardwalk, was considered like an island away from all of that. In fact, they they had security there. It's kind of up on a hill. They they they. It was kind of separated from the rest of Atlantic City, which was full of crime and blight, and uh, the casinos got run down. It it just wasn't a good scene there. So that now they finally you know put money into some nice properties there, but now again there's too many casinos. He's afraid it's going to go the same direction. Something I didn't know until I read this article was that in 2016, the city of Atlantic City was doing such a poor job with everything, and the city was becoming such a disaster, and so ridden with crime and and casinos were failing, that the state of New Jersey actually took it over, which I've never heard of before. I've never heard of a state taking over a city. But basically, the state government took control of Atlantic City for a five-year period, starting in 2016, to where the state government has the right to override city council decisions, sell city assets, eliminate city agencies, and 
other things as well. And uh, even though the current governor and lieutenant governor don't like that takeover and wish it was not put in place, they have said that they will honor it until it expires in 2021. The Atlantic City mayor was corrupt and resigned on October 3rd after pleading guilty to wire fraud. (laughs) What a freaking mess. What a freaking mess this place is. I'll tell you, I'm not impressed by Atlantic City. I know some of you guys like it. I know some of you East Coast people have a soft spot for it. I mean, the boardwalk's mildly interesting, but I'm not impressed with Atlantic City. The casinos, they all kind of feel like poor man's Vegas in every way. They're not as nice. Uh, the service is not as good. And that's saying a lot because there's a lot of service problems in Vegas. But the service is not as good. There's kind of a, an arrogance there that's much worse than anything you get in Vegas. There's a general inflexibility there. Uh, and, and I've spoken to others who feel the same way. It's, it's not just me being difficult. Like I've spoken to a lot of others who feel the same way about Atlantic City, especially ones who are not locals to it. It's just not a place you go to and say, oh, I want to come back here so badly. It, it kind of feels like a poor man's Vegas. And it kind of feels like they're just not trying very hard. And the, it kind of feels like they don't get it. They don't realize that they have to do things better if they want to survive in today's markets, not do things worse. That's where I think they're really missing it. Like, you've got to have better service. You've got to have nicer property. You've got to have better deals. You don't do things worse or people don't come back. Then they, they decide to go to Foxwoods or, or, or win Boston or whatever. Like people, yes, I know these are not all that close to uh, where Atlantic City is, but there's more and more casinos popping up that are closer. Atlantic City used to be the only place to gamble on the East Coast. We're nowhere near that time anymore. And if they want to survive, yes, I agree with Tillman Fertitta that nine casinos is too many. But it's also the way they do things there. I've told this story before, but what the hell, we're near the end of the show, I'll tell it again. This turned me off to Atlantic City, and, and I found out later this this happens to a lot of people. It happened to Brandon, it happened to tons of people I know, so it wasn't just me. I was on my Seven Stars trip back when I was at Seven Stars in uh, 2017, so it wasn't even that long ago. I think it was April 2017. So on my Seven Stars trip, where the general policy is, if they have a suite available, they will give it to you. And if they don't, you have to have earned it from your play in other markets. So if they look at your play in other markets and it's not very impressive, they won't give you a suite if, they, if, if they're going to be busy and the suites would sell otherwise. But if it's going to sit empty, they'll give you the suite. That, that's generally the policy for the Seven Stars trip, which you can take once a year, for Caesars properties around the country. This is not required, but that's generally the policy. So in Atlantic City... They refused to give me the suite. I got there. I said, can you upgrade me to a suite? It was a Wednesday night. It was dead. No one around. It was like a super dead night there in April. Cold night in April. Cold day the next day. Not beach weather at all. Uh, not a holiday season. Nothing going on. I mean, it was really dead. The whole town was really dead. So I knew they had to have suites available. So I said, can you upgrade me to a suite? No, we can't. Why not? Uh, we're too busy. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Look around. There's nobody here. <laughs> you're not too busy. You've got to have suites open. We don't. I said, well, okay. So you're telling me if I walk away and I, and I call up reservations and say, can I book a suite? They'll say they're all full. 
No, we didn't say that. We just said they're not available. Now, what do you mean they're not available? You just said you just said they're open right now. Well, yeah, we have to have them reserved in case someone comes and and wants one at the last minute who's play qualifies for that or wants to buy one. I go, okay, that's a good point. How about I come down at 2 a.m. and see if they're taken, and if they're not, you can give it to me at that point. No, she says. Why not? Well, that's not late enough. I say, okay, I'll come at 3 a.m. That's not late enough. Okay, 4 a.m. So she she was getting really frustrated when she was trying to make up excuse after excuse after excuse not to give me the suite. Now, the reason they wouldn't give me the suite is because they have a policy there in Atlantic City, apparently, that if you do not have much history there, no matter how much you've played anywhere else, unless you're like a huge whale, they don't want to give you a suite. Now, I actually had played the last time I had been to a Caesars property, which was in January. I played a ton in Tahoe of that year. And I told them that. I told them, look it up. They, they said, we don't know much about you here. We don't have much play history for you here. We just haven't seen you much. So, but, but they wouldn't admit this was the reason. They, they just kept telling me they're too busy. And they wouldn't admit that that was just their policy. They don't, if they were just honest with me, I would have said fine. They kept lying, lying, lying. And I said, look, can you please be honest with me? I know how all this works here. If you have the hard policy, you don't give sweets to outsiders unless they have a tremendous play history. Just please tell me that so we can be done with this. But, but just be honest. No, sir. We, we would totally give it to you. We just can't because this is so busy. I go, it is not freaking busy. I, I can see. So they called up a host for me. And uh, she finally got sick of dealing with me. She called a host to talk to me. So I talked to the host. The host said, oh, yeah, you know, uh, it, it is because we don't know much about you because you don't have much play history in Atlantic City. But uh, hey, hey, you know what? I'll tell you the truth. It's because you're booking at Caesars, and Caesars is our most expensive property. Now, had you booked at Harrah's or Bally's, well, then I could have given you a suite. It's too bad you booked at Caesars. So I said, okay, I call. Move me to Harrah's. I'll take a suite. <laughs> well, I, I swear, I, I, I could have sworn I heard the guy fall over in shock. Like he, he didn't expect that response from me. He had thought I checked in and had all my stuff ready in the room and weren't going to go move. I said, no, no, that's fine. I haven't checked in yet. Just move me there. I'll, t- I'll take a sweet in Harris over a non-sweet in Caesars. And he's like, blah, 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 blah. hold on, let me check. Oh, what do you know? It's full tonight. And I'm like, full? Okay, can I can I call up and verify that? And if they have one open, they'll give it to me? Oh, well, no, because... And he kept coming with excuse after excuse after excuse. I mean, the guy's lying to me through his teeth, just like that woman in the front was. Finally, I stopped him. I said, sir, can you just tell me the truth? Can you just level with me? Are you not giving me the sweet because you don't? Ha- I don't have the play history and that... And that that wasn't even true what you told me about Harris and, uh, and 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 Bally's and that just absolutely I have no chance of getting a suite no matter what. Is that really the case that I had no chance from the start? Even if there was zero people checking into the entire hotel, I still would have no chance. Can you please tell me if that's true or not? He finally said, yeah, okay, that's true. <laughs> so, they, just, they just lied to me over and over and over and over again instead of just being honest. I asked them to be honest. They, they they tell me so many lies and stories and oh if you did this if you did that like, okay well, let's do that oh no no you can't like I mean I've gotten the run around at Vegas casinos before but geez this was beyond that she left such a sour taste in my mouth so I said all right screw them I'm not going to play here at all if this is going to be their attitude they're going to be dishonest with me and waste all my time like this 
I wasn't looking to have a big debate if they just said, sorry, we don't have a play history for you. We we can't give you more than a standard room. That's our policy here for outsiders. I'd say, okay, I don't love it, but uh, thank you for being honest with me. Instead, the lies, the lies, the lies. And, you know, everywhere I went, we went to a steakhouse. It was okay, but it wasn't like a high-end experience. It was like a, the whole thing there, I just kind of had the feeling that it was all kind of like a little lower end than Vegas Strip. The service, the way you're treated the way they view you, just everything, the, the, the way the properties looked, the way things were maintained, everything was kind of like a lower version of the Las Vegas Strip. And I said, I see why people don't come back here. I see why people come here and they think it's kind of crappy and go elsewhere. Even if they're far from Vegas, they'll go so, somewhere else on the East Coast. So as long as they keep acting like this and they don't give people reasons to keep returning, they won't. And after my experience with that whole thing with the suite, I asked around and all these different people are telling me, yep, this happened to me. Yep, this happened to me. Yep, this happened. Like almost the identical thing happened, except they didn't press quite as hard as I did, but they all had the same nonsense. Oh, we're too busy. Only if, you, if you'd only booked more in advance. They, they gave every story in the book of why they couldn't give them a suite. And they go, no, look, I have good play in Vegas. I have good play here or there. And they, 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 they wouldn't give it. And every time it was a story instead of just admitting the truth. It turns people off. Like, why do that to Seven Stars members? Why piss them off to where they're not going to come back? And I've told stories about other fails in Atlantic City of non-Caesars properties, like Ocean has had various fail, and and ways they've stiffed people out of comp points, and uh, the stories go on and on. Okay. Last topic. Last topic. Marijuana is legal for any use in Las Vegas, you may smoke it recreationally, you may smoke it for medical purposes. Whichever way you wish to use the marijuana is legal in Vegas and has been for a little while now. But something that had not existed in Vegas until December 13th of this year was a marijuana-infused dinner. If you had always wondered what it would be like if you could combine a gourmet meal with marijuana, but not marijuana you smoke, but marijuana that is infused into the meal, then there is a restaurant that you should have gone to. Too late now, but you may have other opportunities. So this <laughs> this is pretty crazy. Uh, let me get this up here. I lost my I lost my article that I wrote about it. Now, here we are. It's on Vegas Casino Talk. I wrote this article. So the new woo that's N U W U Cannabis Marketplace is looks like it's in Las Vegas, but it's actually on Indian tribal land. I bet you didn't know that there's Indian tribal land right there, kind of in Las Vegas. The Nuwu Cannabis Marketplace sits on a small patch of Paiute Indian tribal land located right off I-15, right between Las Vegas and North Las Vegas. So it's it's north of most Las Vegas that you're familiar with, including downtown, but it's not that far north. It's not as far north as what's called North Las Vegas, which is a different city. It's right in between there. It's right off I-15, and it's technically tribal land. Now, the reason this matters, you may say, why does this matter if it's tribal land if pot is legal in Vegas anyway. Well, what's not yet legal in Las Vegas are pot lounges. 
But since they're on tribal land, then Las Vegas City laws do not apply. So even though Las Vegas City, which is kind of in the process of possibly legalizing pot lounges, uh, the tribal land doesn't have to worry about that because they're not part of Vegas City. So the very first uh, cannabis-infused sit-down dinner in Las Vegas was offered on December 13th at the New Woo Cannabis Marketplace. And it took place uh, there at the at the pot lounge. It was a standard tasting type menu, except all of the dishes were infused with cannabis. Now I don't quite understand what that means. <laughs> infused with cannabis. Cannabis is not known as something which will make food taste better. I mean, yes, people have had pot brownies, but the point of eating those is to get high, not to, not because it makes the brownies taste better. But there's this gourmet food by Chef Mark Marone of Graffiti Bao, which I believe is a, a, a I think that's a Los Angeles restaurant. No, I guess they have the, I guess that's a Vegas restaurant. Yeah, it is. Okay, so Graffiti Bao, which I hadn't heard of before. Uh, Mark Marone was a guest chef at the New Cannabis uh, Pot Lounge. I guess it was on December 12th, not 13th. doesn't matter. It's already passed. And pot from the Lowell Herb Company was used to create uh, this cannabis-infused menu. The people eating there got to eat uh, uh, Royale Arancini with cheese featuring uh, Chapini risotto, Angus beef, Angus beef, artisanal cheese, pickles, uh, a baby gem salad with Thai vinaigrette, palmeo, heirloom tomato, pickled shallots, mandarin glazed short ribs with jalapeno palm puree, black pepper crumble, Fresh mandarin and, and mash, and a car- caramel budino with a snickerdoodle cookie and sweet cream for dessert. All of this stuff was infused with cannabis. Not exactly sure what that means, but all of this was infused with cannabis. How much did this cost? How much was this fine cannabis-infused meal at the New Wu Cannabis Pot Lounge? $150?! And they had two of these dinners, one at 5 p.m. and one at 8 p.m. on December 12th. Oh, my goodness. Now, this was not the first time a cannabis-infused meal was uh, served, but it was the first time in Las Vegas. It had been served previously in September of 2019 in Los Angeles. But uh, this is the first time such a thing had taken place in Las Vegas. I don't know when the next one is going to occur, but it would again have to be on tribal land because pot lounges will not exist in Las Vegas City until uh, at least 2021, maybe later. I think this is just a stupid gimmick. I, I wonder if the cannabis made it taste any different. What's also weird is that you're allowed to smoke pot while there. 
So what's really the point of this whole thing? Why not just have a regular meal and smoke pot while eating the meal if that's what you want to do? If you want to get high on marijuana, okay, then you're eating there anyway. Smoke it while you eat. Everybody else there at a pot lounge obviously is not going to be offended by you smoking pot in front of them. I'm sure I'm sure they'd be doing it too. So smoke the pot while you eat and have a normal meal, probably less than $150. <laughs> Some people say, well, the reason is because some people just don't like smoking. This way you can have pot in your meal and get the high from it. I'm not sure how much of a high you're going to get from it, but you can get that without having to smoke. And some people think, well, it's just a cool-sounding thing to do, to have a gourmet meal that's cannabis-infused. I wonder if you can taste it at all. Someone else said, this is for the tourists. This isn't really for locals. I don't know. Like, how many tourists are going to hear about this type of thing? I guess if you're like a big marijuana fanatic, maybe you've heard of it, but this is not on the Strip. This is way out north of downtown. This is towards North Las Vegas on Indian land. So I, I bet it's more locals that were there. Someone said, from a purely logical standpoint, you could just go buy edibles, but that's so yesterday, bro. <laughs> kind of accurate though like it's not cool to say you had edibles it's cool to say you had a cannabis infused meal someone else said this sounds kind of gross weed is an actual food nasty in my opinion and charging 150 dollars for this plus tax and tip that's almost 193 dollars including an 18 percent tax and about an 18 percent tip and nine percent tax disgusting Well, this is not something I would ever try. I'm I'm not a marijuana person in any way. I do not smoke marijuana. I don't eat edibles. None of that. I have been exposed to a lot of marijuana over the years. I know exactly what it smells like. And I have for a very long time, dating back to high school. And people have smoked it around me over a long period of time. Not every day, but... Uh, you can't be involved in the poker community without having a lot of pot smoked around you. And I, I definitely did. More last decade than this decade, but I have been around uh, pot smoked around me over time. And I, I never had any interest to do it myself. I'm not just saying this. I, I really have never smoked pot once in my life. Never. Ha- I'm not like Bill Clinton. Uh, I, I, I smoked, but I did not inhale. Uh, it wasn't me. I, I never smoked or inhaled. Actually, I think I probably inhaled. I inhaled the secondhand smoke, but I, I did not smoke it. I had no desire to. There was talk one time about uh, how much money they could give me to smoke pot with them. And I forgot how much was being thrown out, but it wasn't enough. I'm just not a pot smoker. It doesn't appeal to me. Nothing that ever like changes my state of mind appeals to me. That's just not me. I like being fully alert. I don't like making my mind relax. The only time I like making my mind relax is when there's a real purpose for it. Like, yeah, you know, if I'm going to the dentist or something like that or getting on an airplane. Okay, these days with what went on with me last year, yeah, there I need to make my mind relax. I don't use pot for it. I take Xanax in those cases. But there I see the value in it, but I don't do it for fun or recreation. It just isn't something that appeals to me. It's not like a it's not like a high minded 
oh, I'm above this sort of thing. I just, I just don't want to do it. It just doesn't appeal to me to do. And uh, that's just always been the way I was. I just never had a desire to do that. There is a hereditary aspect to that. Many people don't know that, but there is. There's a big hereditary aspect to that. And honestly, many other things about your personality. But there really is a hereditary element which dictates how likely you are to want to do drugs. How likely you are to want to drink a lot of alcohol and get drunk. And the genes you have will determine how much temptation you have. Now, of course, this is under your control. You may have a lot of temptation, but just decide not to do it because you don't want to go down that road. Or you could be someone who doesn't have much temptation to, but you just get yourself into it anyway. But there really is a strong genetic element to this. Which is actually why when I was afraid to take Xanax because I heard about these addiction horror stories, I, I kept being told, don't worry about it, just do it, because you're one of the least likely people to abuse it. And that was both based upon my history and uh, my genetic history, that there's no history of drug abuse or alcohol abuse in my family, that I don't ever do that, that I've never showed a desire to do that, I've actually shown the reverse. I've shown restraint, such as when I had uh, terrible dental pain and I was taking Vicodin for two weeks and voluntarily quit it because I was afraid it might cause an addiction. And I was told, hey, you're the least likely person <laughs> to, to develop a Xanax addiction, so don't worry about it. Just take it. Don't overdo it. Be smart about it. But you're the least person we'd worry about giving this to. That actually convinced me to try it. And... That was one thing I regretted that I didn't do earlier because that helped me recover. Now I barely have to take it, but uh, that was something that was helpful. But I, I don't seek substances to feel good. Others do. Others have that drive. I don't. Everybody's different. That's just not me. And I have a feeling that won't be Benjamin either. I can kind of already tell, even though he's only nine. I don't expect he'll be exactly like me, but I, I see certain things I recognize from my own personality in him. I know there's a long way to go in his development, but that's I start to notice things that remind me of myself, and not even from my own influence on him. Okay, that's it. We will have a show next week, I promise you, unless something happens, like me getting sick or whatever. But other than that, we will have a show probably again on Friday. I'd like to thank Trader Ruski for being part of this program, as he is every week. I'd like to thank Eric Benzamokin for his generous $100 donation for our free roll. And we shall continue through 2020. This show started in March of 2012. And it started regularly appearing in May of 2012. And other than last year when I had to take a hiatus due to the health issues, we've been going just about every week. And this show is not on for commercial purposes. It doesn't make money. 
It's just a show I do because I enjoy doing it. And that's why the little income sources I have, when people click the Amazon banner at the bottom of the uh, site before making a purchase or uh, signing up through Binance, those little things help. The site's going to go on whether those things happen or not. I'm not counting on those things. But I'm providing this for free. Just because I enjoy providing it to you guys. I enjoy doing this show. I enjoy having an audience who would like to listen to me. Sometimes I wonder, why would anyone want to listen to me for six hours? This was a six-hour show, by the way. But I think, why, why would anyone want to listen to me for six hours? Just talking, talking, talking. Some of you do for some whatever reason. You guys want to listen to me for six hours. So, great. We'll be back next week. We should be back again the week after. No planned hiatuses for the time being. 2019 has been a good year for Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Without any kind of real delays or interruptions. A lot different than last year. I'm thankful for that. Thankful to have all you still as listeners to the show. And see you next week. Shalom. Shalom.